interviews, I heard one in the plans for the Autobahn where he was making a lot of good noises, but I've been smeared. Sam Harris was just talking about ideas and he was smeared as anti-Muslim by the SJW left. <laughs> Actually, to be honest, Sam Harris is to George Bush's right. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, no, Sam, I don't want to smear George W. Bush. He came out right after September 11th and said, basically, he's like, leave Muslims alone and Islam is a religion of peace. Look, Sam, we're going to get, we're going to police some just cool it with yeah. some of the rhetoric okay uh, but i know what more sam wants for bombing like six different countries simultaneously and killing people who have nothing to do with it but because i'm not going up on national television and saying that islam is the mother load of bad ideas this golden girls trust fund baby's having a conniption why don't you take a chill pill sam scientific data it can't be racist. Actually, if you look at the mismeasure of man, <laughs> I read a third of an assignment of before passing out drunk. <laughs> Actually, all sort of. Sudden, all of a sudden, we can't talk about Neanderthal DNA anymore. You mean like the guys in the Budweiser commercials or the Geico ads? <laughs> Jesus Christ, why do people like this guy? What a pain in the ass. You know, that's actually... That was what made George W. Bush so likable, was that there was a part of his personality where you really did feel like he'd probably bully Sam Harris and it would be cool. Yeah. That I mean, was why. All right. Uh, I am uh, joined, of course, as always, by our producer, Forrest, um, and also uh, by a history, Kurdish studies professor, Gene uh, Bajalan, and philosophy professors, Ryan Lake and uh, Mark Warren. Uh, so uh, this is the uh, the Sam Harris debunking dream team. Um, this uh, this has been, uh, of course, the, the voice you just heard was uh, the uh, late Michael Brooks doing an impression of uh, George W. Bush uh, reacting to uh, to Sam Harris, which was a sort of perfect uh, Michael bit, you know, like that that kind of three level, uh, you know, parody. Um, but um, but this is something that that we've been uh, that we've been talking about in a certain sense uh, for for a very long time, like for uh, you know like long before um, you know I knew Michael, long before you know certainly long before this show uh, at uh, at Mark's um, wedding. Mm -hmm. uh, you know we 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 spent like around that that time. Uh, Ryan and I spent multiple uh, evenings with him. Uh, discussing an idea for a website or podcast that would be called Sam Harris is wrong about everything. <laughs> so I yeah, briefly it's... owned the URL. Sam Harris is wrong. <laughs> I'm surprised you were able to get a hold of that. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised Sam Harris doesn't own that. <laughs> just to be sure, just to be yeah. sure, I can't be smeared by Glenn Greenwald. I have bought up every negative, <laughs> every negative website name about myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah that, that sounds about right. Uh, Ryan, just before we came on, you were you were telling us about uh, Sam Harris's most recent podcast, which which is amazing, and I think you need to share this. Oh yeah, so his most recent thing, um, I just listened to it. It's like a ten minute little mini episode, and it just kind of, if you just want to understand what's bad about Sam Harris in ten minutes, just go listen to this. It's just a little ten minute episode. Um, it's called "A Few Points of Confusion," and he basically. 
the nutshell, the thesis is that if you meditated like Sam Harris, you would understand why he's right about free will, why he's right about ethics, why he's right about identity politics. Everything comes out of just guided meditation. And he also slams. He also slams ninety nine percent of the people that listen to his show yeah. on that in the beginning. He's like, it's like ninety ninety nine percent of the people I talk to don't understand meditation. Yeah, that's right. That's right. If you only understood meditation, you'd understand why he's right about everything. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is funny in at least two ways. One of which is that it's a pretty sharp turn from his uh, his usual strategy of arguing that like objective, rigorous science proves that he's right about everything. <laughs> yeah, meditate until you realize that he's right about everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he even um, kind of digs on like philosophers and scientists with like he mentions free will. He's like, there are a lot of philosophers and scientists who, who agree with him about free will, but they don't have the courage to say it because they don't meditate, I guess, or something. So I, I don't know. <laughs> he said that the philosophers of free will don't have the courage to come out against. Yeah, he's, free he's will? yeah, he said essentially there's a lot of people who don't have the courage to say what he says. Um, I guess because they don't meditate. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's kind of the thing he gets into with free will, yeah. right? It's, it's yeah. that like it does. Everyone's afraid that not having free will will mean that you know our society pretty much crumbles. So everyone's yeah. being dishonest about it. It's not that it's not that people believe differently. It's that everyone's lying. That's right. Yeah, it's they're all d dishonestly motivated. Which I mean, yeah, there we'll get into this. There, I mean, there are legitimate versions. This happens in free will. This happens in ethics, and there's other stuff too. There are legitimate versions of a lot of his arguments, and but he just has this general thing of not engaging honestly or, or authentically with the arguments in a deep way. Brian, are you yeah. a compatibilist? I am a compatibilist. Yeah, so I'm personally right, well, offended well, by Sam, Sam Harris. Sam Harris doesn't. doesn't yeah. Like <laughs> yeah. Because I'm afraid of what will happen to society, so I just lie and pretend to be a compatibilist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's the peasant fear that you know, incompatibilism yeah. is right yeah. about free will determinism. Yeah. So Deep down, I know, I know that Sam Harris is right, but I just can't admit it. I don't have the courage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is. Yeah, which is also the preferred rhetorical strategy of like, you know, alt right, you know, uh, guys who like live in their mom's basement and post all day, you yeah. know, like look, everybody knows deep down I'm right about the white race, you know, being threatened, but like you know, nobody has the balls to say it. That's right. That's right. Uh, and the other way, of course, that that's funny uh, about you know, meta is that um, Michael Brooks uh, not only uh, was was very serious about. Um, like he, he went on meditation retreats. He actually was briefly a meditation teacher at one point, you know, before he, he, he sort of started doing, you know, uh, like podcasting, enjoyed the majority report, all that stuff. And in fact, I think he, uh, I think he and Sam Harris actually shared a meditation teacher. Uh, so, uh, but somehow or another, you know, in, in all the effort that he put into meditating, it, it didn't, he didn't get like a Satori insight of, uh, of how Sam Harris is right about everything. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> well, he was meditating wrong. He didn't, he yeah. didn't understand. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. There are plenty of philosophers who are into meditation and have come to different conclusions than Sam Harris about these things. It's, <laughs> I think yeah. People make fun of Marianne Williamson for her new agey kind of approaches, mm -hmm. but her take, her political takes and conclusions are far, far superior to anything Sam Harris comes out with. At the end of the day, they're doing the same kind of like self-realization, you know, self-help things, which is not necessarily wrong. I'm sure meditating and doing all those things are probably good for your health. 
but it's it's like it's like the Jordan Peterson stuff. You know, you stick a bunch of like very you know useful life advice that you know tidying your room and having a shower are probably good ideas mm -hmm. with a political message that is complete which is not really connected to it mm -hmm. but it, it gives a kind of intellectual and spiritual depth to like really dumb ideas yeah so we may marry on williamson any day of the week because at least she has good political takes i'll, I'll yeah, yeah, at, least, at least mary adds crystal balls are telling her to support medicare for all and you know yeah. both <laughs> in the middle east I'm so. not in the middle east. yeah exactly so I'll I will take that any day over over what uh, Sam the insights that Sam Harris is apparently uh, having in meditation. Although uh, since you brought up Jordan Peterson, I think I think this is as good a time as any to acknowledge that the title of this episode and you know that website that we're briefly going to do uh, does involve some poetic license. Uh, I, I think if you look for it a few years ago. Uh, when uh, Jordan Peterson was just starting to blow up and he went on Harris's podcast, uh, like it's a pretty minimalistic thing not to be wrong about, but you know, credit where credit's due, Harris is not wrong about it. He spent like two hours trying to explain to Jordan Peterson that things can be objectively true, even if they're not useful and vice versa. <laughs> it was like... It was like a very, like, like I've never felt so sympathetic to Harris. He sounded like an extremely patient and long-suffering, like, underpaid adjunct professor trying and failing to get something incredibly basic through to the world's most confused undergraduate. So, you know, fair enough. Uh, he's, he's right there's about a, There's about a graphic. That. There's a graphic from his conversation with Jordan Peterson that I just saw that I was going to upload and then I didn't have a chance to. But it's Jordan Peterson looking angry, and it says Sam Harris is wrong, and he's just point like. And I, I wish we had known about that while like promoting the beginning of this episode. <laughs> Fair enough. That said, uh, even if it's not literally wrong about everything, uh, he he is wrong about an absolutely astonishing variety of things. Uh, do we? Uh, I, I think that for I think that for the sake of of doing this right. Uh, we uh, we do need to uh, to start with uh, with IQ. Do you have that clip for us? Uh, yeah, one second. So this is uh, from a uh, debate that Harris did a few years ago with uh, with Ezra Klein. Who you know, I sort of feel about Ezra Klein here the way I feel about Sam Harris. Listening to uh, him talk, Harris talking to Peterson. Uh, you know, Klein is, I think, a fairly annoying kind of centrist wonk, uh, you know, and, and I have lots of problems with him on lots of subjects. Uh, but in, uh, in this case, uh, you know, Klein spent this two-hour conversation uh, trying to explain why uh, Charles Murray, who famously asserts in the bell curve that uh, there's a genetic explanation for um, uh, black-white IQ gaps, um, he, to be fair, he and his co-author Edward Herdstein don't quite say that, but they like go right up to the brink, uh, point at the implication and sort of dance around it. Uh, they, they say, well, we are asserting that there is this, there is this gap and we are asserting that there's no social explanation. So, uh, and, um, and of course this is just part of the larger claim of the bell curve that, uh, the, there are genetic explanations for, um, you know, economic discrepancies in general, right? Like, you know, uh, Murray and Herdstein, you know, also think that poor white people are genetically inferior, but there is the fam most famous chapter of it where they extend this to race. 
Uh, and Harris is trying to defend uh, Murray as just this, this scientist who's like going wherever the data leads him uh, and is being, you know, persecuted by SJWs for it. Uh, and, um, and uh, Klein, I think is, is trying to explain to him that this is not actually where the data leads at all. Uh, and that this is, um, and that Murray is nothing like a neutral scientist. Uh, in fact, uh, Murray spent his entire life has spent his entire adult life more or less uh, in uh, in right wing think tanks. You know, he's, he's he's not you know he's not a scientist. He's a you know right wing political polemicist. You know, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with being a political polemicist, uh, but you know that's just a very different thing. You know, like this this is everything he says is is completely motivated by that, and so it's mostly most of this discussion is. Uh, Klein trying to argue about the substance of the issue and Harris complaining about being uh, that, you know, you, you know, that you're not allowed to, to say these, these important, you know, these, you're not allowed to disagree with the consensus about it. So you want to do the clip? Difference. Uh, sure. Sure. Many things are possible. We're trying to judge on what is plausible to say. And more important, I am worried about the social penalty we're talking about these things because again it will come back to us on things that we don't expect like the neanderthal thing right like that comes out of left field had it gone another way all of a sudden we can't talk about neanderthal dna anymore and there's no point in having our politics be hostage to these kind of tripwire effects where you say something that seems politically invidious Merely talking about the data as they are. I mean, if it, unless every population of human beings has exactly the same mean and the same variance for every trait we care about, we are guaranteed to be blindsided. So, thoughts? Well, it's classic Sam Harris in the sense of um, throughout that entire interview, he's saying, you know, none of the, none of this stuff is, is connected. So the science of IQ is not connected to social policy. And he, he kind of backtracks as well. If it is connected to social policy, I don't want to see it contribute to social policy. But, you know, the science of it is its own thing. And Charles Murray's, you know, work in IQ needs to be um, needs to be taken from his work in uh, social policy. And they're separate things. So it's kind of separating everything out to like such a nuance. Uh, not nuance, but like I don't know, such a such a vacuum point, I guess that it, yeah, it, it he, becomes. Uh... <laughs> yeah, he wants to pretend like all these things are super compartmentalized. Um, I mean, he in the in this last thing I just listened to the the few points of confusion thing when he's talking about identity politics, he wants to do the same. He always wants to do that same kind of move. Like, well, we can, you know, we should, you know, he argues we should we should just it's a mistake to identify with your race in any way. And we should just pretend race doesn't exist. And then he's like, I know a bunch of people out there say I'm a privileged white guy to say this, but if you meditated like me, you'd see that identity doesn't matter. So <laughs> and yeah. One of, the, one of the points I'd make about his uh, use of uh, talking about, well, you know, amongst all population groups, you know, there are we saying they're all the same? Well, that's actually quite a, a, a sneaky way of putting it because Murray is talking about constructed racial groups. If we want to talk about human population groups, uh, you know, within the African continent, you have the most variety of human uh, genetic diversity, skin color, 
which is what people are talking about when they're, when they're using this concept in the West, is not the same thing as talking about different populations around the world and if they might have different traits. So we're seeing a, 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 a two concepts being elided, population groups, and then this notion that skin color somehow is a marker of, of, of whether you're part of a population or not, which is extremely misleading because we can talk about biological diversity amongst human populations, but those populations are not the populations that, that are thought of politically when we're talking about race in the United States. It's something totally different. Mm -hmm. As I said at the get-go, if you want to talk about genetic variety amongst the human population, the African continent, among the black, black people in the African continent are the most diverse people because, of course, you know, uh, human populations that spread out from Africa early on were less diverse and there's less variety um, amongst those groups. So it's a, it's a very sneaky way of aligning two very distinct questions, one scientific and one which is the social construction of race. It's really interesting that you're open with that quote because he's responding to Ezra Klein, who's pointing out that James Flynn had just said to him that it's entirely possible that the data that they've collected is um, is a, the 10 point IQ difference that's being being talked about reflects a 12 point environmental difference and a negative two point genetic difference. That is that black people, this constructed group is actually genetically two IQ points smarter than the rest of us, to which Harris says, sure, many things are possible. We're trying to judge on what is plausible. <laughs> so he, he just discounts that possibility as implausible from the get-go. Yeah, and, and he also, by the way, there's a great thing where they go back and forth about it a couple times about what, since James Flynn is in this incredibly important uh, you know, intelligence researcher you know, who, who actually died quite recently, and and a very interesting guy, by the way. Uh, that you know, he he was a uh, he was an old socialist. He had uh, he was actually his academic training was actually in uh, philosophy, but then he made these like universally widely recognized uh, you know contributions to uh, the the science of you know intelligence. Uh, crucially, about this uh, effect whereby IQ, which which people you know treat as if you know, that, that IQ score represented this, this immutable genetic thing uh, actually, um, you know, actually goes up across all populations, you know, over time as people encounter more complex information, et cetera, suggesting that it's like way more mutable uh, than was, than was previously thought. And in the stuff leading up to that clip that Mark is talking about, uh, they go back and forth about what Flynn like, you know, oh, what the significance of the Flynn effect is, how that might be related to this. And Harris uh, repeatedly accuses uh, Klein of misunderstanding Flynn, and Klein actually gets to do the uh, Annie Hall, Marshall McLuhan thing and be like, well, actually, I just spoke to Flynn on the phone day before yesterday, and this is what he told me. And in a very in-character thing for Sam Harris, even that doesn't phase him. <laughs> he probably meditated on it. <laughs> and a direct experience of what Flynn actually thought. That's the, that's the joke that this this is a, a similar joke to what Michael said when the when the, when this whole thing dropped, and he was like, he's meditated enough to have some kind of like psychological connection to Flynn, where he knows actually what what he meant in that phone call, um, like and didn't say. <laughs> well, Flynn um, probably wasn't courageous enough to mm -hmm. say what's on everyone's mind. 
Yeah, Flint, Flint's not a meditator, so of course. <laughs> well, I mean, well, I think the, the most interesting part of the Ezra Klein thing is, um, you know, he spends like an hour doing this, but breaking down like I, psychologically, I guess, why he believes that Sam Harris um, is perfectly willing to accept everything that Charles Murray says about why he wrote The Bell Curve um, and why he's not willing to accept, you know, the, the weight of American history and kind of the, the bias that he has towards, you know, anybody talking about identity must be um, trying to like, you know, uh, lie and deceive the science and, you know, and, and how uh, and how Sam Harris's own experience as someone that he like that feels aggrieved and feels maligned, um, how that bias creeps into all of these interactions. Yeah, for sure. And it also really strikes me that the stuff that Ryan was talking about for the podcast, where he's talking about identity politics, that like in combination with the Ezra Klein debate, I mean, it's pretty incredible that like, I think that uh, Harris manages to, to get um, everything that somebody might mean by the word race as wrong as you possibly could. Uh, because of course, you know, because in reality, if by race, you mean a biological distinction, then it doesn't exist. It's bullshit. Right. If what you mean by race is an identity category, in other words, like, you know, a way that people are, you know, seen by themselves and others and thus mistreated by others, then it absolutely exists. Right. You know, that like this, this, uh, that um, as a, you know, biological distinction is kind of worthless, right. As a social distinction, you know, it, it's obviously incredibly historically important and in ways that, um, that that like Charles Murray, who he's defending there, is just like astonishingly like silly about. Like he mm -hmm. uh, like if you read like Nathan Robinson has a really good article from a few years ago in Current Affairs called "Why Charles Murray is So Odious," where he talks about how like Murray will like say with a straight face that like okay, any data started in the 1970s can't be affected by racial like you know like social disparities you know about about race because like by the 1970s right by 10 years after we ended legal apartheid then you know that, that was just completely irrelevant to what anybody's life experience or opportunities yeah, you know would a, be that's like, about when we fixed racism right in the 1970s yeah, yeah. yeah. instant <laughs> instant post racial society right there mm -hmm. yeah. and, and and he brings up oh but like what about this IQ data that we have from africa so that's not going to be affected by the history of jim crow and all that which okay one there's very little, right? It's incredibly little data there that you know you are you know to have to begin with. And two, like okay, so in um, in like uh, the the Congo, where like the uh, the Belgians you know would for a long time like cut off your hands if you know you you like as punishment if you tried to learn how to read you know like like there's nothing there that might be relevant you know historically to uh, you know to 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 education levels or anything like that you know and. And Murray literally does, like, actually, this is much worse than The Bell Curve. He has a book called, I think, On Human Excellence, where he measures, uh, like, the amount of number of inches in the encyclopedia devoted to people of various races, which he thinks proves something or other about, uh, about innate abilities. Uh, oh, and by the way, says, you know, because he's talking about, like, various contributions to excellence in that book. Uh, says that you know classical music uh, counts, but for some reason that I at least wasn't smart enough to get uh, jazz and the blues don't count. You know, as as, as far as as uh, as sufficiently you know artistically important contributions go. So all of which is just to say, I mean, I, I, yeah. I you know I think none of this is exactly scientifically rigorous. Yeah, yeah, and I would yeah. like 
I would like to see Charles Murray go to the con uh, the jungle in the Congo and manage to survive in a society that is an oral society, remembering all the things that you need to know to survive in that jungle. It takes an enormous intelligence uh, to be able to live as a hunter-gatherer, far more that intelligence than I think uh, you need in your daily life in the United States where many of the creature comforts of life are provided for you. So, you know, uh, look at the mode of production and the lifestyle of those people that, it, you know, if you're not smart and you're not careful and you're not wise, you die. Yeah. I mean, there's also just... All the data we have about how IQ tests, IQ, IQ is affected by just a wide range of inputs that are often invisible to these kinds of readings. I mean, this is not my area of expertise, but like, for example, if you're tired, if you're yeah. worried about something, those those things all can affect uh, how you do on an IQ test. Your willingness to engage in the IQ test game in the way that the IQ test taker wants you to engage in the game, all these things are variable, and they're variable in ways that both uh, culture and material conditions speak to and which Murray just completely ignores, right? Yeah, no, for I sure. Mean, also just as someone who is like, uh, claims to be super rigorous about like the scientific process and the scientific method, you know, um, for like Sam Harris, like, you know, Charles Murray is not. Charles Murray is starting out with a policy idea, like the, the policy idea that, that we need to cut the social safety net. Like that's the one thing that's motivating Charles Murray's research. So then he's going and he's finding, you know, statistics and facts in these books that, that, you know, prove in the end that we need to cut the social safety net and these differences in IQ. That's not following the scientific method. The scientific method would be that you, that you don't have that original, you know, idea that you're cherry picking all that data from. And you know, so for Sam Harris to like get like bend over backwards to defend Charles Murray and say, Oh, the policy implications don't matter. Like they literally do when that's your goal. Yeah, right. So, uh, I mean, I think that it could be the case, theoretically, that like in his attempt at arguing for his preferred policy conclusions, he he came up with, you know, something that actually did have, you know, real evidential weight. It just seems to be the case that that's not true in this instance. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I, I want to, uh, this, is, this is very far um, from... You know, and of course, we should say because I'm sure, like, there's nothing like, um, and I understand this is unavoidable for this episode, you know, because, you know, fish got to swim, birds got to fly, Sam Harris fans have to cry, uh, you know, out of context misinterpretation. Uh, so, so that, that's, there's no avoiding that. Uh, but, uh, but just to, just to head it off in this case, I think a lot of what he has to say about this you know, is, well, you know, Murray, you know, is, uh, you know, maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong. I think he's just a scientist trying to figure this stuff out. He shouldn't be maligned in this way. So it's, it, I think probably it's been a while since I listened to that conversation with Ezra Klein, the full one. Uh, so, you know, so I, I think he probably does leave himself points for uh, plausible deniability for how much of this he's, he's asserting. But even if that's the case, right, that's still like, he's still very wrong about it, right? Like like in portraying this as this like scientifically rigorous enterprise for which Murray is being unfairly maligned. That's right, yeah. And and like I think Forrest was saying earlier, I mean, just 
you see his biases there. Like Harris is like the fact that he is so sympathetic to Charles Murray. Um, he definitely, I mean, and, and Klein points that out in the debate, like you have your own kind of identity politics here. Like there's a reason you keep being really sympathetic to these other white guys who are getting critiqued for, for saying shitty things like this. The, you're identifying with them and more than you oh, are. Well, with well actually, and he has an amazing response to that because he yeah. says, no, that's not identity politics. It's just that my experience yeah. is telling me. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. It's just it's just my lived experience is giving me information about what it's like to be this kind of person. Huh. I want, what is that? <laughs> exactly. All right. Um we should uh we should move on because Sam Harris is wrong about many other things. Do you have the uh, Islam and foreign policy supercut? And uh I don't know but What's troubling me is I don't know where the line is between encouraging moderation, representing what Islam could be. You know, Islam could be a religion of peace, perhaps. Jihad could be just an inner spiritual struggle and have nothing to do with holy war. Uh, indeed, that we have to raise a generation of Muslims who believe uh, those things. Uh, but pretending that it is already is problematic because it isn't for so many millions of Muslims. And uh, it may be that, that if you pretend hard enough, in fact, you become what you pretend to be. And maybe that's, maybe that's part of the process. But uh, I think we have to admit to ourselves that we are confronting the behavior of a death cult among millions and millions of Muslims, not 10,000 who went to training camps in Afghanistan. Um, we are, we are confronting an endorsement of this kind of behavior and a, a reflexive political solidarity where Muslims side with other Muslims, no matter how sociopathic their behavior, simply because there are other Muslims. Uh, we can't deny the problem while trying to encourage a more benign face of the religion. One thing you can say against neoconservatism, um, which is that it is idealistic to a degree that now seems not at all sustainable. I mean, we, we, we should have learned a lesson at this point, which is we don't do this very well. We don't nation build very well. We have a political environment where we just can't stay committed to these things. Even if we were, were doing it well, you know, we, 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 ha we view everything through a four-year, you know, presidential lens right. um, and an election cycle. And so, and these are, you know, these are multi-decade commitments if we're going to do this, this well. So, um, but Iraq looks like a disaster, and it's, it's looked like a disaster for most of the time, apart from, you know, 15 minutes there after the surge. Um, and I certainly don't consider myself a neocon. I just, I, I just think we have to be honest about, in, in ethical terms, what is really going on in the world. When you, when, if you're going to say that we never should have gone into Iraq which I think is a reasonable thing to say, and it's, it was a reasonable thing to say then, mm -hmm. you just ha you, you, it's only decent to admit how depressing a claim this really is. I mean, so we're saying that, that Iraq is, is a place that requires a psychopathic thug to run it. I mean, given the level of religious sectarianism, given the fact that when you remove a, a butcher like Saddam Hussein, everyone starts killing their neighbor, right? Which is, which is in fact what happened. Mm -hmm. and, and which is in fact the political and religious reality we underestimated when we walked in there thinking that we, they were just going to put flowers in, in the barrels of our guns and, and welcome us as liberators. Um, uh, so it's a, um, it's a very depressing thing to admit about the state of, of a place like Iraq. But I, and I think we should all 
I, mean, I view Iraq as a, initially when, when Saddam was there as a, as a kind of hostage crisis. I mean, you have a, a totally illegitimate regime run by barbarians uh, keeping tens of millions of people hostage. And, and so the, 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 the people who criticize the war based on saying that it was a sovereign government and we should never have gone in there because it's not, that's just a failure to engage with the, the moral reality, which is this was a terrible place to live. And if we could have done something to help these people, we should have. And there are many countries that fit that description. I mean, North Korea is one of them. If right. there would be some way to, to depose that regime and liberate the North Koreans, we should do it. Now, we, we know that it would just be a bloody mess if we tried. And we're learning that more and more in, in these other societies. But, um, and so, so neoconservatism, I don't know what its current state is now, but it, it, I, I can't imagine anyone is, you know, even Wolfowitz or Pearl is, is I can't imagine any of them are, are as sanguine about the possibility of building a nation anywhere from scratch. But the idea that that we created ISIS by going into Iraq. That's also just um, delusional. I mean, the, the, the set of ideas that get, gives us ISIS, that is the set of ideas and, and the, the level of sectarianism that gave us the civil war that, that you know, we, we could barely contain, uh, that drove us out of Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, and that set of ideas, in one or another degree, has been animating uh, a, a subset of the Muslim world for a very long time. Just pure humanity. You could have justified a war in Iraq for purely humanitarian reasons. Now, I'm not saying, now, again, this is a point of confusion. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that we went in purely for humanitarian reasons, but I'm saying you could have. You could have looked at this just as I described North Korea as a hostage crisis. And this guy's a bad actor. He keeps shooting, trying to shoot down our planes, enforcing a, a no-fly zone. Um, uh, you could have, the civilized world could have said, we're going to remove this guy and, and, and just appealed to all of the Iraqis on the ground to just watch us do it, right? Uh, don't fight us. We're going we're gonna to take it. The Wicked Witch of the West is going to be dead in a fortnight. Um, that could have been a completely benevolent thing to do. And, but again, here is where we have to be honest about the role that Islam plays in making this unworkable. That was just the sheer fact of infidels doing it was a sacrilege to a significant percentage of the Muslim world. You had Muslims who on Wednesday hated Saddam Hussein as an insufficiently Muslim tyrant who on Thursday were behind him because he was being attacked by infidels, right? No, and this- Sam, I, I, I disagree with that analysis. I'll tell you why. Because we did, uh, we liberated, okay, and it's got its own problems, etc. but roughly so, Bosnia, Kosovo, right? Yeah. We did that. They were Muslim. We helped them. And we were not perceived as infidels. We were not perceived as hostile. We were perceived as enormously that, that friendly to the Muslims. We, were not, we did not invade so, Muslim that is land. Different. We so, did not invade Muslim land. And we so really don't that, get credit they, for that. I mean, the, the, right. the, the, the Muslim world doesn't doesn't give the no, West the Bosnians, credit for the liberation. Uh, certainly of- did. And the people in Kosovo did. And so my point there, Sam, is that it is not a universal Muslim reaction. It depends on the political context. Well, Where we actually helped the Bosnians and the people of Kosovo, we we were thanked by those people, right? When we went to Iraq, and we have a long history of doing that for corporate reasons, for reasons of subjugation, etc., we were justifiably and correctly viewed with enormous skepticism, and they were well, roughly yeah, right. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't disagree with that, but right. uh, but yeah, I think you're you're downplaying the degree to which there is a 
and again, this, this, this doesn't speak so much to specific doctrines. This speaks to tribal solidarity based on religion, more like, like uh, what was happening in Northern Ireland. You have a reflexive solidarity, even in-group, out-group thinking, where you have Muslims and people of all religions, but especially Muslims at this moment in history, siding with other Muslims just because they're Muslims, no matter how badly behaved they are. There's, it's just a fact that the a commitment to jihad a support for jihad is uncoupled from economics and it's uncoupled from education as as economics go up and education go up a, a radicalism goes up this is not the poorest of the poor who are the jihadists it's the engineers who are the jihadists it's and and that's a prize so this again this is a a a, a very pc um fantasy which it would be great no, if it no, were no. true we're talking about micro and macro issues you're talking about it's, a, a micro issue of that particular engineer or doctor doing what he does right. right whereas i'm talking about macro issues of a country that is doing economically better is less likely to produce a culture that is steeped in jihad etc so I certainly that, hope that's true i don't know that that we know that that's true okay yeah. and so uh, that is why the the culture matters more than the religion does, and I think the geopolitical context matters more than the religion does. So my bias toward Israel, whenever you're talking about uh, the conflict between Israel and her neighbors, my bias towards Israel is really a bias against suicide bombing and the use of human shields and an explicitly genocidal aspiration which Hamas has in its charter and many, uh, many... Uh, um, of Israel's antagonists ha have just in, in the way they talk about the, the fate of the Jews. I mean, it is prophesized that, you know, the, the end times will come when the very earth cries out against the Jews, where, they, where the trees and the rocks say, there's a Jew behind me, come kill him. I mean, that is, that is like center of the fairway Islamic <laughs> prophecy, right? right? Um, and it's in the charter of Hamas. Right. So how can how is it can Israel expect to deal with these people? Right. right. So I think uh, you you illustrated in that piece that if the weapons were reversed, if the Israelis had the weapons that Hamas has and Hamas had the weapons the Israelis had, well, this thing would be over tomorrow because yeah. there would be a genocide tomorrow, which to me sort of sums up the why this yes, conversation that, is that, so silly. That is the, the 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 moral disparity that all of Israel's critics have to admit to be intellectually honest yeah. here. All right. Well, uh, it's going to take me a minute to uh, to process that because my brain is in recovery mode from the high level important ideas. So, uh, you guys have thoughts, Gene? Well, where to begin? I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> yeah, where to begin? There's both the kind of misconceptions about Islam and understanding, you know, what Islam is as a historical phenomena, as a broad religion that has many many different faces and that has existed in many different ways throughout various historical eras and it's kind of reduction to a couple of uh, surah from the quran or some particular hadith to, that he's he's picked out what i would probably sort of start with perhaps is to talk about his general conception of islam which is a very mechanic. Uh, uh, it's it's a very ahistorical and mechanic uh, sort of mechanical understanding of Islam, based on his particular selective readings of certain uh, verses. You know, I will sort of uh, point out here that I do not. You know, although my fa you know my father's family is of Muslim origin, I don't regard myself as being a Muslim, and I wasn't raised in a Muslim household. 
And in fact, my, my father was particularly anti, uh, anti-religious in this set, in a sense. And, you know, I personally don't believe, you know, that basing one's morality on, you know, uh, sort of religious beliefs from the late, uh, late antiquity is particularly helpful. But that being said, it is such a reductionist argument to, to, to make these claims about uh, the Islamic community, one billion people, which uh, includes enormous amount of diversity, and that has existed, uh, you know, in various parts of the world in various different ways, for you know a millennia and a half. Uh, you know, for example, you know, he talks about it as a, you know, as even if we take his uh, view that there are things in the Quran that are pretty distasteful. Look historically. The vast majority of Muslims for most of history were largely illiterate. Their versions of Islam were folk, uh, folk Islam, Sufism. There was a large uh, body of uh, judicial interpretation. Uh, you know, even when we look at the actions of ISIS, for example, oh, ISIS destroyed all these uh, pre-Islamic sites uh, uh, in, in Iraq. Uh, the Taliban, you know, destroyed Buddhist sites in uh, in Afghanistan. Well, is that something inherent to Islam? Because those things, those those sites that were destroyed by ISIS survived the early Islamic conquests, right? You know, it was not it was a uh, one generation after Muhammad that Iraq was conquered by, uh, by 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 the armies of Islam, and most of those historical sites remained intact. So he has this very uh, simplistic understanding of Islam based on a kind of decontextualized. Uh, understanding of certain verses of the Quran without a knowledge of how Islam has been practiced. And ironically, it is a his understanding of Islam is the kind of Salafi takdiri version of Islam that ISIS is, is uh, advocates. The irony is that, you know, he is kind of implying that ISIS are the ones who are practicing Islam properly and sort of other forms of Islam are less true Islam because they don't follow the most violent uh, statements that you find uh, uh, in the Quran. And I yeah. think, and my, 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 my suspicion is that this comes out of a kind of uh, 19th, uh, 20th century positivist kind of thinking uh, you know, if, if you look at many of the jihadists, he made the point that, oh, well, most of these jihadists are not from, you know, the poorest backgrounds, which, yes, in certain cases is true. But many of them come from engineering and medical backgrounds where they have this particular way of learning. And Sam Harris has that sort of same kind of uh, scientific trainings. He believes that you can... Uh, you can sort of conjure up a trans-historic understanding of a religious text, get to its essential truth uh, by reading it and understanding it in a scientific way. And so this leads him to this conclusion that radical, the most violent portions of uh, sort of interpretations of Islam are the truest. Uh, he doesn't say this overtly, but this seems to be this kind of tenor oh, of it. Seems to be his view, right? Like that, you know, that he he does talk like sure in parts of that you got certain qualifications, you know, a certain subset of you know Muslims and things like that, you know. But um, you know, it's also, you know, he also says things like, of course, uh, we're not going to play this because uh, I think there would most certainly be a copyright issue. But uh, on Bill Maher, you know, when when he uh, he talked about, you know, he said Islam is the mother load of bad ideas. Uh, and of course, you know, it, it is absolutely true that there are, you know, like there are things in the Quran and especially in the Hadiths that, you know, that, that are, you know, 
blood curdlingly awful, which uh, which which it has in common, you know, with uh, the Old and New Testaments, the Talmud, you know, etc. Like all of these. All of these ancient texts have blood curdlingly awful things, you know, in certain uh, passages of them. There are, um, you know, that there, there are like, you know, anti Semites in Europe had tons of stuff, like, had definitely had passages in the New Testament to work with, you know, uh, that in fact, in many ways, they were giving the most natural interpretation of uh, the, uh, you know, slave owners. Yes, yeah, slaveholders, right? The, uh, that's, you know, clearly. That you know that in the in the Old Testament, uh, there's not only the sort of strange omission, right? I mean, if I were you know if I were narrowing it down to the ten most important moral rules to give to people, I think I might include don't enslave people. Uh, but not only is is that not in there, but there is uh, but there are rules about like you know how you know like slaves obey their masters and returning you know escaped slaves and things like that uh, in there. Um, there are, there are passages, um, you know, there are passages that are in, you know, in the old Testament where, uh, God commands the ancient Israelites to, uh, commit genocide, you know, against, against the, you know, the Canaanites and Malachites. And there are like ultra Orthodox rabbis of the West bank today, uh, who argue that, you know, that, the, the that like Palestinians, you know, fall into those categories and, and that, that you should still, you know, you should still follow it. And of course there are also in all of these texts, there are passages that, you know, that have, you know, that, that's, that suggest much more benevolent things. And yeah, I mean, it seems like a really weird thing to do to essentially seem to suggest, or at least heavily imply that they're like, I mean, if you're not a, if you're not a Muslim, what does it even mean to say out of this incredibly like, do like ancient diverse, um, multifaceted religious tradition that there's like a true version of it, right? Like, like, cause it can't be that like, that's the one that God intended, right? Like if, if, if you're an atheist, there is no one that God intended. So I, I, I don't, you know, I don't understand that. I mean, I just say it in all of these cases, yeah, you find like, you know, some positive values expressed at certain places. You find some God awful values expressed in certain places and you, you have people at different times in history for different reasons who, who emphasize one or the other. But I mean, it's, it's, like, it's that bit that Harris really likes to ignore. Right. I mean, this is, again, I'm, I'm, this is not my area of expertise, but this is something that's really um, endemic to Harris's treatment of a lot of intellectual topics is that he just likes to ignore all the context. And it's especially relevant here in um, in the context of Islam, you know the fact that um, Islam has these um, violent expressions is not coincidental that those expressions come to fruition during certain historical times, in reaction or at least in relation in some way to a history of colonialism. You know, he, that, that's a if we want to talk about Islam and try to reach a judgment about whether or not Islam is good or bad, um, as if you could do something so reductive, you at least have to talk about the historical vagaries that leads to certain kinds of expressions of different religions across time. And he just ignores that. Yeah. I, I, the thing I've always wondered about, about this interpretation is like, why is it that you think like, like, like if the line you're drawing is between like the worst passages in the hadiths and uh, and Al Qaeda or ISIS, 
then why is it that Al-Qaeda didn't exist until the 1990s, right? That's a lot of centuries in between one and the other, right? Like, why weren't there suicide attacks, you know, uh, going on and, you know, whatever, Colonial Williamsburg, you know, that like, uh, uh, I mean, you know, you people had shipping, you know, they, they could make their way over. Uh, like, like it, it, it's just kind of a mystery on this view. Yeah, well, these are the first true Muslims. They finally arose in the, <laughs> in the 1990s. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, the thing about this that, and it, it's, we'll come back to this again and again and again with these other topics we're going to talk about. It's just how like smug and confident he is when he's making proclamations in huge areas of study that he clearly just has a very shallow grasp of. And it won't bother him that a bunch of, bunch of religious studies experts are going to tell him he's mischaracterizing Islam. It won't bother him that a bunch of philosophers tell him he's mischaracterizing views about free will or about ethics. Um, none of that bothers him. He's just so sure of himself as he's, and it, that's the thing, that's the thing about him that bugs me more than anything else. It's just that insane level of undeserved confidence in well, all these areas. There's a certain intellectual style that he follows. And I, and I see yeah. this amongst, uh, you know, not just Sam Harris, but amongst the uh, brand of liberal, as well as, you know, amongst, and I don't like to use the term privileged, but, you know, upper class, you know, white men. Uh, and, and I use this very sparingly, but to see, look, I kind of looked at this superficially and I thought about it for a long time. It's very common with libertarians and I thought about mm. it. And I've come to this very deep conclusion, yeah. which, you know, the more that you, you know, which is based on very superficial knowledge. So the mm -hmm. more you study, uh, the more that you study a, a subject, the more, the less confident you become. That's what, yeah. as I study, you know, history more, the less confident I, I become about my knowledge. But if you have mm -hmm. a very superficial understanding, and, you know, I, I, I'm sliding off men here, but I actually have in my mind, I have a friend who is like an extremely wealthy libertarian who mm -hmm. is like, always making the claims that, well, I've thought about it. Don't, how dare you say that my ideas are the product <laughs> of circumstances. I've thought about these. Sam Harris has read a couple of things about Islam. He's had a look at the Quran. And yeah, you know, like a superficial look at the Quran. I remember one friend of mine at university sat down, read it, and he goes, oh, this is like a book for pirates. And, you know, I could see how you might come up with that uh, interpretation, but it's a vast oversimplification. And as mm -hmm. Mark pointed out, it totally uh, decontextualizes thing from the historical uh, uh, context. And if I might talk specifically about what he talked about with Iraq, was that he talks about Iraq as if there's these uh, there's these kind of time and memorial uh, religious divides in the country, and that it took Saddam Hussein to crush that down. And how sad is that? You know, Islam is so violent. The the, the you know, sectarianism has existed in the Islamic world since the very earliest days of Islam. But if we look at the, you know, context of the Sunni-Shia divide in Iraq, firstly, the Sunni-Shia divide in Iraq, it, you know, really takes off in the early modern period with the mass conversion of Iran to Shiaism and, and the rise of Sunnism as the kind of official uh, ideology of the Ottoman Empire. And then under the colonial period, where European powers, uh, you know, favored certain sectarian groups over others. And then the post-colonial states continued many of those same policies, exacerbating things. Uh, if you look at, you know, if you, if, if you want to talk about Islam and, and how it can be contradictory, just as 
sort of you have this radical strain of Islamism that is extremely violent, which I personally regard as kind of a, 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 a hybrid between sort of the most reactionary and conservative elements of Islamic thought and, 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 and hardcore right-wing conservative nationalism. But if we look at, you have other strains, Throughout the 19th century, you had Islamic justifications for constitutional government. The in Iran, the first constitutional revolution in 1905 was pioneered by uh, members of the ulema who pushed for constitutional government, arguing that it was entirely uh, appropriate according to Islamic law. It's one of the first big political mobilizations of Iran in the 1890s, uh, led by the ulema, was motivated by you know a british uh, control over the tobacco concession in the country and if you look even at the ideologies and the statements of groups like the taliban al-qaeda isis just their grievances their grievances related to european imperialism and colonialism primarily now of course they use certain verses of the uh, uh, quran to justify brutalities against particular groups but you know they talk about abolishing the sykes pico borders uh, ejecting America from you know from the and things like this. So this is a metastasization of you know you know a reactionary strain of religious thinking and modern nationalism, anti-colonialism, and so on and so forth. If you go to the Iranian Revolution again, if you look at Khomeini, you know he cribbed a lot of from the political left, reinterpreting the struggle between Mecca and Medina as being class war, and so you know kind of pulling that kind of uh, left-wing populist angle as well. So, you know, uh, viewing Islam's, uh, you know, and, and, and I am not a supporter of political Islam by, uh, and I tend to see, you know, the politicization of religion as a dangerous political phenomena, but I don't think that's inherent to Islam. If you look at the United States of America, we see very pernicious forms of Christian, politicized uh, Christianity. And so, you know, I think we have to, you know, I think we have to, we can be critical of political trends in Islam. We can be suspicious of political Islam, but condemning one billion people for their piety and having this kind of Bill Maher liberalism where you're like, look at these dummies and their stupid beliefs. And because that's all that Sam Harris is, is a more intellectualized version of Bill Maher liberalism. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's counterproductive. It's, it just, it just, reeks of kind of arrogance and a kind of lack of self-reflection. When we look at most of the brutalities that have taken place in the 20th century, a lot of them have been related to perfectly secular ideologies. Even many of the brutalities in the Islamic world itself were motivated and orchestrated by secular, uh, secular political groups. If you look at genocide, Yes, the Ottoman government sort of mobilized Islamic resentment against Armenians, but the orchestrators of the genocide were kind of social Darwinists, uh, uh, thinkers who saw the Armenians as some kind of cancer on the body of the Ottoman nation. And so, you know, uh, sought to promote ethnic conflict. So the orchestrators were not deeply pious Muslims, but people who were kind of taking on these social Darwinistic ideas that were popular across the West in the uh, late 19th century. So it's such an ahistorical and ignorant understanding of the role of Islam. And often, you know, I think people on the left, we have to, we, we're in this difficult position because we want to strike this balance between not conceding to uh, reactionary uh, religious 
political trends, but at the same time not reducing people's personal pieties and religious beliefs to terrorism. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think it's also worth noting with that Iraq comment at the beginning of the uh, supercut that, it, I mean, it's just obviously a false dichotomy. This always drove me crazy that people would say, oh, you're against invading Iraq, so what you want is for Saddam Hussein uh, to uh, to rule Iraq forever, and of course that doesn't follow. Uh, you know, like, in, in fact, in a parallel timeline where, um, where the Iraq war never happened, uh, especially frankly if we'd lifted sanctions and you know and 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 I'll you know and uh and given people that kind of you know breather I think it's entirely possible you know I mean who knows obviously but I mean it doesn't seem a priori out of the question that Saddam Hussein would have been uh, overthrown like you know like Mubarak was in Egypt uh that 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 doesn't you know that doesn't seem you know impossible or that there could have been even like a domain like this is obviously not a positive model but even that there could have been like a domestic bloodier version of that, like, you know, like what happened in Syria, which ultimately left Assad in power. But I mean, like that was a, uh, but, you know, but there, there was a, a bitter struggle there, right? I mean, like the, like the, there are things that lead to dictators being removed other than your country being cluster bombed, invaded and occupied by a foreign power. Yeah, that reminds me, one of the things that he was bothered by about Saddam was the fact that Saddam reacted to our no-fly zones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is an act of war. That's an act of war right there. And the fact that like he wouldn't just like submit to that act of war was like a strike one strike against him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and it's it's also like bizarre that he is attributed to this sort of, you know, whatever, like he's he's attributed to Islam apparently in those clips. The fact that Iraqis who were opposed to uh, to Saddam Hussein nonetheless took up arms to resist a foreign invasion and occupation of their country, which literally anybody in any country would do, right? You know that, no. like, if, if if somebody, you no, know, that's true Islam, like, <laughs> just like just like Al Qaeda. Yeah, I mean, Sam Harris hated Trump uh, to a very deep extent. Like, like he he said somewhere that. Uh, that that actually he thinks that Trump was worse than Osama bin Laden, but uh, but I'm pretty sure if Chinese troops had uh, invaded the United States to depose Donald Trump, you know Sam Harris would support local resistance to that because generally speaking, most human beings don't like it when their countries are conquered. So you're saying Sam Harris would have become a Muslim in that case? <laughs> yes, that's, you, you have got me exactly. That's that, that what I'm saying. Got it. Yeah, I want to express the true version of, of atheism, which yeah. is violent <laughs> and angry and terroristic. And one of the reasons that sort of uh, political Islam became so powerful in places like Iraq was because it ended up uh, being one of the only places where you could have some kind of opposition to the state. Most of the political movements that existed, you know, the communists, the social democrats, secular nationalists, those groups were all crushed. And so the mosque became one of the few areas where you could orchestrate resistance. This is why in Egypt you ended up with the Muslim Brotherhood uh, with its strong grassroots organizing as being, you know, the, the group was able to take advantage of the, you know, ouster of Hosni Mubarak. So, you know, it, it is, and you know, he says like, America is not to blame for ISIS. America is actually, you know, quite to blame for ISIS because 
you know, one, you know, Saddam Hussein was pretty tough on these guys because obviously he didn't like them and they didn't like him. Uh, but, you know, when the United States came and basically disbanded the Iraqi state, you created conditions in which a group like ISIS could take uh, could take place. The United States was not the only factor in the creation of ISIS. But, you know, you go back even to Afghanistan, where many of these radical groups got their um, uh, uh, training. The United, you know, the, the United States didn't create the Mujahideen, but, you know, they dedicated Rambo three to the Mujahideen, right? So you uh, you have all these complicated uh, um, and, 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 to, and to a certain extent the United States did kind of create the Mujahideen like there were at the very least the more careful claim would be that uh, that the United States of course armed and funded the Mujahideen and also that in pursuit of this right Chomsky talks about this uh, you know Saudi Arabia certainly you know some other US allies were doing things like emptying all of their like sort of most like deranged, yeah. like fundamentalist uh, dissident prisoners out of the prisons to say, hey, you want to get out of prison and, you know, and, and you can go do holy war in Afghanistan, you know, yeah. go nuts, right? So like it's certainly at the very least these U.S. client states in coordination with the United States to a, a very real extent did help to create the Mujahideen. Yeah, and it helped to give them the prestige they needed to continue around around the world. So, you know, when you look at these radical Islamic groups, uh, you know, I think there's there is a kind of interesting sort of parallel between the rise of kind of uh, radical Islamic internationalism and sort of neoconservatism, just as the neoconservatives believed that they could go around the world, you know, promoting their ideology and, and, and reforging states, because I think you know, the neoconservative project was not purely an economic project. It was an idealistic project as well, one that was, you know, deeply flawed. But, you know, the Islamists adopted the same kind of vocabulary that, you you know, this was an international struggle to create a, a kind of Islamic state free of Western uh, Germany. So that they take on the sort of vocabulary and uh, cultural ammunition of Islamic history is not strange, you know. People, people often frame, you know, the United States framed its war against Iraq in World War Two form, uh, with reference to World War Two, right? Uh, you know, so Islamic uh, movements framed their conflict uh, with the the West in terms of the language of the early Islamic conquest. You know, Abu Bakr al Baghdadi is not called Abu Bakr by accident. He's named for one of the early caliphs, right? So, you know, they, they take this kind of uh, history yeah. and they they, they, they they use it for their own political ends. That doesn't mean that's the be all and end all of Islam. You go to, you, you know, you go across the uh, Islamic world and you see enormous uh, historical diversity on issues. For example, one of the popular things to go on is like, well, you know, in the Islamic world, they murder all the gays. And it's like, well, yes, there's like a deeply reactionary sort of anti-gay uh, uh, trend in Islamic politics today. But if you go to various parts of the Islamic world, there are quite different attitudes. You know, historically, there were different attitudes towards homosexuality in the Ottoman Empire homosexuality up until the 19th century and the imposition of sort of Victorian morals on the country. Homosexuality was practiced widely and socially acceptable amongst the elites of the empire. If you go to places like Indonesia, many uh, in certain parts of Indonesia, the re religious leaders 
uh, of the uh, of certain religious Sufi groups were transgender. And even in Iran, you know, homosexuality is illegal, but transgender surgery is perfectly permissible. So, no, you know, in fact, in fact, my understanding is that the in a very weird way the two go together in Iran. That the uh, that uh, say, oh, you're you're attracted to. Uh, you're attracted to, you know, you're a woman and, you know, you're attracted to other, you know, other women, you know, you must really be, you know, you must really be male on the inside. Let's get, do some corrective surgery and we could sort this out. There's, there's one, you know, there's uh, over a thousand years of judicial interpretation of spiritual innovation within the Islamic world. And there's enormous amount. And I, I just, I would come back to this point. There's just an enormous amount of diversity and this kind of cheap reductionism is both wrong from a kind of scientific perspective if i may use that word but also leads to bad politics and a bad understanding and i'll give you one example when i worked in iraq um you know i was working at the american university and you know there would be a lot of um uh, a journalist would come through looking for a quote right they would want to come and find someone who's a historian, and they would come to me and they ask for a quote. And the quote they would want me to say is that, oh, the conflict between Sunni and Shia is like, goes back to the, you know, seventh century post-Islamic uh, 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 era. And they would get very kind of like upset that my, not upset, but they would be unsatisfied that my answer would tend to revolve around the particular policies of colonial governments and post-colonial governments in mobilizing sectarian uh, identity, not even in a theological sense, but in the sense of creating a group which uh, would give you access to certain benefits and things. So it's not even that people are particularly uh, super religious, but if you were part of a particular group, had the right familial collections, that you you know that you would uh, uh, you know you would get access to certain resources. So it, it, so you know it, it's not even a deep deal. You know people aren't murdering each other in Iraq because you know uh, an Islamic leader was murdered one thousand five hundred years ago in a mosque. Right? It's not why people are killing each other. That might be a kind of motif used in the discourse, but that is not the that's not the fundamental. Uh, reason behind it. The reason people in Israel-Palestine are fighting fundamentally is, you know, there may be Islamic motifs and more and more Islamic motifs today as Islam, political Islam becomes more prestigious, but it's ultimately a fight over land and who gets control of land and resources in a very small piece of land. land. And you don't, and just as the, uh, just as religion is mobilized by the uh, uh, religion and history is mobilized by Muslim elements in that uh, in the Palestinian population. Judaism is mobilized by uh, Jewish elements too. Uh, to yeah, and, and, and that's also like very closely parallel actually uh, with the Mujahideen example because you know it's a matter of uncontroversial historical record that in the 1980s, uh, the, uh, the but the Mossad you know was was actually propping up uh, Hamas in order to, as a divide and conquer thing, you know, to undermine, you know, secular and socialist versions of Palestinian nationalism that, that were, that were much more popular at that point. Um, and if we look at the origins of Zionism, it's not religious. It's because Jews were persecuted in Europe as, you know, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't assimilate. Uh, uh, so, you know, the origins of, of, of Zionism 
on isn't even religious. No, it was, an over, it was an overwhelmingly secular movement for, you know, for up until basically up until about the 1960s, you know? So, uh, so yeah, no, that's, that's totally, that's totally right. And like, and I think it's also worth, and I'm glad you brought back up the Palestine example, because in that 10 minutes of, of just nonsense, that was, uh, that that's something that was heavily touched on that, that we should talk about before we move on. But I did just want to say on the subject of the rise of ISIS, you know, like, I mean, I, th- I think the even more pertinent thing is just that the United States punched a hole in the region and created these conditions of bloodshed and civil war in which a group like that could thrive. And it's, you know, I mean, like you could imagine like in some God awful, like dystopian novel, some sequence of events in the United States where there was so much uh, chaos and bloodshed and desperation that some group with like the ideology of the Westboro Baptist church, you know, became like a really popular militia. uh, And, in describing that, you could say, oh, see, this is because in, um, you know, in the Old Testament, you know, and, and a little bit in the New, there are these passages about homosexuality and, and really the Westboro Baptists are, are getting, are actually offering the most like straightforward interpretation of those passages, which is, you know, uh, you know, which, which is true enough. Uh, and so really, it's not that there was this, it's not that there was whatever war or whatever happened to lead to this. It was, it's just that like Christianity existed and that's the explanation of the Westboro militia taking over, you know, multiple States. And, and it, it, it really is just silly on that level to say that like, all well, no, it's not that the, this invasion, you know, law occupation, civil war, which by the way, civil war that, you know, like, U.S. policy in Iraq after the invasion was really, uh, in a lot of ways, intentionally exacerbated and playing up, you know, sectarian uh, sectarian divisions and the way the country was governed, you know, at that point, like, uh, that it's not all that, right? It's just Islam, right? That, like, Islam exists, therefore, you know, therefore ISIS arose in the 2000, you know, in the 2010s. Uh, that's that, I mean, you know, even on the face of it, it makes no sense because if if, if Iraq was entirely governed by Islam, then uh, you know what explains the conflict between Kurds and Sunni Arabs? Kurds are Sunnis, Arabs in Iraq are Sunnis, but some of the most vicious fighting historically has been between uh, Sunni Kurds and Sunni Arabs, with you know certain factions of the Shia wing of Iraqi politics being quite supportive. The Al-Hakim family was very supportive of the Kurdish movement. Shia Iran was supportive of, uh, you know, it's like when you get down to these kind of, uh, when you get down to it, the the reduction of the Middle East to kind of sectarian conflicts, it doesn't even work on the face of it. You know, the notion that you have like this big struggle between Sunnis and Shias makes no sense, right? Because you have uh, you have um, you know Shia Iran supporting groups like uh, Hamas that are Sunnis and have historically clashed with each other. You have countries like Turkey supporting Azerbaijan, although they're both Turkish. Up until the 19th century, uh, Azeris would have hated. In fact, Azeris were one of the reasons the Ottoman Empire didn't expand further eastwards, because. They were the bulwark of Shiism against the expansion of the Sunni Ottomans. So none of these kind of like trite 
interpretations that uh, of the role of religion in, in Middle Eastern politics really work out when you get to the nut and bolt. Sectarianism and religion do matter. They do need to be taken seriously, but they have to be contextualized, understood, and they cannot be essentialized. And if I might pivot to something that uh, that might like bring everybody else in, and I think we're going to talk about it a little bit more when we talk about torture, is also Sam Harris's fetishization of particular types of violence as being somehow worse than other types of violence. And, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, suicide bombing is good or, or like, you know, the kind of rape and brutality that we've seen from certain Islamic groups like ISIS, the genocidal campaigns that they've launched, you know, are permissible. But when it comes down to violence, you know, is like burning a bunch of people alive with a cluster bomb dropped from a couple of thousand feet does that make that much of a difference to whether you get your head chopped off? Uh, you know, is a suicide bomb worse than a, a artillery shell fired into a civilian zone? I don't know exactly if it makes that much difference. What I suspect is like the violence of those people that don't have power uh, don't have power tends to be more you know desperate and and and, and you know can look uh, worse, but is the kind of clinical violence of the drone strike some kind of magnitude better than, you know, stabbing someone to death? I don't, I mean, I don't have answers to it, but it seems. No, but, yeah, the, the, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this is the, uh, this is what, um, there's a wonderful letter exchange between Harris and Noam Chomsky, uh, which uh, email exchange, which uh, actually is very funny because the way it ends is Harris, you know, say asking, if he could post it online and Chomsky being like, well, that's a bizarre thing to want to do, but I guess, right. Go nuts. Uh, and in that letter exchange, you know, they're going back and forth and back and forth. And Chomsky is trying to get him to understand something like incredibly simple, which is that it's not, you know, Harris will talk about intentions like, Oh, we don't want to, you know, kill civilians, you know, whereas, you know, Al Qaeda, you know, does. So this is really important, you know, moral, uh, moral difference. Uh, and the only the only moral distinction Harris is willing to make is having your goal be to kill civilians and having that not be your goal. That's it, right? And the very simple point that Chomsky really wants wants to drive home is it's also incredibly morally objectionable. In fact, in some ways, like really disturbing to just be callously indifferent to. Uh, the fact that you're killing lots of civilians to just sort of treat them like ants that you're stepping on and, you know, whatever, you know, that, like you're not worried about it. And and Harris just cannot for the life of him, you know, like acknowledge that, you know, he just sort of goes back and repeats his earlier points, even though it's incredibly intuitive. And and this also goes, you know, your point about desperation, I think is really important because, you know, Harris has that incredibly simplistic um, hypothetical about oh what if like the Palestinians had all the advanced yeah. weapons you know that the uh, that the Israelis have you know they'd wipe them out and it's like well under what circumstances are we talking about like that like the you know Palestinians the same ones who have been uh, living as subject not citizens of a hostile power subject to arbitrary killing with no legal recourse etc for several decades that those Palestinians got like that advanced weapon weaponry uh and and had like okay this is your one shot or are we talking about a scenario whereby i don't know the 
1967 war had gone the other way and the actual power relations were reversed, in which case I would say, what's your basis for thinking that? Because there are, you know, I mean, certainly before the creation of, of Israel, you know, there were, um, you know, there were various uh, Arab and Muslim states, you know, that, that had substantial Jewish populations uh, and, you know, who were, often mistreated and discriminated against in various ways. And, you know, second-class citizens, you know, much like even those Palestinians who were lucky enough to have Israeli citizenship, you know, but, uh, but they weren't like just wiped out. Right. Like that's so, I mean, I don't know what, like if in this scenario we're imagining the actual opposite power relations and an opposite history and not just, the weapons being in the other hands. I just don't know what his basis is for thinking that. It's this kind of uh, Harris's deafness to nuance and context. You know, if, if Ryan came to my house and just beat the crap out of me every day and I couldn't do anything about it because he's just so much bigger and stronger than I am. But every time he did it, I would scream at him, I'm going to fucking kill you. <laughs> you know, and you watch from the sidelines and thought to yourself, hmm. Well, I don't like Ryan beating Mark up. That's I know he's got his reasons. That's a problem. But if Mark was as big and strong as Ryan, he just said he'd fucking kill Ryan. And Ryan is doing a lot here. It's not great, but he's not killing Mark. Well, you have to add something here. That Ryan is also crying and saying, "Why are you making me do this?" Yeah, that's right. That's right. He's punching in the face and saying, "Why are you doing making me do?" <laughs> I don't want to do this to you. Yeah. But why are you hitting yourself? Why are you hitting yourself? <laughs> why are you hitting yourself? It's, 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 it's kind of perverse. It's yeah. kind of perverse logic uh, about about violence and the way you know violence. Looks. It's like I remember one person, you know, a friend of mine who's a veteran was like, you know, in Afghanistan, the Taliban, they were cowards. They would like hide and they would shoot at us and they would never come face us. One to one, I was like. What do you expect them to do? Like they're not idiots, you know. Like you, you know, like they're gonna fight an asymmetrical war with you because if they like march out there and have like a weightlifting contest, or like they try and run their like tanks at you, they're not gonna win. So of course, their violence is going to look different from the kind of violence. It's not a moral judgment. It's just the nature of asymmetrical warfare. Like you know, from the British perspective, look at all the terrorism that the American colonists perpetrated and gone uh, towards the brave redcoats who were merely trying to secure the order of good King George's empire. You know, throwing, I've seen The Patriot, I've seen what goes on in that movie. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it would be ridiculous, you know, it would have been ridiculous if the, the Americans had tried to fight, fight the American Revolution entirely through conventional battles of the 18th century variety, whereby they agreed to meet up at a certain time and space and fire their cannons and charge their cavalry at each other. So it's, um, yeah, it comes down to Sam, Sam Harris, like, not really, refu just refusing to, like, he's so much smarter than all of us, and why can't we just see, see things from his perspective? Mm -hmm. why can't we? I mean, I think Adolf Reed has a saying, like, and I may be paraphrasing this, but like, you know, good intentions are really overrated because, you know, at some point, you know, good intentions don't, you know, good intentions lead to really not good things. So, you know, yes, sometimes what's in people's hearts matters, I guess, but does it really matter that much if, if it's at the end of the day, you know, like, 
uh, I remember reading something about you know justifications that Germans gave for shooting children, and it was mm -hmm. like, oh well, you know, like this kid had had his mother killed, so I thought it would be kinder to shoot the child. Uh, it's like, well, you know, like whatever you need to do to justify yourself, and there is something. Uh, you know, at least with Islamic violence, it's like up front, there's something really quite scary about the way that people can, uh, you know, make justifications, mm -hmm. uh, uh, for, uh, make justifications for violence and youth, you know, have all these euphemisms for violence. That doesn't mean violence isn't sometimes required or we might, there might not be examples of violence that, you know, we might see as legitimate, but let's be honest about what violence looks like and, you know, be perhaps less concerned with like what's in people's hearts when they commit atrocious acts of violence. Yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, speak, you know, I want to think talking about now about what's in uh, Sam Harris's heart when he justifies torture. Uh, Forrest, <laughs> do we have that clip? The, the way my argument about torture is mischaracterized. My argument is not about the the ethical wisdom of torture. It's a comparison between torture and collateral damage. And if you could ever think of a circumstance where torture prevents collateral damage, then all of it, so we're all open to torture. You have to, you have, I mean, we're all open to collateral damage because you have to, to be to wage any kind of war, right? Collateral damage just comes with war. But collateral damage is so much worse than most people realize or want to think about. And if you think of a situation in which torture would spare you collateral damage, well, then all of a sudden torture is on the table as something that ethically. And, and so this is this. You might you might think these. The I mean maybe we're out of time, but 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 my conversation about torture is not just let's just start torturing people because it works and we should do it and and who cares about uh, its effects. It's collateral damage is so horrible. And however you align it with torture, it's worse. I, I think torture should be illegal across the board, but, but illegal is not the same thing as always unethical. Again, my argument about torture has several strands to it, but the, the, the core fact is that if you can't imagine a situation in which you would make someone uncomfortable so as to try to get information that you knew they had. There are situations where you know someone has information, right? Now, not every situation is like that, but you have to grant that there are situations where you know you're talking to the guilty guy, right? He might even claim to be the guilty guy. He claims he's got the information. Mm -hmm. He claims he's got a bomb that's going to go off, right? There are situations like this, and there, sometimes there are small situations that have nothing to do with the war on terror or, or I mean, they're just you know, crime situations where someone has got somebody locked in a box somewhere, right? And he's not talking, right? If you can't imagine a situation where you would beat someone up so as to get them to talk, you're not thinking hard enough about the kind of evil people confront in this world. But it is another politically correct myth that torture never works and that people can just make stuff up out of whole cloth that then leads you on a wild goose chase to harm other people. There are certainly circumstances where that can happen. But you just have to imagine how these real world circumstances come about. You capture someone, uh, someone in Al-Qaeda along with his laptop, you know, his hard drive. You have all, you know, 10 years worth of emails, right? So you, you, you have a lot of information about, and people, uh, these people who are interrogating them, you can't just, you can't just make stuff up, right? There's, there's a ton of information here. And again, I am not saying, I'm not sanguine about 
the torture uh, being a benign thing that we should do cavalierly. I'm, I, I think it should be illegal. I think if somebody does it in a circumstance that, it, that isn't in absolute extremity of uh, where where any where any decent person would be tempted to use force in this circumstance, um, then these people should be prosecuted and, get, and go to jail for for decades, right? But there Sam, but there are circumstances where you would have to be a monster not to lay hands on the bad guy. I should say that my position on torture is exactly the position on torture that you find in the the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, right? And when one one thing that's happening to me now in conversations like this and in you know, on many topics is that much of much of my discussions have not to do with policy, but are, have been an effort to get at ethical bedrock. I mean, I write and think as a philosopher, mm-hmm. and in in a in in the context of having a philosophical discussion about ethics and right and wrong. You can say many things that seem crazy outside of a, right. a philosophy seminar, but in a philosophy seminar are totally legitimate. So in a philosophy seminar, you could say, you know, why can't we eat babies? What's wrong with eating babies? If we've right. got extra babies around that nobody wants, why can't we eat them, right? That is a completely insane thing to say in the world, mm-hmm. seemingly. That's the kind of thing that if quoted out of context, you know, if, if Glenn Greenwald decides to tweet, you know, Sam Harris can't, can't figure out why we can't eat babies, right? It makes me look like an asshole. But... The reality is, is that if you're talking about, if you're trying to get to the bedrock about the the the, the ethics of, of of good and evil and the use of force, if you're trying to just then then starting the conversation with why can't we eat babies? You know, what, what give me an ethical argument about why this is really really wrong? Why our intuitions of its wrongness is is, is can be conserved? That is a totally legitimate thing to do, and there's not a philosopher on earth who would think you were a weirdo for having that conversation. Uh-huh. <laughs> Do you guys eat babies? Do you talk about eating babies in philosophy class? I just want to ask you guys are philosophers. Yeah, yeah. I mean we we I mean you have to demonstrate your examples. So yeah, we always uh, bring a baby in early in the ethics class. How do you do it when you're teaching online? Um, you have to do it on Zoom. You know, it's, it doesn't have the same effect, it's not as visceral as it is in person. So, yeah, you can't smell it, you can't can't but it's still fairly effective though yeah i like that harris just said that his position on torture is the position on torture taken by the stanford well i mean that's not a thing you can say the stanford of encyclopedia <laughs> philosophy does not take positions it might no, it, it, it describes it some positions open like, a tab ryan yeah uh, look at the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy entry on torture. Just uh-huh. scroll down to the bottom. It, it says, in conclusion, torture is not that bad. <laughs> okay, I, I missed the conclusion. Yeah. No, I mean, certainly, I mean, he, you can find philosophers talking about the possibility there might be one-off emergency situations where it could hypothetically justify, and that's, Okay, and some maybe talking philosophy. When you're when you're talking public policy, it's really disingenuous to be like, "Well, we we should consider torture." But I'm only talking in this really abstract uh, philosophical, yeah, hypothetical yeah, sense. Like it's again this kind of deafness to yeah, like, lack of awareness about context or nuance. Right? Yeah, he, he's he's not having a philosophical conversation. No. He's talking about our arguments for torture in the context. Yeah of a time in America 
yeah. when we are torturing people. Yeah. And we're not just torturing people because, <laughs> yeah, because, yeah. Um, you know, we've got the, we've got their laptop and we're trying to yeah. get to their emails. We're torturing them as, as is just a inevitable consequence about having torture as a policy goal. Yeah. Yeah, we were torturing as a policy, as a matter of routine, in in these very much not these really idealized taking time bond scenarios. Like we were just doing it routinely to lots of people, and yeah. And so he's pretend he's like yeah torture. So he's 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 you know he's a bait and switch. He he's he wants to justify the thing we're actually doing, and then when he's pressed, he's like, no, I'm just talking this abstract sense that you'll find on the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. But that's that's not what he's doing. And surely you no, could. You could make that argument for you could make any kind of absurd argument like for example yeah well could, w w should we kill all white people if killing all white people in the world would end racial conflict or should we kill all you know should we kill all the people in china or should we uh, if, if we engaged in mass rape but by doing that we would save a million people's lives you, know, you can make any kind of utterly ridiculous comparison yeah. between some like if we did this a horrific thing, but the utilitarian outcome would, was a good one. Should yeah. we? Do it? it seems like such a like I mean it seems like such a stupid argument. You could replace torture with any kind of yeah. Right. If yeah. there was if there was a rash of people being murdered by being pushed in front of trolleys, I would just stop teaching that part. Uh, my my class uh, yeah. would erase the trolley case yeah. from my lesson plans. It would be a loss, but given the context, <laughs> yeah. well, and, and again, it's, it's not according to Nathan Robinson, but yeah, yeah. Uh, um, you know, I, I did. Um, I said what I have to say about that in the uh, <laughs> uh, in the Jack piece I did about Judith Jarvis Thompson. So see that. But uh, in, uh, in any case, uh, I think uh, it, it's just clearly not the case that he is um, uh, that uh, that he's just sort of raising a hypothetical just sort of playing with this scenario for, for its own sake. Right, he said, like he literally has the piece Forrest just showed us that says in defense of torture. Right, if somebody, if somebody said, I mean, first of all, um, I've I've taught and taken a lot of philosophy classes in my life. I've actually never heard it. Maybe an example. Maybe I'm just weird that way. But um, but whatever. Wait, how I are you imagine, running your ethics classes? <laughs> I could. I could imagine somebody using that as an extreme example of something or other, you know, some hypothetical about eating babies. But uh, if somebody ran an article that they called, right, they put on their website and they called it in defense of eating babies, yeah. uh, I, I would think that was pretty bad. I would they support eating babies and, and then I, I, would, I would have a problem with it uh, as as such. Um, and, and it's like saying uh, – because he is doing this very characteristic uh, Sam Harris thing where he is really fuzzy and really equivocal and switches back and forth between talking about practical public policy and, oh, I'm just considering some hypotheticals. Um, you know, he helps himself to all of these things. Like, well, you're sure that the person did it. Right? It's like, well, yeah. how, how, how does that work? Right? Like, yeah. like, like, like how, 
how is it that you achieve this, this certainty? Because in um, like, obviously the ticking time bomb, you know, hypothetical is, is, you know, is a very unrealistic hypothetical. Uh, it's, you're not going to find cases that are exactly uh, like that. Uh, but if you have, like, in real life, right, people who, uh, you know, there are tons of cases of people who the government was totally sure was a terrorist, uh, you know, who then were later, let, you know, decreed to not be a terrorist. So Bush administration at the time who was writing this stuff told us that the people in Guantanamo Bay were the worst of the worst, uh, and and later quietly admitted that the vast majority, you know, they didn't have any real evidence of them uh, them doing anything. Uh, yeah. And and in like sort of Western style legal systems, uh, you know, not just, but I mean, certainly those. Uh, the the method for deciding with that somebody is guilty of a crime is that you have a trial where you know, somebody tries to prove it and they're represented by somebody who tries to, to refute the allegations and, you know, and, and, and then you, and then you have a, you know, judge or jury, you know, decide uh, who's, uh, who's right after this like long review of all the evidence. Uh, so if you're, if you're saying, Oh, we're talking about people we're sure are guilty. Well, is this happening after all that? Right. Cause Certainly people are cleared even after being convicted at trials, new evidence comes up or whatever. But I think the minimum threshold would be that, you know, there was a trial where you were found guilty. But of course that takes a long time. I mean, by the time somebody has been successfully tried, any, any ticking time bombs they knew about went off years ago. So, I mean, you are clearly going to be, if you torture people, uh, you're clearly going to be in a situation where you are torturing innocent people. Like, you know, you, you know, you should just own that, especially because as a actual philosopher who's written about this, Daniel Lubin uh, in his article, uh, was it liberalism torture and, you know, the, uh, and terrorism torture, and the time, um, I think that's the name of the essay uh, points out, you know, a lot of times these ticking time bomb thought experiments play on the impression that you're making a purely utilitarian calculation, like Jane was talking about, that you just say, okay, here's the bad consequence, you know, that somebody underwent a bunch of pain, but here's a good consequence uh, that uh, that you've, you've you know saved all these lives. The good consequence outweighs the bad consequence, so you do it. But of course, the ticking time bomb scenario is not actually appealing to a purely utilitarian intuition. There is also this very definite. Uh, deontological intuition that it's appealing to that it's part of why it's okay is that the person you're torturing uh, is a morally wicked person. They're a terrorist, you know, they, they have a coming or at least they, they can't right, complain too much, you know, because, because they're such a terrible person. And Lupin has a nice way of extending the thought experiment to bring this out, which I saw somebody, Oliver mentioned in the chat, which is okay. <laughs> If you're if you really were making a purely utilitarian calculation, let's do you the stupid unrealistic ticking time bomb scenario, and but now let's say that this particular terrorist is so hardened, you know, he's he's so uh, he's he's trained for this, maybe you know, like like he's he's had his confederates, you know, waterboard him or whatever, you know, to like build up a resistance to it that you don't that you're that you don't think that he's going to crack under torture. 
But you think maybe if you bring the six-year-old daughter in and torture her in front of him, then maybe he'll crack and you can find the ticking time bomb. Now do you still do it? And if you say no, then clearly what's driving you is not this simple utilitarian calculation. Isn't yeah, that they, like if your Harris, Harris could just tell you all you need to do is study some uh, some neuroscience and you'll come to the correct <laughs> conclusion that you do need to torture that six-year-old girl. Or just meditate on it and then the self-evident truth will reveal itself. You just haven't thought hard enough about these ideas. <laughs> but that, we all know that you should torture the six-year-old girl. <laughs> just none of us have the bravery to admit it. <laughs> that's like this is like this is this is what happens when people were like i always thought 24 was a bit lame as a tv show but that's literally the kind of nonsense that happens in that i'm pretty sure there's an episode of 24 where they there's like someone with a nuclear bomb and then they have to threaten to kill his children and they stage killing his children to like get him to do it which like to get him to give up the ghost on thing, so that's like it's just it's just like complete fantasy th uh, things to justify mm -hmm. uh, public policy. And this is Sam Harris, and I hate the term because everybody uses it nowadays. But gaslighting, he is he is telling us he's having a philosophical abstract com conversation, and as everyone has pointed out, he's doing this within the context where the United States government is justifying torture, actual and, torture, yep. And you can't, so you can't. We're not talking the United States. Is government is not eating babies, right? It is torturing people. So yeah. if he gave his eating babies art, uh, argument in defense of eating babies, people would have been like, this is a weird article, right? But there wouldn't have been that result. But he's deliberately being provocative mm -hmm. and um, by by saying, oh, in defense of torture. It's not, let's have a thought of it, Aaron, about torture yeah it's like i'm going to defend something why do you need to defend torture because it is a current policy being engaged in by the united states government and it's something that uh, many people not just leftists but many liberals at the time were deeply uncomfortable about and sam harris can whine and whine about and this is what he always does that he's being misquoted or taken out of context but you know when you put your hand in the fire uh, and yelp, it's your own fault, right? And it's his own fault. He wants the attention, right? Uh, and he got the attention. He just didn't like the fact that people, uh, because, you know, it challenges this kind of self-image as this, like, arbiter of rationality, uh, like the, the thinking man's Bill Maher. I'm going to come back to it. He's just freaking Bill yeah. Maher, but not as funny. Yeah. The, the, 24, the 24 example is perfect too because he seems to think that you're way more likely to encounter some guy that's like like in like getting interrogated in the middle of it and is like yeah i did it but you're not gonna know where it like like where the the ticking time bomb is or you're not gonna know you know like this guy is getting tortured like but it, it never crossed his mind that like someone's tortured you know so much that they're like lying about it just to get the torture to stop like that's never something that crosses his mind just generally speaking, how that actually works, like, yeah, uh, there, you know, there are, you know, I mean, it's very difficult to find, um, you know, real life examples, uh, you know, like, like there are a few, right, you know, but, but, but there are relatively sparse, you know, real life examples of people giving up real information that was still operationally relevant, which again is like, it's very unlikely to be by the time this happens, uh, mm -hmm. even if you're not trying people, even if you're just, you know, indefinitely detaining them, you know, by the time you get to that point, probably what they know is out of date. Uh, but uh, that's very hard to find, but what's very easy to find are people, uh, you know, 
just spouting nonsense that the torturers want to hear under torture. Like that happens all the time. I mean, that was, you know, yeah. from like the Spanish inquisition to the Moscow show trials to the invasion of Iraq, uh, mm-hmm. which was justified to a great extent uh, by bullshit about WMDs that people said under torture that, you know, yeah. like, which, which, which is just factually nonsensical, but you know, people, you know, but they, you know, if you're being tortured, you are most likely going to eventually start saying whatever you guess that your torturer wants to hear. Mm-hmm. Also, his public policy prescription is weird for it because in his public policy description in that, he's saying that he thinks that torture should be illegal, but maybe ethically speaking, somebody is like someone is so sure that their information is right that they torture anyway, and then they're going to go, you know, stand trial themselves to prove that information, which makes no sense from a public policy point of view. Well, but then he also said, like, he, he did because he was talking to Jenk and he was like, um, and he's in his defense of Crouch, right? He's, he's, he's in the, uh, he's in the mot, right? Like that's the, uh, um, you know, you, you've got um, the, uh, I was worried I'm getting this mixed up, but you know, the, uh, yeah, the mot is like the castle, the Bailey is the courtyard outside the castle. So, you know, mot and Bailey, uh, you know, strategy for, for arguing. It's a form of the fallacy of equivocation where you say you, you spend most of your time out in the Bailey, you know, excited defending like the really exciting provocative claims. Then when somebody attacks you on and you don't have a good response, you retreat into the mot where you defend some very narrow defensible version of your claim. Like, Oh, all I was saying was, and then you come up with something that's so narrow that it's not even that controversial. So, uh, you know, like it's like when, um, you know, when uh, when Jordan Peterson says we should have enforced monogamy and then be like, well, wait, 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 what? Enforced monogamy? And he says, no, all I'm saying is that we should like culturally discourage adultery, you know, the way we already do. Uh, and uh, and then, so Harris is very much in his mot here, uh, but uh, so he, which means that he really skips over that, but even in the mot version, uh, he does suggest that under, uh, that, under some circumstances, you should let the person off at trial, right? So it's like, it's, yeah, he doesn't want to outright legalize it, but yeah, not always prosecute it, you know, which again, given that this is a time when he's writing this, when U.S. government policy was to engage in so-called advanced interrogation, and then later on, you know, the Obama administration decided not to prosecute anybody for it. You know, the suggestion that this is all totally detached from anything that happens in the real world, that he's, he's just doing a philosophy seminar, uh, is, is really, like, weird and insulting and also just bizarre because uh, if you're going to do a philosophy seminar, then you should read some philosophy. And that's something that Harris is famously, like, extremely resistant to doing. Yeah, and you could justify anything this way. I mean, when you were talking, Ben, I was thinking about, you know, uh, I read Martin Imola's book, How to Hide an Empire, and there's a chapter in there about the guy did uh, all these, like, illegal experiments for cancer treatment on people in Puerto Rico, like implanting cancer into them, you know, like doing all these, like, st- uh, illegal experiments on humans, but the outcome was cancer treatment, Right. So, you know, do we say like, oh, it's okay, you know, if you're going to save people's lives, can we do human experiments? You know, if the, the cost is, it's, it just seems like this kind of argument is any, any nasty thing that you could tangentially have a good, a good outcome from, like, you know, 
experimenting on prisoners for the good of the the whole you could you could make that argument for anything it's, it, 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 i mean i don't know what you philosophy guys say about it but is that is that like is that something that you know like philosophy guys talk about a lot about like doing horrible things to to that have good ends um, I mean, we, we like to use horrible examples, but I mean, it, 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 that's usually in the context of like talking about a moral theory. And it's like, okay, let's press the, you know, let's draw the consequences of the theory and let's drop the most absurd consequences of the theory. And like, like if you were to use a baby example, yeah. the point would be most likely a reductio sum theory to say like, exactly. Oh it wouldn't be to justify eating babies. It would be to say, okay, your theory leads to eating babies. We've got to revise your theory a little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but if, yeah, if it, would never, it would never, never be, you'd never get, yeah. You would never get the philosopher writing the in, in defense of baby torture paper. <laughs> yeah. No. Exactly. Or eating babies or whatever. Yeah. Uh, Forrest, do you have the, uh, the uh, nuclear thought experiment? Now, you did not say we should do a nuclear strike on Absolutely. anybody, right? Uh, but, you said we should, cons and correct, again, correct me where I'm wrong, we should consider doing a nuclear strike, for, a first nuclear strike, under certain circumstances. I find that to be incredibly dangerous Boy, talk. Okay, it, but it is a dangerous fact of the world that we have nuclear arms, right? We have nuclear arms because we have already considered doing a nuclear strike under certain circumstances. That right. is what and the Cold done, War was about. Yes, so... so this is this is the world that we're in right now. If if we could uninvent these weapons, that would be great, right? But so but we have a, a nuclear doctrine, and it's, it, it was it developed entirely in a Cold War context, where we were faced with the Soviet Union that was for all of their all of the flaws and all all the ideological quirks. This was not a death cult and did not have the basis of being a death cult. These were rational actors. And their their hopes and fears and aspirations were constrained by terrestrial concerns. These were not people who could say, "We love death more than you infidels love life," right? And all, what I was what again, this is just two paragraphs in the end of faith, right? This is not me talking ad nauseum about nuclear policy, uh, but in a, just a very kind of game theoretic way, I asked us to consider how. A, a belief in martyrdom, a belief in paradise, just unties this, this convention of mutually assured destruction as a deterrence. This, the Cold War was possible because both, not, neither side wanted to play really play a game of chicken. When you're playing a game of chicken with someone who wants to get to paradise, you're screwed. You're going to lose this game of chicken, right? So, um, and... The moment you accept, and again, many people don't accept this for reasons I cannot fathom, but the moment you accept that certain people really do believe in paradise, really do want to die and to get there, right? Or just, they're hoping to be martyred. This is that death today would not be a bad thing for them. And then you just, you imagine us failing to keep the big bombs and the long range missiles out of their hands. You imagine a regime that is just like ISIS, but they've got ICBMs. We have to find some way to avoid that. And, and the Muslim world in particular has to find some way to avoid that. The, the, the Pakistanis that already have bombs, right? They don't have the missile technology, but they have the bombs. They have, they're a coup away from delivering these bombs into the hands of the Pakistani Taliban. 
we have to find some way to avoid that. But Sam, the reason why I think your idea is dangerous is because it makes the likelihood of nuclear strikes far more likely. Because if you say to the Iranians, we think you're part of a death cult and we don't trust you, even though the Iranians like them or dislike them, have been very rational actors throughout, okay? There are enemies in a lot of ways, as the Soviets were, right? But the Soviets were also rational actors, even though we didn't agree with them, and they were our enemies. If you say to the Iranians, we're so afraid of your death cult or whatever we think your intentions are, that we might do a first strike on you, you make it far more likely for them to do a first strike on us. Well, or, I mean, that, that again, that's, that's an interesting conversation from a game-theoretic point of view. Um, it could be that you make it far more likely for them just not to build the bombs in the first place. You, you say that has not been uh, well, no, how no, things have developed. No, but either just, in this context or any context, you just have to play it out. So, listen, you have a belief system. We're taking you seriously. I mean, you're the per, you're the people who are waiting for the Mahdi, and you're, you're you know you you're just you're hoping you realize that this world is just an antechamber for the world to come, and you're well, you want to get there. I'm going to interrupt for one second here. Uh, you don't really think the Iranians think that? No, no I, I think I agree with you that the I mean, they're they're pro- there are people in Iran who think that, but they have not been in control. So, right. yes, no, Iran is distinct. I'm not saying that Iran is al-Qaeda or the Taliban. I mean, all of these groups are subtly different. But what I was asking in the in those, again, those two paragraphs in the end of faith was for us to consider the possibility, the horrible possibility that must be avoided at all costs, that a regime that is the psychological equivalent of the 19 hijackers, people who really are willing to, to hit a wall at 400 miles an hour, gets long-range so nuclear weapons. The, the second huge problem of that line of thinking, Sam, which is that if you if you start going down that road of assumptions, well, then it's not we assumption. would do the unthinkable. So I'm afraid that what people are, they're going to take you seriously, right? You're doing it as a hypothetical, and you're doing it as a game theory, etc. But neocons can easily take that, and, and who okay. desperately want to attack Iran, right? And and other people and and your fans and people that are that are reading you that are watching etc can think well yeah yeah these guys they they all want to commit suicide they all want to go to heaven and we we got to hit them we got to hit them I'm not saying we're in that situation right so mm-hmm. so again we have to uh, and you have to follow every word in the in this argument mm-hmm. it's there's a difference between long range nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons right long range means. You can launch a missile from wherever you are and hit Paris and London and New York and Los Angeles, right? Even North Korea doesn't have that technology now. Pakistan mm-hmm. does not have that technology. So it's not it's not simply a matter of having nuclear weapons. But yes, if we are in, we can't have a cold war with a regime. And I'm not saying Iran is this regime, but I'm saying there's a possible regime, a regime of, of true jihadists who prove with their actions that they really believe what they say they believe. Yeah. Uh, actually, fourth, we have the uh, the quote from the end of faith because I'm I'm pretty sure he's just lying about what he actually said there. Um, you know, based at least on on my memory of the passage, uh, I I think the. I think that there are qualifiers and there are things that you know that he put in uh, in that version uh, that. Okay, there we go. There is little possibility. It's, it's a two-part graphic, by the way. So it's it's the this is one paragraph, and then there's another paragraph. Right, but but just right here it says there's little possibility of our having a cold war with an Islamist regime armed with uh, long-range nuclear weapons, uh, and you know, cold war requires the party to be mutually deterred by the threat of death, um, etc. Right, so. 
He's not actually saying anything that would exclude Iran today, right, from being it. He's he's not saying like, oh, maybe if like Al Qaeda took state power and they had this, you know, all he's saying is an Islamist regime. Like that is a much broader category than something that was literally just like the 19 hijacks. Which, what will know, we do? What will we do if an Islamist regime, which grows dewy-eyed at the mere mention of paradise, ever acquires long-range nuclear weaponry? That's the basic question that he asks. That he's breaking down um, in the second. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it's such a situation. The only thing likely to ensure a survival may be a nuclear first strike uh, of our own. Uh, needless to say, this would be an unthinkable crime. Blah blah blah. It's the only course of action available to us, given what Islamists believe. Uh, how would such an unconscionable act of self-defense be perceived by the Muslim world? Sorry, good show one more time. Yeah, sorry. Uh, uh, it would likely be seen as the first incursion of a genocidal crusade. The horrible irony is that see it could make it so. The very perception could plunge us into a state of hot war with any Muslim state that had the capacity to pose a nuclear threat of its own. So, like, what he's saying here is if... A Islamic fundamentalist regime of, you know, like, which is not a hypothetical category. That's like an actual category. Um, had uh, long range nuclear weapons, then gosh, I guess we'll have no choice except to commit genocide, uh, which there are a lot of things that you can say about this. But one of them that I just have to say for the sake of the, uh, the honor of academic philosophy as a profession is that this has absolutely nothing to do with what the combination of words thought experiment means. <laughs> What's bizarre about this is the exact, it seems to me that the exact same logic that uh, drives this conclusion should also bring you to the, the same conclusion about any Christian country. Because e even though you don't get the built-in stuff about jihad and martyrdom, you still have, look, Christians believe that when they die, they go to heaven forever. And so it follows logically, if you're willing to be, you know, ridiculously reductive about the ways <laughs> in which uh, religion influences behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, if you really believe that after death, you're going to go to heaven and be with Jesus forever, then, of course, the normal game theory considerations are right out the window. These people mm -hmm. need to be wiped out <laughs> if they have access to a nuclear weapon. Mm -hmm. But, of course, he doesn't <laughs> Especially because it doesn't matter if those Christians are in power, you know, the, uh, the, the, the points, you know, and, and you say, oh, the people who are actually are running the United States are very religious. You know, the United States is just one coup away, right, you know, from having, you yeah. know, having these people in power. <laughs> so as long as there's anybody in your society who's extremely religious, uh, this this should, uh, you know, this, this should apply this should apply to you. And again, he, he touches on it. He, he actually touches on that um, example in the thing with Jank later on and says, oh, you know, you know, having a having everything kind of um, line up for the evangelicals and then having a far right evangelical president would probably be the most terrifying thing, control of nuclear weapons. But then he basically goes on to be like, oh, well, there's some intrinsic things about Islam that make it so it's different in this case than the other case, because, of course, that's what he says. <laughs> no, I mean, really, it seems like the conclusion of this is the only people you should trust with long-range nuclear weaponry are atheists, which means that the ideal situation of the Cold War would be that if the Soviet Union had nukes and we hadn't. Right. <laughs> but but clearly, but, 
But clearly, like, you can't trust him because he's the one saying, oh, we should nuclear strike people first as an atheist. You know what I mean? Like, he, like, He's yeah, the one but, I wouldn't want with nuclear weapons. Yeah, meditate, so he meditates. The, the self-evident truths about who needs to be nuked are apparent to him because he meditates. <laughs> this assumes that all people in Islamic movements, their main objective is to uh, achieve martyrdom. You know, that is not true. You know, like if you look at what motivates ISIS fighters, they wanted the rape and plunder, right? If you look, you know, this, this huge sexual slavery was a big draw for, for, for these people. It wasn't necessarily martyrdom. Martyrdom was a justification given for, uh, um, you know, was a, was, was a way to sort of uh, give morale to the troops in the same way that, you know, soldiers that your life for your fellow soldier is, is a good, you know, Islamists talk about this metaphor of, um, of martyrdom. And if you look at the way martyrdom does it, it's not, you know, not everybody in an Islamic move, movement is martyring them. During the Iran-Iraq war, they were sending, like, they were getting young, impressionable kids to go martyr themselves because, you know, somebody, older people would be like, I don't know if I want to go, like, blow myself up. So they would, like, indoctrinate these poor little, you know, teenagers to go kill themselves when they're an impressionable age. But the, the notion that, like, what motivates Islamists is is uh, is martyrdom is really misleading. What motivates them is the creation of a political, a, a very specific social and political order, which they're willing to lay down their life for, just as many other people who do not have a notion of an afterlife are willing to lay down their lives for particular things. I don't agree with what they're laying down their lives for. I think Islamism is dangerous yeah. and bad. But to, to look at it some kind of... This is just a rehash of the nonsense they said about the Chinese in the 60s and the Japanese in the 40s, that they were like, these people are irrational. We have to drop a nuke on the Japanese, otherwise they don't want to surrender because they'll, they'll stab us to death with sticks. When well, which is an interesting question too, right? You know, so like, would it, would it have been impossible? Like, uh, like if, um, if Imperial Japan... Uh, had 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 a long range nuclear weaponry. Like, would would that have justified genocide to stop it? Because after all, there were kamikaze pilots, you know, who who were going to mm -hmm. martyr themselves, you know, for uh, you know, for the cause. Uh, and and it just seems like in that case, would obviously say yes. Like Imperial Japan was will willing to, was able to recruit people who were willing to self consciously martyr themselves, throw away their lives, you know, uh, for for the emperor, but. Nobody would think that that meant that, like all Japanese people in 1940, you know, the 1940s, or uh, or uh, the actual decision makers, you know, Tojo, you know, people of the uh, Japanese government, uh, didn't fear death and couldn't be deterred in any way. And in general, yeah, every cause has martyrs. Who doesn't have martyrs? Like that's the like, like yeah. Point to revisit this issue about how he treats religion um, as this one faceted phenomena you know he never comes out sam harris has doesn't have any invectives against shintoism he doesn't say that we need to like wipe out shintoism even though shintoism in japan uh, pre-world war ii and during world war ii was just an absolutely insane uh worldview that led to all sorts of awful acts um it, you know there's a direct line from it to the kamikaze pilots um, but, you know, now Shintoism in Japan leads to festivals, <laughs> you know, nice holidays. 
Um, yeah. It's almost as if the way religion <laughs> manifests itself is going to depend in deep ways on material conditions. Yeah, or or to really cut to the heart of the Sam Harris point, uh, Buddhism, right? I mean, there's that book Zen at War, you know, that I think Zizek yeah. brought up with, with Peterson about the way that Zen Buddhism was mobilized in... Um, you know, in support of imperial Japanese militarism, you know, at, at, at one point, yeah. uh, you know, it's historically. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, again, though, uh, God knows like Christianity has historically celebrated like martyrs, you know, in lots of different contexts, you know, people mm -hmm. who are willing to, you know, be fed to the lions, you know, cause they wouldn't renounce Christ, you know, and, and, and really venerated, you know, the people who are willing to do that, in fact, willing to do that in part because they believed that they were going to get a reward in heaven. And, but look, but this is just, this isn't even like unique to religion. I mean, like the British Labour Party, uh, historically, the song they sang at their party conferences, you know, the red flag uh, says, you know, the uh, one of the lyrics is the red, you know, uh, red with the blood of our martyr dead, you know, like talking about, you know, people who are chartists and trade unionists and stuff like that, who who died for the cause, you know, in, in various, you know, massacres historically, like that, like, like this, this is the least distinctive thing about radical Islam as ideologies go that people are willing to martyr themselves for it. Ultimately, Sam Harris asks the wrong question, right? Like he asked the wrong question about the Islamic world. The que uh, he, he asked the question, why is Islam so violent? Rather than asking the more intelligent question is like, if we accept that there is a particularly pernicious version of political Islam alive in the Middle East, the question should be, why have those particular interpretations of Islam gain currency at this particular moment in history. Historicizing, Sam Harris seems to be incapable of asking a question that is not entirely abstract and ahistorical. And that's the fundamental, uh, that's the fundamental uh, reason. He looks at uh, the, the, the particular conditions that exist in the Middle East. He takes everything on face value, right? Mm -hmm. And then he, he proceeds to say, what is it about this ideas that makes these people so violent rather than asking about why a particular versions of Islam and not, which he concedes exists, right? He concedes that, oh yeah, jihad could, why have those not taken, why have those interpretations of, uh, of Islam not taken hold and these more radical and violent manifestations are taken hold? So he's fundamentally starting, uh, starting from a wrong premise to discuss these issues in the first place. And he just wants to, you know, do his new atheist thing. You know, I guess like wailing on Christianity was like not so cool because everybody does it. So, you know, like why not wail on it? It's Islam. Well, because it's just an extension of the same nonsense, right? It's like a branding exercise where, you know, like all these, all these jerks, like uh, they all started off like, making fun of white-wing evangelicals in the 90s. Then they became hysterical about Islam. And now they've, like, now they've created SJWism as, like, some kind of new religion because there's no God in SJW, so they have to pretend like it's a religion because they because it's just, like, it's the same, like, root of, like, trying to be, like, contrarian and, like, anti-PC anti and then ends up just making, like, really dumb takes and it's really yeah. frustrating that people these people get taken seriously but i guess that's the way the cookie crumbles so not after yeah. the day though 
Yeah, not after today. I'm assuming, I'm assuming we're going to end his career. With, with this <laughs> I, mean, I would assume it's, it, I guess, doesn't technically count as a form of martyrdom, but I would assume that he's going to commit ritual suicide because <laughs> he's been proven so wrong. Uh, yeah. So, so before we move on to uh, the stuff about the moral landscape and you know, and and his odd, uh, you know, either Ryan or Mark, to, to one of you, just because like I, I feel like this should not be neglected. What if you want to explain why this is not what's normally meant by thought experiment? <laughs> um, wait, is this not what thought experiments normally are? Just uh... <laughs> just say like, oh, this is something we might have to do. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you prescribe, uh, I mean, he's doing like half thought experiments. Like he, he's prescribing real world policies. We, like we say, this is a bait and switch. Like he's, he pretends like he's doing a thought experiment when he gets pushed on the horrific shit that he's actually advocating. So yeah, we should. Maybe we have to nuke all, all the Muslims. Maybe we have to torture people, and then uh, when you yeah, say maybe, that makes it a thought experiment. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's <laughs> yeah. When you're saying this is something that might actually have to happen. Yeah. Uh, then you're not doing a thought experiment. You're describing a like you know you're you're describing yeah. what you think might happen. Yeah. Uh, like like a thought experiment is a hypothetical situation that's designed to test our intuitions about something. Hmm. So like you have you know two competing principles, and maybe you have a thought experiment to show mm-hmm. how these principles could come into conflict, which might be supposed to tell you something about which one is more important, right? That's a thought experiment. Like mm-hmm. that's, that, that's not, you know, this is like, this is just speculation, you know, yeah. and, <laughs> and apologism, you know, for what you think, you know, speculatively, like, you know, we might have to do, you know, that it's like, <laughs> oh, this would be a real shame if we had to commit genocide, but you know, get ready for yeah. it. We might. <laughs> Okay, so most thought experiments are not actually suggesting things. So, like Schrodinger was not suggesting that we put a cat in a box with a poison vial on a Geiger counter. <laughs> That's what I'm getting. Okay, got it. <laughs> uh, fair enough. Uh, so, I want to uh, when uh, Forrest has stepped away from the computer, but uh, when we uh, like let's let's maybe set up uh, briefly uh, the uh, the clip here. So this is uh, this are we, is good. Are we talking about uh, the moral landscape? Yeah, yeah Gene, uh, you've had your time showing off your detailed historical <laughs> knowledge, your understanding of the context and the events and the people. But now it's time for the philosophers to shine by a totally ahistorical. <laughs> this is not my area so i defer to you guys because i am not very philosophically inclined you don't say it right all right uh so uh so this is uh harris uh defending uh his view of morality which is that we can derive morality from science and when we do what we find uh, is utilitarianism basically like he will uh, sometimes when he describes his view it it sounds almost like uh, Aristotelian ethics. He used the word flourishing a lot, uh, but when he applies it, as with the nuclear thought experiment uh, or uh, the uh, the t- the terrorism ticking time bomb stuff, it's just like really like simplistic like act utilitarianism that you know that you should always perform the action 
that uh, that's going to uh, bring about better consequences, and you shouldn't worry about pesky things like rights or innate moral dignity. You know, you should should just be trying to bring about the good consequences. All right, let's roll the clip. Now, it's it's generally understood that that questions of morality, questions of good and evil and right and wrong, are questions about which science officially has no opinion. It, it's thought that science can can help us get what we value, but it can never tell us what we ought to value. And, and consequently, most people, I think most people probably here, think that science will never answer the most important questions in human life. Questions like, what is worth living for? What is worth dying for? What, what constitutes a good life? So I'm going to argue that this is an illusion, that the separation between science and human values is an illusion, and actually quite a dangerous one at this point in human history. Now, it's often said that science cannot give us a foundation for morality and human values because science deals with facts, and facts and values seem to belong to different spheres. It's often thought that there's no description of the way the world is that can tell us how the world ought to be. But I think this is quite clearly untrue. But values are a certain kind of fact. Okay, they, they are facts about the well-being of conscious creatures. The, the, it seems like the well-being of conscious creatures could be a, a controversial anchor for morality, but I don't think it should. Okay, here, here's the only assumption you need to make. Imagine a universe where, where every conscious creature suffers as much as it possibly can for as long as it can. I call this the worst possible misery for everyone. The worst possible misery for everyone is bad. If the word bad is going to mean anything, surely it applies to the worst possible misery for everyone. Now, if you think the worst possible misery for everyone isn't bad, or that it might have a silver lining, or it there might be something worse. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and what is more, I'm reasonably sure you don't know what you're talking about either. The moment you admit this, the moment you admit that the worst possible misery for everyone is the worst outcome, okay, then you have to admit that every other possible experience is better than the worst possible misery for everyone. So a continuum opens up. And because the experience of conscious creatures is going to depend in some way on the laws of nature, there are going to be right and wrong ways to move across this continuum. It, it will be possible to think you're avoiding the worst possible misery for everyone and to be wrong about that and to fail to avoid it. This is, in some sense, a navigation problem. Uh, so here is my argument for, for locating moral truth in the context of science. Questions of right and wrong and good and evil depend upon minds. They depend upon the possibility of experience. Minds are natural phenomena. They depend upon the laws of nature in some way. Morality and human values, therefore, can be understood potentially in the context of science. Because in talking about these things, we really are talking about all of the facts that relate to the well-being of conscious creatures. In our case, we're talking about genetics and neurobiology and psychology and sociology and economics. Now, I view this space of all possible experience as a kind of moral landscape where the peaks correspond to the heights of well-being and the valleys correspond to the lowest depths of suffering. And one thing that to, to drop out of this analogy is 
the possibility of there being multiple peaks. Maybe there are, are many different but morally equivalent ways for, for, in our case, human beings to thrive. But clearly there are many more ways not to thrive. There'll be many more ways to not be on a peak. And I think it's rather obvious that there are many more ways to suffer unnecessarily in this world than to be sublimely happy. Now, the Taliban are still my favorite example of a group of people who are struggling mightily to build a society that is obviously less good than others on offer. The average lifespan for women in Afghanistan is 44 years. They have a, a literacy rate of 12%. They have almost the highest fertility rate in the world and almost the highest infant and maternal mortality in the world. This is one of the best places on earth to watch women and infants die. They also have a GDP that's lower than the world average in the year 1820. So it seems to me patently obvious that the optimal response to this situation, which is to say the most moral response, is not to throw battery acid in the faces of little girls for the crime of learning to read. Now, I think this is common sense to everyone in this room, and common sense it should be to everyone in the civilized world, except you, if you happen to be a bioethicist working on the President's Council at the moment. Uh, but this is also of necessity a claim about biology and psychology and sociology and economics. It is not unscientific to say that the Taliban are wrong about morality. In fact, we have to say this the moment we admit we know anything at all about human well-being. So what I'm arguing is that values reduced to facts, to facts about the conscious experience of conscious beings, and we can therefore visualize a space of possible changes in the experience of these beings. And I, I think of this as a kind of moral landscape with peaks and valleys that, that correspond to differences in the well-being of conscious creatures, both personal and collective. And one thing to notice is that perhaps there are states of human well-being that we rarely access, that few people access, and these await our discovery. Perhaps some of these states can be appropriately called mystical or spiritual. Perhaps there are other states that we can't access because of how our minds are structured, but... Yeah. Um, so, Mark, to, uh, to review, uh, science, uh, science tells us that utilitarianism is correct. So the title of his book is The Moral Landscape, which, uh, good job plugging that, Sam. Uh, the subtitle is How Science Can Determine Human Values. Now, a lot of people are going to be like really opposed from the get-go. That just doesn't seem quite right. How do you get from science to values? I thought they're supposed to be separate things. He's got a simple three-part argument, I think, um, my reconstruction. One, here's your premise. Moral truths are reducible to truths about well-being. Two, uh, truths about well-being are scientifically tractable. They can be traced by things like, you know, sociology, but especially by neuroscience. And then three, therefore, science can answer moral questions because science can tell us what causes states of well-being and well-being is what morality is all about. All right. Now, the second premise that... Truths about well-being are scientifically tractable. We might have some issues with that. We might worry that, yeah, okay, it is scientifically tractable, but 
questions of well-being are purely scientific questions. But the real how are there? The thing that if you're paying attention probably jumps out at you is that first premise, right? That moral truths are reducible to truths about well-being. Because, you know, the obvious question is, wait, is that also supposed to be a scientific truth? Um, because if it's not, then, you know, what are you going on about? Now, I, I don't think Harris thinks that it is a scientific truth. I don't think he thinks that you can get people in lab coats to discover that moral truths are fundamentally truths about well-being. But I don't think he's that bothered by it because to him, it's just... Um, it's almost true by definition. It's just almost an analytic truth. It's so obvious that all you all you need to do to be aware of that truth is reflect, um, as he as he had you reflect yeah, with, with his awesome thought experiment. Yeah, and his awesome thought experiment. Either reflect on how much it would suck to put your hand on a hot stove, <laughs> or reflect as he has you in, the, in that uh, video clip on just how bad would it be if we lived in a maximally miserable universe. Yeah, no, I actually, I actually don't understand that. I've, I've heard this line a thousand times. I don't understand the thought experiment at all. So, like so, at all. so, so, so it's so, like so, everyone's so. suffering. That would be bad. Therefore, morality equals human well-being. Yeah. And, so, and nothing else and nothing else. So, like, so I feel so, like I'm missing some steps. It's for sure. Right. But it's also worth, like say before even going on to address those arguments uh, that once you charitably interpret Harris as saying that science can't tell us uh, that morality is about maximizing well-being, uh, then he's already not doing what he says he's doing, right? Because what he says he's doing is showing that the distinction between is and ought or facts and values is confused, uh, that there, there really isn't this basic conceptual distinction between those two things, that it's not true that, you know, science can't tell us this. Because if science is just telling us information that together with the right moral principles can deliver correct moral conclusions, that's completely philosophically uncontroversial. David Hume agreed with that. That's, right? Everybody it's, agrees with that. There are no philosophers who disagree with that. Yeah, there have never been philosophers who disagree with that. It'd be a bizarre thing to disagree with, you know, that like if, if we had, like nobody thinks that if we found out uh, that video game characters were actually sentient and felt pain, you know, when you killed yeah. them, that that would be morally irrelevant to whether it was okay to play video games. That's empirical discovery. You know, like, like uh, you know, all of the the point of the fact value distinction is not that there aren't facts that in combination of values can deliver a value to conclusions. Mm -hmm. That's completely uncontroversial. Uh, that's the, uh, that the point is just that they can't do it by themselves, that you also need uh, that you also need normative premises. If you're going to get to, uh, to, to the normative uh, conclusion. So like I was like uh, Kant, in the uh, groundwork, the metaphysics of morals, you know, has this example about how the same medical knowledge yeah. uh, that would that would tell you how to um, uh, how to cure somebody, you know, could also tell you how to poison them and get away with it. And you know, and so medical science by itself can't tell you anything about that, right? You need some sort of moral principle about what to do, which is actually also a nice example because um, 
I don't even remember how it came up, but when Glenn Greenwald was on the show, you know, he mentioned that there's like a sort of real life instance of this kind of dilemma that happened a couple of years ago in Brazil when Bolsonaro was stabbed, you know, and you could imagine uh, somebody who was like a receiving physician, you know, at, at uh, the uh, the ER in Brazil being very torn about it. You know, this, this guy who seems like this incredibly dangerous demagogue would be dictator. Uh, is uh, you know shows up with the stab wound, right? Do you actually try to save him, or uh, or do you try to kill him? And you know whatever the right answer is, the right answer is going to be delivered by the moral principles, you know, not by like the empirical information is relevant, right? If Bolsonaro is a good guy and has no is not a demagogue and is not going to you know potentially try to make himself a dictator, then none of your moral principles would give you any reason to kill him. But you know if if he is all those things, then then the moral principle might give you a reason to think that or have a dilemma. So that's just something that I think is worth circling and underlining a couple times, that if we interpret him uncharitably, then he hasn't begun to do his work because uh, yeah. he's not appealing. If we interpret him uncharitably as thinking that science can tell us that morality is about maximizing well-being, yeah. then he's just obviously failed in that because he he's not appealing to science. He's not saying that something about neuroscience shows that science is all that morality is about well-being. He's appealing to thought experiments and intuitions, you know, moral common sense. Uh, but if we interpret him charitably, well, no, he's not saying science can tell us that part. Then his claim that he's somehow invalidating the is-ought distinction is just wrong. Yeah. yeah, good. I, I want to say, I want to just two things on this. Uh, first, I just want to back up because we just said that nobody um, thinks that, no philosophers think that empirical data shouldn't inform how you behave. And, you know, let's be, let's be real. There's got to be some asshole out there <laughs> somewhere who's made that argument. So, you know, that probably, yeah, that guy probably exists, but he's, not a well-known philosopher, so yeah, right. I mean, that's Cicero, right? That the uh, there's there's no opinion so right. absurd that has not been advocated by some philosopher. <laughs> so right. somebody out there says that, but certainly nobody you've ever heard of. Uh, the second thing is, yeah, I read the book um, to prepare for this, which fuck you, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had to read, read like fifty page free will book. Thank God. <laughs> and, and I have to say, like the this is like a really common thing he does. He straw mans like nobody yeah. in this book. He's really happy to treat um, his opponent, somebody who wants to maintain the is odd gap, as someone who is just trying to argue that like we shouldn't have any empirical information at all. We should just make all of our moral decisions based on pure principle absent any sort of experience, which of course is bullshit. Nobody yeah. makes that argument, right? Yeah. Also, um, also, by the way, worth noting that he is assuming in the clip that we just watched that disagreeing with him means being a moral relativist. Those are the two choices, right? Or yeah. your options are disagree with, disagree with him to be a moral relativist or disagree with him to be a religious nut job. Right. Those are the options he yeah, doesn't yeah. doesn't seem to recognize that like there's a whole range of different ways you could be a moral realist. Yeah, right? I, I've heard I've heard him make this movement, and does he? Do, I'm curious if he does this in the book because I haven't read the Moral Landscape. Um, but I've also heard him like try like in debating like he was on uh, Very Bad Wizards and he was debating Tamler and Pease about 
about this stuff. And he kept thinking he got a gotcha. If he could get them to admit that consequences were relevant at all, then yeah. he thinks, you see, I've, I've proven to you that consequences are, you're a consequentialist. Well, and they're like, you know, no, that's one message. of the things we have to look at, but that doesn't mean <laughs> it's everything. He's got a pack. He does, in the book, he, he spends very little time addressing the work of philosophers, secular moral philosophers, who just don't buy into the utilitarian principle, but like he briefly discusses Rawls uh-huh. and um, Strawman's Rawls. He's like, yeah. well, this is a really interesting thought experiment, this um, <laughs> veil of ignorance thing. But come on, we can't we can't say that consequences have no import on our moral decisions, which is what which, he takes. He needs Rawls to be saying. Yeah, Which I mean, Rawls really just Rawls. radically is not saying that <laughs> at all. Yeah, Rawls is really, really this is actually, you know, he has an infamous footnote that I cut, cut and paste that's worth reading yeah. right in the beginning of um, the book, a uh, footnote that says, I'm convinced that every appearance of terms like metaethics, deontology, non-cognitivism, anti-realism, emotivism, etc., directly increases the amount of boredom in the universe. My goal, both in speaking at conferences and writing this book, is to start a conversation that a wider audience can engage with and find helpful. Few things would make this goal harder to achieve than for me to speak and write like an academic philosopher. I mean, he is kind of right. The way academic <laughs> philosophers write is pretty fucking boring. such a massive territory in between you have to write like this yeah. And you have to just completely ignore what they're saying yeah. and pretend and that are, those positions exist. Yeah. And let's be honest, probably be unaware of what the positions are. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Isn't this just an excuse for him to like have not done the legwork to actually engage with these ideas? Yeah, it's too boring. He can't it, it do seems like it seems like just uh, I mean, actually I'm familiar with that uh, that footnote, and I just find it like quite striking as it's a blatant attempt to completely write off any uh, philosophy as being too highfalutin. It's mm-hmm. almost like he's trying to be, you know, it's it seems like a very d- cheap trick to to uh, basically give himself an out for just refusing to engage with anything that philosophy does while making very big claims about what philosophy is. I mean, I, 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 I want yeah, to know. Especially because like, yes, a lot of academic philosophy, not all of it, but a lot of it is written in a very boring way. And sure, uh, there's a different way that you write, you know, for a popular audience, you know, than for, for a specialized academic audience, all, all true. But like, surely the, uh, the imprint, like the, the, the trick, right. The thing that, that makes good popular writing good is that you have read and processed and understand mm-hmm. and can then explain in accessible terms what yeah. you know what people are saying in the specialized academic literature just saying i'm just going to ignore all that and not engage yeah. with it because it's too boring like that's the like, best that's just, the best public discourse you're just like this is too boring just i've, I've but i've meditated a lot hear my deep thoughts on this that's it's also condescending. it's it's like you prolls out there can't, you know, you can have a complicated term and explain that term in simple language. You know, it's like, yeah. there's, I mean, like, I understand that, of course, in philosophy, 
you know, there's some impenetrable language if you're not familiar with the conventions of the discipline of philosophy. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure when you guys are teaching philosophy 101 or whatever you are, you're like introducing big concepts and then breaking those concepts yeah. down into simple terms. So well, that's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> Should try that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, I mean, clearly, right? I mean, like that, that's what. And in fact, I mean, this is like, uh, I mean, really what he's actually saying is like what he strawmans, you know, the anti-war movement is saying about Iraq, you know, that it's like, oh, it's just sad that these people, you know, can't like exist without, you know, without like a, a despotic you know, dictator <laughs> to keep them down. It's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, he's, he's saying, uh, oh, this is, um, you know, it's, look, uh, you people are just too stupid to understand these distinctions, right? There's just no possible way that they could be that they could be explained to you that you would understand. So we're just gonna have to like skip all of them entirely. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the is, that guy, that guy, uh, what's the one who always does uh, Marvel movies? The the one with the beanie, Tim Pool. Yeah. He always talks about deontological uh, or moralism all the time. So clearly, you don't he, have he can do it. He can do it. <laughs> Anyone can do it, right? Look, there's the, no, the there's no, me there's no time. Post, I'd be like, uh, okay, that's cool. This guy's thinking about like deep stuff and trying to come to terms with it, and that's worth. It, it's even like the writing; it's pretty approachable writing. He's quite clear in places, but it's the fact that he comes to a conclusion and advocates that conclusion, and then ignores. I mean, it's like if I wrote a, a popular you know, physics book where I like advocated for string theory. And said just like, well, I'm, I'm just going to ignore, I don't want to get into like all the math. <laughs> yeah. you, you would just, you would, if you, if I said that on the first page, you would rightly put the book aside and never look at it again. Every yeah. mathematical equation is increase the amount of boredom in the universe. Why <laughs> they do. Yeah, and, and particularly if there are other physicists who say, hey, let's wait a second. What about these equations? That seems to show that you're wrong. And you didn't like, I mean, it's one thing to say that in your popular, popularized physics book, you're not going to like include all that math, but this is just saying, I'm not even going to worry about yeah. that objection because <laughs> math is boring. You know, there's, like, no, I'm not, there's no time. There's no time to discuss I mean, this. And, and so, and he does in now. the book actually <laughs> engage with real philosophers, you can tell why he wrote this footnote because he's just, he does it in the, just the most desultory way possible it's almost every time he just presents a straw man of the position um i think i think well let's push aside for a second hume's is odd stuff i think it's worth returning to but um i think that this little thought experiment about the worst misery possible i think it kind of has it's captured his mind um and put him in a position where he just has he has trouble thinking his way out of it, because as Ryan pointed out, even if I concede that that situation, as he's had us imagine, is bad, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. even if I go on and concede that that situation is morally bad, mm-hmm. which not everyone would do, or even if I concede that it's the morally worst situation possible, which a lot of people wouldn't do. In fact, I think I. I could actually make his perfectly miserable world slightly worse by imagining a world just like it, except where everyone in it um, doesn't deserve to be in pain. Mm-hmm. 
that makes it just a little bit worse in I think a telling way, actually. But even if I could say all that shit, it it doesn't get us to the conclusion he wants us to get to, where where we, you know, this premise that moral truths are reducible to truths about well-being. And I wrote um, a clever little thing that I'm going to read. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I did just want to parenthetically stick in that if we have the worst possible misery, except that there are a couple of sadists who are thrilled yeah. uh, that everybody else is in pain, uh, that it's at least not like blindingly, intuitively obvious to me that that's better. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's almost as if questions of justice might want to in some way inform our value judgments. No, those are all those all just come down to questions of consequences, though. All right. So here's my clever little thing. I'm going to now highlight how what a blatant fallacy this argument is. What a bad argument this is. Imagine that a parallel argument. Imagine that you go to a car shop and there is Sam Harris. He runs, he's the mechanic. Um, and he tells you, he's got his theory of automotive care. And here's what he says. He says, uh, imagine a car whose parts have rusted through entirely. Every square inch of metal on this vehicle has been eaten to nothing but brittle and whole pocked rust. It's perfectly oxidized. Now, if you have any opinion worth listening to about automotive issues, it will just be clear to you that this car is not gonna run, that indeed such a situation represents a nadir, a valley on, in, of automotive health. Questions of a car's automotive health admit of right and wrong answers and those questions are obviously reducible to questions about the oxidation of its parts. If you start with the thought experiment that uh, a, a world full of misery is bad, mm -hmm. and we concede that, that does not get you to the conclusion that badness just is misery. Any more than if you thought about the thought experiment about a rusted through car leads you to the conclusion that automotive uh, disease is nothing but rust, right? I, I think I'm convinced. So as long as you get rid of the rust on the car, you've fixed it. Rust oleum is all you need. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, I'm, like, I'm pretty sure that – you know, like, like just this, this, I mean, yes, I, I think that was like a much more eloquent, you know, version of like, like I like that a lot, you know, but the, uh, uh, but like also I'm just steal like, that and turn it into a comic, Mark. Yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then for the next 10 years, I'm going to say that, like how clever that example that Ryan came up with is. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a deep, deep cut, deep reference. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm practically by it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like, also, just like on a real basic level, it's like the distinction between consequences are morally relevant, right? Like the fact that something would lead to bad consequences, you know, is a way that it's morally worse. The fact that something would lead to good consequences is a way that's morally better. The distinction between that and morality is exhausted by good and bad consequences is like the distinct, like, I mean, just, just on a, like a super simple mind level, you know, I acknowledge that uh, blueberries are blue, but that does not actually mean that I think that only blueberries are blue. Mm -hmm. you know, like, like I'm, I'm, you know, like I can say that and also, you know, say that the sky is blue and, you know, whatever, you know, that like 
you can think that consequences are morally relevant and that uh, rights are morally relevant, that mm -hmm. uh, justice is morally relevant, that uh, they, that uh, fairness uh, is, uh, is, is morally relevant. Uh, and, you know, and yeah, you can acknowledge, like Mark said, that this actually, like, let, let's say for the sake of argument, this is the deepest valley in the moral landscape is the one where everybody's uh, suffering to the maximal extent, you know, that's uh, which again, maybe, maybe not for all the reasons that we just said, but let's, let's say that for the sake of argument, that, that is the deepest Valley. Um, okay. Sure. Like that's fairly intuitive, you know, that could be right. Um, but that doesn't necessarily, it doesn't follow from that, that anything that is different from that in the single dimension of how much suffering there is or how much well-being there is, is therefore morally better, right? Because once we start to think about like points, let's, let's say that that's the worst, right? That's the deepest valley. Okay. How about some intermediary points between that and, uh, and I don't know, everybody been in heaven, uh, like, um, you know, you are on a footbridge over a trolley track and, uh, and and you're considering whether to uh, push a large man onto the track to stop a out of control trolley from killing five people. Uh, you push him. Uh, this is this is like a little bit further away from the valley in respect of how much suffering there is than uh, the scenario where you don't push him. Uh, you know, there's there are fewer people who are dead. Uh, but if we're if we get to appeal to intuitions when we're talking about how bad the worst possible suffering could be. Why don't we get to appeal to moral intuitions when we say, "Hey, wait a second! Uh, morality can't just be about maximizing well-being because it wouldn't actually be right to push the man off the trolley track, or it wouldn't be right to uh, murder the healthy patient at the hospital to harvest his organs for the five people who need transplants." Uh, and and the the most objectionable thing about Harris here, and I think this could be true also for the free will stuff, isn't his conclusion. Although I find his conclusion pretty implausible, uh, it's that he's just not even engaging with even sort of like the most basic entry level objections to his conclusion. You know, he's just like, oh, here's my intuition. Now we're done. I mean, it's really striking doing researching for this episode today, um, looking at like what other people have said and also how he's responded to it. And it's everyone from like, graduate students with blogs to like real luminaries in, in ethics and meta ethics, making these sorts of complaints um, often really patiently and clearly trying to explain, especially how he gets the is gap thing wrong. There's a, um, a nice video of him talking to Patricia Churchland and Peter Singer and Simon Blackburn. Um, all these like really very powerful minds um, about his moral theory, and they're all like, disagreeing with him. And he has this, I mean, we've all mentioned it, this kind of arrogance. I'm sort of jealous of it because when I have a conversation with a luminary, somebody who's a big name in philosophy, even if I think I'm right, when they disagree with me, I get really nervous and think, okay, I'm just going to shut up. He is just unfazed. I mean, it's kind of admirable in a weird way, but yeah. – He's like the um, he's like the Principal Skinner meme. <laughs> he's like, am, am I out of touch? No, it's, it's every philosopher who's ever seriously considered what I think about this topic that doesn't know what's going on. 
Yeah, no, there's something very similar, and we'll come back to this, but um, with the free will stuff, because so the, the two bits of research I did for the free will stuff was I went back and reread his old book from like nine years ago. And then I listened to his most recent podcast, which was actually just a few weeks ago, where he talks about free will. Um, and I know in the inter in the intervening time, a lot of people have objected to him. He had some conversations with Dan Dennett. Um, and his most recent podcast is just basically, I mean, he could almost just be reading from the book. Like he hasn't changed his, he doesn't, doesn't really respond to the problems with what he's saying. He doesn't really have, he just keeps reiterating the same point. He's just so confident in, you know, whatever has been revealed to him through meditation or whatever. He's so confident in what he's saying that he doesn't, he's not phased by the, by the objections yeah. that so, he hears. I mean, so, can, can I just have a, I have, uh, one, I have a little thought experiment for him. So, would Sam Harris say that if we made one change to North Korea, that everything would be fine? If we put MDMA and ecstasy in the water so that everybody was, like, always, like, super happy all the time and didn't suffer, but we still had, like, a brutal authority, would that then be a moral thing? Because, like, people wouldn't be suffering, right? They'd be all, like, off their face on MDMA. So, you know, it just... Like even like if you think about uh, it, is this supposed to be an objection? That sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like we, we should bring that. What do you say, Forrest? Would you would you go for MDMA in the water? <laughs> he. During I mean, the his, question uh, is: This is a in the literature. There is um, Nose ex experience machine is a very similar um, thought experiment that is tried is is a kind of objection to utilitarianism. Not, not Harris specifically, but utilitarianism in general, which is like, imagine that I've built a machine that I can hook you up to that will make you perfectly happy, or just absolutely as happy as your brain could possibly make you. But happy enough to have sex with Matt Gates. Yeah, <laughs> that happy. Um, but it, but you can't have sex with Matt Gates. You can't do anything in this machine. Um, you can't interact with the world. All you can do is be happy. Um, uh, now imagine that I can put everyone in that machine. Should I do it? It seems clearly I shouldn't. There'd be something wrong with doing that. But it does also seem that if you're a utilitarian, you're committed to the conclusion that you should do that, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so one of the one of the uh, part of what classical utilitarians at least believe there are different versions of it is uh, a claim called philosophical hedonism, which is that pleasure is the only thing good in itself. And pain is the only thing that's that's bad in itself. Anything else that's good is good because it leads uh, to happiness, or bad is bad because it leads to unhappiness. Uh, true story, by the way. I'd had um, uh, many years ago. Uh, I uh, I was uh, I was in Miami uh, with with, with uh, you know with Ryan and, and a few other people, and I was extremely high. And uh, we were um, was Matt Gates there. <laughs> he, he was really, I'm always getting nervous about where Miami story is going to go, especially <laughs> this public. Well, okay. this one makes, makes me look bad. It doesn't make me okay. look bad. And we somehow started talking about, you know, about this. And I was like, you know, I don't know. Utilitarianism might not be true, but like philosophical hedonism is probably true. And Ryan was like, oh, what about the experience machine? And I was like, oh, shit, I forgot about the experience machine. Good point. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but, yeah, I have, uh, but this, this is like a, this is an obvious objection, right? So, uh, so if you wouldn't take it, and we can even like fiddle with it a little bit to like, like draw out the intuition more clearly, like uh, say 
that they fake reality or going to get an experience machine, uh, which remember you would think was, was real. So you wouldn't have, it's not like you would be bothered by the fact that it wasn't real. You know, you, you would think it was imagine that the fake reality, the experience machine would only be like 5% better than the experience that you'd have in the real world. Uh, if that wouldn't be enough to get you to go in, right. Then that strongly suggests that you care about something other than happiness that you, in this case, that you value objective connection, you know, to, uh, to reality. Um, and, uh, and, and in fact, I mean, you know, if, um, you know, if you imagine that it was going to be no better and no worse than, uh, than if you really took the idea that happiness was the only thing that was good, seriously, you'd have to say it's just a coin flip, uh, whether to go in at that point, which I think, uh, in uh, in practice, you know, I, I think it's very unlikely that anybody, you know, anybody would really think, you know, which which makes Nozick's point. Now, to be fair, none of this speaks against Harris. I mean, for all the shit talking, he he has he has a vague enough notion of well be what well being is um, that he can evade this problem, right? Well being doesn't have to reduce to happiness. Well-being can be this uh, this topic, like this uh, word like health, that is open for debate and emendation. Yeah, although what he so he good so by making that movie he avoids the problems with hedonism, but then he also weakens any sense in which science is going to directly answer these questions. The problem is that to determine what we mean by well-being, and more importantly, what we should mean by yeah. well-being. That's is no, I can't see how you're going to get to that without actually engaging in philosophy, not mm-hmm. science. Yeah, I mean yeah. that's why I brought that example. Not pure science. Yeah. That's why I brought that exa- example up was because you know if he reduces because I have not read the moral line state, thank God. It's but a wise choice. <laughs> if he reduces, you know, if he says that we can find like objective measures for like what happiness. It, it, you know, if we're using science, then surely chemical reactions in the brain are the scientific out, uh, uh, outcome of what is good and bad, right? Because, you know, like, yes, well-being can be broader and, like, sometimes being sad about something, we might see a value and a good in, in being sad about something. But, you know, like, how do we know, you know, how do you know when being sad is like an appropriate thing or you're being sad and it's a painful thing. And that's what, you know, that's, you know, why I brought it up was because, yeah, like how do you do that without making judgments and having a philosophical talk? Like it, it seems like Sam Harris is just recycling, you know, every, everything that is new is old. You know, this is just 19th century, like vulgar materialism and, uh, yeah. and positivism. It's like, you know, stuff that was like, Fancy in like 1890, no, yeah, that's true too. Uh, but it's also worth mentioning here that, like, I think the health analogy, uh, is, is interesting, but I think the more you think about it, you know, the less it uh, it supports his point. Because, yeah. uh, if because, like, what do we like, what do we mean by health, right? Like, uh, that. You know, health is a you know like, of course, if we're talking about what is healthy, right? Like we already know what we mean by health, and we're trying to figure out what meets that standard, what doesn't. Empirical information is very relevant, uh, but the empirical information can't tell us what counts as healthy in the first place. Uh-huh. Uh, and there, you are going to get normative distinctions that 
uh, can't be derived from the facts, you know, like, like the, the, uh, uh, like when like homosexuality being taken out of the MDMA, you know, so like no longer, um, the DSM, sorry, MDMA. Wow. The MDMA. No more, no more, no more homosexuality on MDMA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No more MDMA. When we bad people take it, actually, a big day. You know, like that's uh, no homosexuality yeah. being taken taken out of the DSM. Uh, like that's not primarily something that happened because we learned a bunch of new, like scientific information about the causes of sexual orientation. In fact. Mm-hmm. Like that's still an area very incomplete, you know, empirical information. Uh, you know, it's that's that's something that happened largely because of you know victories by the gay rights movement and making a different you know normative judgment, right, about whether it was it was it was good, right? You know, deciding that our our conception of what counts as a good life in that respect of a good life that we refer to when we use the word health no longer included, you know, not being gay. Uh, and you can even look at recent things like controversies about, you know, people, you know, like psychiatrists talking about toxic masculinity and things like that. And every about any of the controversies, like these are clearly value questions. You know, they're, they're not primarily, you know, questions about the scientific facts. His his version of values um, and what's good. This is the point that I kind of popped in to make um, with Gene's example. Um, the, his, his point that he he makes during uh, his interview with Jank. Um, when he's when he's talking about um, it's it's during the torture thing. Um, he's talking about Iraq, and he he says that um, at one point he says that if he thought that um, a, a state wasn't ready for democracy yet, like a like somewhere like Iraq where there's like all these sectarian conflicts, and he doesn't feel like the people are ready for democracy yet, he's perfectly fine putting in a benevolent dictator. He thinks that a benevolent dictator running a society. Um, like like an American-backed benevolent dictator would be more more moral than letting a, a society that he feels isn't ready for democracy, um, you know, like like devolve into factionalism. So his version of what might be good or what version of might be like his version of what might be moral might have like terrifying authoritarian uh, <laughs> implications yeah. to. It. Yeah, and, and, and by the way, just to draw out the metaphor, like like when when Harris talks about health to try to justify the idea that morality is all empirical. He'll say, look, somebody could say that like having your head cut off wasn't less healthy or having cancer wasn't less healthy than not having cancer. But this would clearly be an absurd way to talk, but that's not actually like, you could say the same thing for morality, right? That like uh, that sure. Somebody could say that torturing, you know, toddlers for fun, you know, was, was, was morally acceptable, but that would be an absurd way to talk. Sure. Because is torturing toddlers for fun morally right or wrong is an easy question. Uh, but then you have all these much harder questions, uh, you know, like about, you know, utilitarianism versus Kantianism and, you know, different kinds of moral dilemmas and conflicts between principles the same way that with, you know, that with health, uh, you have harder questions like, you know, the toxic masculinity issue or, you know, or sexual orientation or other things like this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it could be, um, you know, and sure, like ultimately what he's pointing to might just be the fact that in health, like you have fewer areas of controversy, certainly not no areas of controversy about what counts as healthy than you have about what's moral. But sure, you have fewer areas of controversy about what's 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 healthy than you do about what's moral. So 
Therefore, the conceptual side of the question has less to do in the health case. But that doesn't, like, I don't know what that's supposed to tell us about morality or thinking that you could drive morality from science. An insane uh, amount of these arguments seem to be about justifying collateral damage, too. Like, his version of, like, of like wellness seems to be a lot of times, like, well, you know, the least amount of people suffering, but there's still going to be some people suffering. You would choose who it is and how many people you want to suffer. And, like, it, it seems to be pretty dark whenever he's bringing, you know what I mean, like, this kind of stuff up. Like, like science, science could, like, I don't know. It, it really is, like, the like the, the train example or the, the trolley example or something. Like, he, he really... I think that's really how he thinks in the same way that like we talked about Jordan Peterson constantly thinking about like Soviet, like, like Soviet torture or something as like his driving force. I feel like Sam Harris's is like collateral damage. I totally think you're correct. First, I think the guy is like deep down wants to be making those decisions. He, he believes that he has like the, the intellectual weight to, uh, to, to make <laughs> hard decisions that, you know, sometimes hard decisions have to be made, right? But um, but mm -hmm. he just wants to fucking bloviate about them, mm -hmm. and uh, and deep down wants to be the guy who people turn to and ask what is the moral, mm -hmm. and then he can give them like an elaborate uh, an elaborate rationale for the, the 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 terrible thing that they're about to do. I totally think yeah. you. Know, I think there's I think there's like an interesting pop psychology thing about that uh, Sam Harris that we you know like we need to talk about rather than taking his freaking ideas seriously well let's let's take one more idea seriously uh, so for the sake of time uh, let's 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 move on uh, to uh, the free will stuff uh, he, he does the uh, the same thing here that he does in the moral case which is that he takes you know the part of the philosophical debate about free will and determinism that's the most controversial is how how should we understand what would count as free will? Mm -hmm. And he has a certain intuition about that and he just runs with it. And he's very dismissive of anybody who has any sort of argument that he's wrong about it in much the same way that he has a certain kind of intuition about, you know, morality being, you know, maximizing well-being, whatever exactly that means. Uh, and he's very dismissive of anybody who has any non-consequentialist a view of morality, but uh, I think uh, in particular in what, in what we're about to see, uh, he he has uh, a uh, he has an argument that actually might change Ryan's mind. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so Ryan's is starting out disagreeing with Sam Harris about free will. Uh, Ryan has a position called compatibilism, uh, but I think that when you hear this business about movies, uh, oh. then. Then you're gonna you're gonna change your mind. Oh, I have yeah. a I I had a longer one. I can grab the movie one really quick though. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, let's, let's let's do the uh, let's 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 do the, uh, <laughs> the movie one. Um, although I don't know actually how how long is the movie one? Uh, it's, it's it's a couple minutes. I found where he talks about the movies where he starts it. Um, okay. Let's run with turn. Just close your eyes and take a few deep breaths. And now think of a movie, the one you've seen or just one you know the name of, right? It doesn't have to be good. It can be bad. Whatever comes to mind, doesn't matter. And pay attention to what this experience is like. A few films have 
probably come to mind. Just pick one. And pay attention to what the experience of choosing is like. Now, the first thing to notice is that this is as free a choice as you are ever going to make in your life. Right? You are completely free. You have all the films in the world to choose from, and you can pick anyone you want. And you can pause this audio and take as long as you want. Now, let's do that again. Right, I want you to become sensitive to this process. So forget the first film and choose another. And again, pay attention to what you actually experience here. What is it like to choose? What is it like to make this completely free choice? You got a new film? Okay. Do it one more time. Right? Just clean the slate. Think of a few more films and choose one. Did you see any evidence for free will here? Because if it's not here, it's not anywhere, right? So we better be able to find it here. So let's look for it. Well, first, let's set aside all the films you've never seen or heard about and whose names and imagery are unknown to you, right? Needless to say, you couldn't pick one of those. And there's no freedom in that, obviously, because you couldn't have picked one of those if your life depended on it. But then there are many other films whose names are well known to you many of which you've seen, but which didn't occur to you to pick. For instance, you absolutely know that The Wizard of Oz is a film, but you just didn't think of it. And if you thought of The Wizard of Oz, apologies, right? but you get my point. You can swap in The Seventh Seal or Mission Impossible or The Deer Hunter there. And if you're hearing this for the first time and you thought of all those films, well, then we really are living in a simulation. And it's all about you, apparently. So consider the few films that came to mind, right? In light of all the films that might have come to mind, but didn't. And ask yourself, were you free to choose that which did not occur to you to choose? As a matter of neurophysiology, your Wizard of Oz circuits were not in play a few moments ago. For reasons that you can't possibly know and could not control, Based on the state of your brain, The Wizard of Oz was not an option, even though you absolutely know about this film. And if we could return your brain to the state it was in a moment ago and account for all the noise in the system, adding back any contributions of randomness, whatever they were, you would fail to think of The Wizard of Oz again and again and again until the end of time. Where is the freedom in that? It's important to see that whether the universe is fully determined or it admits of randomness, the picture is the same. Okay, determinism gives you no freedom, obviously. It would just be mere biochemical clockwork. But randomness gives you no freedom either. Okay, if you knew that your next choice of a film would be the result of a random process, some quantum roll of the dice, that would be the antithesis of what most people mean by free will. There's no will in that. And if that same random influence appeared a trillion times in a row, just by chance, you would think of the same film a trillion times in a row, just by chance. I mean, no matter how we think about causation, whether things are determined or random or some combination of the two, 
There's no place for you as the conscious subject to stand that isn't downstream of causes that you can't inspect or anticipate. Everything is just appearing in consciousness. Again, focus on the experience here. You can forget about the metaphysics. Free will is an enduring problem for philosophy and science for one reason. People think they experience it. They feel they have it. Do you experience it? Again, if it's not here, it's not anywhere. Right? The only constraint you've been given is to think of a film. And you can pick anyone you want. And you can take as long as you want. It is likely that every other choice you have made in your life has been more constrained than this one. What job to take, who to marry, whether to have kids, who to vote for. Most choices in life are much more obviously constrained by other variables than this one. So if you're not free to simply pick a film right now, I don't know where you're going to find free will anywhere in your life. So really pay attention to the experience. Okay, Ryan, do you feel silly now? Yeah, I don't know what, what I've been thinking about. I mean, the, the, if you're not going to find free will in randomly thinking of a movie, where are you going to find free will? I, I just, I don't know. Um, yeah, no, I mean, this this example, I mean, he does, he and again, this is an example of how, and I'm sure people have made this objection to him. Um, I know people have. He always goes to this kind of example. In the in the last debate, debate uh, breakdown we did with him a while ago, he had, I think it was, think of a country or think of a city at random. And yeah, I mean, he... So he'll always say this, like, this is the sort of idea that motivates free will. If you can't find free will here, where is it going to be? And so, like, um, I don't think he said it right in that clip, but he has, like, he he asserts that he has, like, two ideas about what the common sense notion of free will involves. And one is the idea that we could do otherwise than we actually do. And the other one is the idea that we are the conscious source of all of our thoughts and all of our actions. Um, so it's the second one that's really coming into play here. Um, and I just think that's ridiculous. I mean, where, where does he get the idea that people even think that they are going to be the conscious source of which movies pop into their head or just in general, which thoughts um, ever pop into our head? And like this kind of example is especially frustrating because it's such an arbitrary and meaningless thing. Like I have no reasons to think of one movie rather than another. There's no, no one's ever going to, uh, praise or blame me for choosing the Wizard of Oz over Chinatown or, or whatever, whatever dumb examples you want to, uh, to what you want to get at. It's not the kind of decision that philosophers are ever talking about when they're talking about the kinds of things that actually motivate the concept of free will. When philosophers are talking about free will, they're talking about the kinds of situations where we actually have, do, do have reasons to care about one decision over another and where the choice might actually reflect something deep about our character and who we are and what we value um, and where there could actually be one good reasons to choose one or the other, where someone might actually praise us or blame us for what we're doing, where we're actually going to engage in deliberation. Um, so I know this is just, this just seems he's setting up like a crazy straw man. He's like, I, I, I find it hard to imagine that anyone would listen to this and be like, Oh yeah, you've showed me that. Um, I, yeah. I didn't. I didn't choose which movie popped into my head. Therefore, I don't have free will. I yeah, just, I, I mean, it's, it's it's particularly bizarre that he says that if you don't have it here, you don't have it anywhere. Yeah, uh, because uh, this is just 
transparently not the kind of thing that people are usually thinking of, regardless of what their position is mm -hmm. on free will, when they talk about free will, right? Like, yeah. for I mean, for yeah, one, I've never, I've never seen a free will skeptic use this kind of example, even when free will people. I mean, there are a lot of people, and I do want to emphasize this, like free will skepticism is a reasonable view on free will. And like, there are good arguments for it. I've never heard a skeptic make use this kind of example, though, as like an example of freedom. Like, this is just not what anyone has in mind. There are likewise good arguments for utilitarianism. Yeah. Though, and yeah. moral realism in general, just yeah. not those. <laughs> yeah. 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 I didn't have to reflect well, on... Uh, you can frame this by asking yourself, like, what decisions in the past would you be most disturbed uh, upon learning were actually not free decisions? If I learned that, for example, when I picked a card in a card, that yeah. I was actually subtly being manipulated by the magician to pick the two of diamonds, that would not disturb me at all. I mean, mm -hmm. maybe it would piss me off a little bit, but not really. But yeah. if I learned that, like, my decision to have kids or yeah. move to Buffalo, New York, or to join the DSA. If I learned that those decisions weren't decisions that I had any say in, that I yeah. control those decisions, that would be really disturbing. Yeah, that's right. If you if you thought, yeah, I mean, the thing that's, that's missing here is like, this is not a situation where re reasons come into it at all. And those yeah. are the kinds of decisions that are paradigmatically we think of as free decisions are the ones where we're applying our reasoning processes, where where we are sensitive. You know, I mean, philosophers who both agree and disagree with the idea of free will will the will agree the paradigmatic example is the one where we are actually sensitive to reasons and responding to reasons. Um, whether that's completely sufficient to to ground the kind of free will we want, that's that's debatable. Um, but this kind of example doesn't even begin to touch the issue. Like, doesn't even come close to it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think of the kinds of uh, like so to pick somebody who is a philosopher who's completely outside of the tradition of the way that um, you know that that I think about free will. You know, which which is you know which is mostly an influence. You know, a result of knowing Ryan. But uh, I have like uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, right? In, in, his, mm -hmm. in his essay, uh, Existentialism as a Humanism, uh, his, his, like, his example of a free decision in that essay is about a student who uh, came to him uh, during you know, World War II uh, to say that he, he, was, he was wrestling with whether to stay with his, his elderly mother. You know, he was his, only, his mother's only remaining you know, source of support. Uh, and she really needed him to stay and take care of him, uh, or whether he should go join the French resistance, you know, to, to drive out the Nazis, which he felt like he had a patriotic duty to do. And also, I think one of his brothers, you know, you know like his brother had been killed by the Nazis, and, and he, did, he didn't know what to do. Uh, Sartre, by the way, like gave him like the least helpful possible answer, which is like, you, you know, you just have to figure it out for yourself. But, um, but he... But like thinking about an example like that, right? Yeah. The whole point is that he, like the student, has has really strong reasons for both alternative courses of action, and in fact, they're both so strong that he's incredibly torn between them. Mm -hmm. uh, and different philosophers will disagree about what it would take for whatever decision he made in that scenario to count as uh, as free will, right? So like one. Yeah. Who, which a lot of compatibilist people who think that even if everything's determined, so given the exact same starting point, uh, you know, 
he'd always come to the same decision, uh, you know, that that's compatible with it counting as a free decision, it being under his control in whatever way it takes for it to make sense to praise or blame him, uh, mm-hmm. that uh, that they, they think those philosophers might think like this is a popular version of compatibilism, that like all it really, that like what we mean when we say that you're acting freely, that, you're, that your decision is under your control in the right way, is that your reasons responsive mechanism, in other words, your ability to understand and be moved by reasons for and against, you know, different courses of action mm-hmm. it was, you know, that that was what was in charge of your action, you know, in, in the right way. Whereas other philosophers who are incompatibilists who think that if everything's determined, you know, it's, it's not free might say, well, no, uh, that you have to be, um, yeah, in addition to being responsive to reasons, you've got to add, yeah. yeah, you've got to add other conditions, and those other conditions are going to be incompatible with determinism. That like yeah. your that your that like that the that the reasons that move you ultimately have to uh, originate with you in the right way, in a way that they they wouldn't be really really from you if mm-hmm. they arose from a chain of cause and effect that that started you know before you were born. You know, for example. Yeah. Uh, and, and fair enough, right? Yeah. But like, that's like a really interesting, really difficult philosophical debate. But like, this is like, like this is like one short step away from saying that if you don't get to decide what you dream about, you don't have free will. <laughs> yeah, it's. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't really understand what the example. I mean, you guys have actually explained why it was a silly example. But like when he was talking, I was like, "What is he on about? Like, yeah, picking a movie. It's like." What I, what do I want for dinner tonight? You know what I mean? It's like yeah. it, it seems such a banal example to discuss the meaning of free will. Well, it's even yeah. worse though because when you pick what you're going to have for dinner, at least you might have reasons for choosing one restaurant. Yeah, at least some minimal reasons. Yeah, this it's so bizarre that he he literally says like this is the sort of decision that motivates the idea of free will, and that's just not true for anyone who's ever thought for two seconds about free will. This is it not, really it has echoes of his. Um, of his worst misery experiment, and that he's like, think of this thing. Don't look over there. Yeah. Think about this. Only think about it is, this. It is like and, a stage. I think Forrest was saying this before we did the show. Like he has a very strong like stage magician vibe. It's like, look over here. <laughs> Don't pay attention to where the real work's going on. Just look at look at my look at my hands over here. And then, ah. and then he yeah. says, as You're- soon as you admit that this yeah. thing is the way that I have described it, then you've given up the game for everything else I need you to... Uh, to yeah. Assume, yeah. Right? yeah, I mean, like, and this, yeah, like, this is literally, you're not, like, it. Like there's no will in... Exactly. Like, whether it's free or not, there's no yeah. will in exactly. which movie rises to the surface of your thoughts. Yeah. And yeah, nobody has... Nobody thinks there is any will in that. Like, like yeah. it doesn't like, like forget whether it's free will or unfree will. There's just no will, you know, that like, yeah, yeah. if you're deciding what to have dinner, yeah. you're at least making a decision, whether yeah. it's a free decision or not, you know, but like, there's no, there's no decision and nobody thinks that there's a decision when it comes to like, which movie bubbles to the surface of your mind. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's very bizarre. It's a very bizarre straw man. Like the idea that if you the, intellectual of our age, Ryan. Yeah. Intellectual <laughs> yeah. of our age. It's, He's uh, definitely the weakest out of the uh, new atheists. Definitely the weak link. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. No, oh yeah. No, no, that, no yeah. Much, By a long way. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Dawkins embarrasses himself. And a lot. Uh, Hitchens uh, shamed himself. Yeah. yeah. But at least, but at least they also, have, like, they both made real intellectual con- yeah. contributions to discourse, at least in some areas. Right. <laughs> and Dawkins no. used to come to my bar, and he's a good tipper. Ah, well, there you go. There you there go. You go. Yeah. That we will never have a place in my heart. Yeah, we get a five pound note for us. So yeah, that's nice. Yeah, I mean Dawkins is is a real you know serious evolutionary biologist and also one of the most talented popularizers of evolutionary biology ever. Yeah. Um, great writer, you know, like very good at you know popularizing you know scientific concepts from his field. A little dumb when he wanders outside of his field, oh. uh, but uh, but very good at that at least. Uh, and. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Christopher Hitchens obviously is is was was a amazing writer and and uh, and and a very like thoughtful and perceptive thinker in many areas. Um, you know, even if yes, he, he shamed himself with some of his late in life foreign policy positions. Uh, and uh, Daniel Dennett, like, is the least exciting of the four, but I think also should get credit for being the only one of the uh, four horsemen who doesn't seem to be like a huge asshole in any way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's right. Isn't, yeah. That, isn't that quite a striking statement that, you know, he was the weakest of those four, four guys. And now he's like the kid, he's like the most intellectual <laughs> member of the intellectual dark web. Like yeah. he's, he's like the compared to Peterson or. Oh what, yeah. Compared to Peterson. He's like, Positively, uh, oh, yeah. He's, oh, yeah. yeah, he's a genius. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, he just uh, Daniel Dennett just put out a book with Greg Caruso about this exact topic that we uh, I was just about. gonna, yeah, I was just gonna mention that how much I resent you for because I was before we before this week, I was just starting to read the Caruso Dennett book, and it's like real high level discourse between two of the top level people arguing between compatibilism and incompatibilism, and then I had to stop that and go. Immerse myself in Sam Harris rhetoric on the free will problem. Yeah, which which and, and it's also remarkable. I think I looked it up once. Like I I, I did a quick search within the document, and that that like fifty page free will book mm-hmm. uh, that Harris wrote. The word compatibilism appears like twice, three times oh, in there, and he strawmans compatibilism so badly when where he does mention. I mean, he I mean literally, and, and it's clear. It's like this is a dig. He I, it feels like he does it. And I know Dennett took it this way that he like he compares compatibilism to theology, and he does that as like a dig directly at his friend Dan Dennett, and it's just just yeah. like strawmanning and being a dick about it. And, well, and he also says that like compatibilism is the view that a puppet has free will if it loves its strings. Yes, with, yes. like is is like literally just like okay there are views about free will according to which um according to which whether you see your decision as being free is, is relevant in some way um yeah. you know but also uh that's not like the only or even the main compatibilist position like 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 yeah. if, if you have views like the ones we we're talking about where what really matters is 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 reason's responsiveness you know you're willing yeah. you know your ability to to understand and be moved you know by reasons for and against different forms of action to deliberate none of that has absolutely anything to do with how you conceptualize what you're doing you know exactly exactly so it, it's just yeah. It's it's it, it's silly. He's he's, yeah. he's 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 bad, and he should feel bad about <laughs> the world. Yeah. 
All right. Uh, well, that's as, as good an in conclusion as we're going to come to. Uh, I, I know that Mark needs to go feed his children. So, uh, <laughs> Andrew is right. right. I do get fired up about compatibilism. This is the one thing in life I get passionate about. <laughs> yeah. Wellness is when you have to feed your children and leave your podcast. <laughs> uh, no, weakness is when you have to leave oh, your yeah. podcast. Yeah, that's right. Nothing yeah. but nothing but podcasting. Yeah. No. I, I, I know. This I, seems I, like a situation where you should eat the baby so the podcast can keep going. Oh, by the way, actually, that's a good reminder uh, that our uh, graphic designer Jandra World uh, made a uh, made a quick little image of uh, of me uh, me getting ready to eat a baby. In response to that earlier Paris clip, that could be marketing radiating his baby instead of feeding it. (laughs) No philosopher would have a problem with this. No, it's a beautiful thing. This is actually in the the Stanford Encyclopedia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The baby eating entry where it says you should eat babies. Yeah. The conclusion, therefore, you should eat babies. Yes. If right. it will interfere with your podcast. All right. All right. I'm going to go medicate my daughter. Um, That's a pleasure, everyone. I really enjoyed it. Um, nice ben, hey, congratulations on your first year. It's been great. I'm, I'm so proud of you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having us for the season finale. This is great. All right. Thanks, guys. Love you. See you soon. Love you too. Bye. All right. Uh, so, um, want to uh, to do a uh, a couple things before we wrap up uh, for tonight. Also, if there are any super chat questions, you know, we can take those uh, quickly. Uh, yeah, I haven't at, seen any yet. Um, at the uh, at the end, uh, but let's uh, let's do. <laughs> No, this season finale is not going to be a cliffhanger. Uh, the um, you know we've we've already like really the way to do this would be that at the beginning of season two you're going to find out whether Sam Harris is full of shit or not. Uh, but uh, we already spilled the beans. Uh, so there's, there's I should have no kept my I should have kept my Dave Rubin like me becoming a pro- like a producer for Dave Rubin April Fool's joke going, and like you find out in season two if I'm sticking around to to be yeah in season two. <laughs> yeah uh, which which. Um, I mean, can we uh, can we say this on the podcast was uh, was was taken seriously? Yeah, my dad took it seriously. My uh, my my dad was writing out this whole long thing about how it's not fair to to Michael's memory that I would become a producer at Dave Rubin's show, and then he looked up and realized it was April first. And <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Uh, so yeah, we oh, are. So uh, this is, though, the last uh, regular uh, episode for uh, Give Them an Argument Season 1. We're going to retool a couple things. Uh, well, we are actually going to do like some, some live streams this week. But, uh, but after the end of this week, we're going to take a couple, couple of the weeks off. We're going to retool some things, come back you know, better than ever uh, for, uh, for Season 2 in a couple weeks. Uh, but uh, while we are... On, uh, you know, we are going to do at least one more, maybe a couple more uh, patron episodes. Uh, so uh, I recorded one uh, yesterday. Come out for uh, for patrons um, uh, on uh, Thursday. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, thank you. Thank you for the super chat, Gloomy Cleric. He says, has it occurred to you that you merely misinterpreted Sam Harris, which is always uh, what uh, what occurs. I have not been treated fairly by the Give Them an Argument podcast, and I just want everyone to know that by reading my books, you'll realize that that's not what I was saying when I said it. Yeah, that's not what I meant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, no, I like that. Thank you for the super chat. Uh, Silver Harlow, uh, says that's why he uses Wizard of Oz as an example. He's subconsciously giving away that he doesn't want you to look behind the green curtain, uh, which, yeah, again, I think goes to, uh, to, to Forrest's insight about how, how much, even just in terms of his patterns of speech and the way he walks around, how much Harris, uh, presents himself like a stage magician. He's he really he looks like Ben Stiller in uh in in Arrested Development when he's Tony Wonder, and <laughs> yes. he has the he has the spiked up hair and like the the goatee and it's like old old Sam Harris. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. But exactly. there's there's that um there's that narration where they're, where they're like the feeling was friendship, but neither of them had ever experienced it with him and Job, and it's like him and Dave Rubin realizing they're friends for the first time. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, thank you for the super sticker, Darius. We appreciate it, brother. Um, but uh, but yeah, so uh, we are uh, the at least one patron episode that uh, that we're still going to do um, is uh, is going to uh, drop on Thursday uh, for patrons. So I interviewed uh, Aaron Rabinowitz, uh, who is uh, the host of the uh, Embrace the Void uh, uh, podcast. Uh, and he, uh, he does this, uh, this thing on there, um, where, uh, we talk, um, like on the podcast, uh, he, he does this thing where he, uh, he asks people, uh, you know, philosophical, uh, this sort of series of philosophical questions at the end, uh, since this is such a philosophy heavy episode, you know, figured it'd be good, uh, you know, it'd, it'd work out to, to play the preview here where he basically asked them, uh, this whole series of things. Uh, do you think this thing is real or not real? Uh, which uh, some of them seem like just goofy, but trust me for every single example, there is at least one philosopher uh, who has, who has denied that this is a real thing, you know, that this, uh, uh, that this is the kind of object that, that actually exists, you know, or independently exists or something like that. Uh, but I'm not, uh, but I'm not sure how much of this we're going to play right now, but let's, let's, uh, let's start it up. But uh, but I do uh, I do listen uh, to uh, to embrace the void. I was on it a long time ago, uh, and uh, but I, I I still you know I'll uh, I'll listen to that you know somewhat regularly. Uh, and there are two kinds of episodes in my my experience. Like broadly speaking, uh, there there's like the um, and there's lots of overlap and ambiguity uh, between the two types, but there are uh, culture war episodes and there are like fairly straight philosophy episodes. Um, and even when, uh, even when it's like much more on the, uh, the culture war end, uh, you always do this thing towards the, uh, the end of, uh, of the, the podcast uh, where, you know, it's the uh, enlightening round uh, in which, uh, in which you ask the guest, a uh, a bunch of uh of philosophical questions that uh, that come in yes or no answers uh you you force them to answer yes or no which of course is very painful because anybody who's uh, like that this is their thing 
they 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 will want very badly to um, to to sort of nuance their answers and give you like a paragraph, you know, for each one. Uh, but uh, but of of course to uh, to sort of collate the uh, you know the data from what they all say, it has to be uh, has to be yes or no. Uh, so I thought that it uh, I thought that it might be fun uh, to uh, to have this, you know, have your you know, listeners and uh, viewers of uh, this show, uh, introduction to you, uh, be uh, be having you uh, you play it yourself, and we can we can start out doing the uh, the the yes or no, and then and then we could actually like talk about the the parts of it that uh, uh, you know that's that seem most uh, most fruitful to talk about it. So, um, all right, this is a very uh, I'm looking at. I found an article that you wrote in the Skeptic that has at least one version of this list. I actually think this is a little bit longer than the one you typically ask on the show, but maybe not. No, okay. this, is the, this is the full list. This is the one this I use. The full list. Okay. I've, I've just blanked out there what people answered to some of these questions. Uh, so, um, so this is uh, each of these uh, actually, sorry, I said yes or no earlier. That's wrong. Each of these should be answered uh, by real or not real. Um. Mm-hmm. So, um, let's do it. The external world. Uh, real. Colors. Real. Phenomenal consciousness. Real. Free will. Uh, not real. Selves slash persons. Not real. Genders. Um, so I think this might actually be a change from my, uh, what I said when I wrote that article, but I think my answer here is real actually. Okay. Races. Uh, not real. Species. Not real. (laughs) Morality. Real. Rights. Uh, real. Knowledge. Uh, real. God or gods. Not real. Society. Real. Money. Um, real. Numbers. Uh, I guess I'm real at this point. All right, interesting. Fictional characters. Um... It's, it, the truth is not real. Holes. <laughs> um. Real. Chairs. Uh. Real. Sandwiches. Yeah. Real. Science. <laughs> uh. Not real. Natural laws. Um, real beauty, real love, real causality, not real time, not real. All right. Wow. I did so, that without looking back. I don't know how many things I changed from when I wrote that article, which is, I think I mentioned in the article that I rarely have the same answers twice when it comes to this activity no that's that's fair uh yeah let's see um i think it's pretty uh 
Yeah, I I've think changed on genders. Yeah, I think it's pretty similar. Well, genders is an interesting one uh, because I think that there might be sort of. Um, I mean, you know, even apart from from whatever considerations you ultimately find, you know, compelling. But I mean, I think that like there are um, sort of politically progressive impulses that might uh, lead somebody to answer that one either way. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, and and of course, also as with many of these, you know, it's it's this this. I mean, part of what makes it fun. Is is that there are a lot of different things that somebody could mean by real or not real, you know, for for at least some of these. Yeah, and there are different ways that people go with this. I mean, aside from having the existential crisis of recognizing that real simple simplicator, right, is not a like necessarily a clear concept. Um, some people do, I think, go like there are multiple ways they mean real when they answer each separate one in one go. Generally, at this point my guiding like intuition is I, I see the application of the word real as a kind of corrective that like, mm-hmm. you know, what I'm doing when I ascribe real or not real to something is I'm saying, you know, in my experience, people or society or something like that, either treat this thing too far in one direction or the other. Yeah. So, right. So, so say, mm-hmm. Right. So when you say race, not real, uh, that, that, you know, that's a way of, of gesturing at the idea that, uh, that people are way too willing to give this concept some sort of explanatory power status that it doesn't really deserve, you know? Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. That it's yeah. been reified and essentialized in problematic ways. Whereas on the other hand, I think we sort of underestimate the realness of gender and gender identity. And it's not to say that like, uh, so, so I mean the, 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 the tricky part here is that like, it, it can be easy to slip in thinking, you know, well, what we're, what we're defining here is how much like causal impact does this thing have on the world? But like, you might want to say, you know, I want to correct for the idea that race is viewed too simplistic and real realistic, like naively realist, but I'm not discounting the causal impact of race, right? I'm saying as this like floating signifier, it is still, um, impactful, but it is not um, the the biologically definable thing that certain individuals think it is. Yeah, well, that's also an interesting one because it's a little unclear, at least it is to me, what we mean when we talk about whether race has this this like causal explanatory role because. Uh, it seems to me that there's often a lot of slippage in the way that people talk about this between race and racism. You know, you you could be a, um, like, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I go back and forth about the fine grained details about what I think about some of this, but like, you know, you could be an outright error theorist about race. You could say that like, there's no such thing that this is like pseudoscientific nonsense and that like, we shouldn't even try to mm-hmm. save the concept mm-hmm. by giving some sort of social constructivist explanation of what we mean. And you could say all that and still say that racism is very real and has a massive causal, you know, power in the world. Um, you yeah. know, even, even though, you know, race is just a sort of fiction. 
Yeah, I think you could try to go that way. It's not the way I would go, I think, ultimately, because I I would say I think race and racial identity separate from racism have a causal impact in people's lives and experiences that I, you know, being Aaron David Rabinowitz, raised in a atheistically half-Jewish family, have certain racial identities, quote-unquote, and experiences that, like, have, I think, legitimately impacted how I perceive uh, fascism, how I care about anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, even if, you know, like, I don't strongly identify as a Jewish individual. I think those, those factors play a role in that way, just that, like, those are just socially impact, you know, like, socially uh, epiphenomenal kinds of impacts rather than, like, it's my Jew blood that's causing me to care about those particular things. <laughs> Yeah, right. Like, like clearly whatever else is true about this, the, the fact that you grew up, um, thinking of, of yourself as being, you know, Jewish or, you know, Jew-ish or whatever, you know, for, uh, for being, uh, for being, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that like clearly that fact has a causal relationship with, with the fact, you know, like a lot of, you know, mm-hmm. certainly at least a lot of psychological facts about you. Right. And, um, and, and possibly some, some other kinds of facts about you as well. Right. Like, like no, no doubt whatsoever about that. And that's, that's one of the reasons at least for me, why, uh, you know, I would be, I would, I think I would be like hesitate a little bit, you know, play, playing this game about the race question, because I think that like, cause there's a sense in which what I just said, which was pretty minimalistic, but that might be enough or almost enough to get you some mm-hmm. sort of social constructivist theory of what race is, uh, mm-hmm. you know, but it also seems very consistent with um, like, those also don't sound like the kinds of causal facts that would be surprising for things that we would be like inclined to be pretty robustly anti-realist about like, like, like that you could say Mm -hmm. like it's, it's maybe it's not quite like, um, you know, if somebody's, you know, if somebody thinks they're a witch, Right, you know that uh, that mm-hmm. means that they mm-hmm. that like that they'll be you know I don't know really worried about you know there'll be various psychological facts about them that fall out of that you know but uh, but I, I think it's at least uh, at least on the edge right. Um, all right, uh, so that full conversation with Aaron uh, is going to be out for patrons on uh, on Thursday. Um, there's a uh, point where he's talking about the role of appeal to intuitions in philosophy, and he uses the term vibe versus vibe, which I thought was funny. So uh, that might be the title of the episode. Um, you know, episode 47, Vibe versus Vibe. Um, yeah, that's, that's good. <laughs> but um, uh, there's also going to be probably, if nothing else, there might be another patron episode or two during the break. I'm not sure. If nothing else, um, I guess there will probably at least be a Sopranos uh, recap episode with me and uh, Nando and Mike Racine and Big Waz. So, um, you know, you can, uh, you know, like we'll we'll at least we'll at least for sure put out one of those uh, during the uh, during the break. Uh, and then, I mean, it always kind of depends on what happens too. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you, you never know, like politically or like you know socially, what's going to happen during that two weeks. 
Yeah, um, if, if Biden invades Iran, we'll come back and do a live stream. Yeah. About it. <laughs> <laughs> Basically what I'm trying to imply with that. Or, you know, if suddenly if suddenly Biden was like, you know what? I do think we should do Medicare for all. <laughs> yeah, well, then we'll do, then we'll come back yeah. and do, do a live yeah. stream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Um, and and again, you know, we will do a few more this week, you know, before we uh, before we go on break. Um, there is, if nothing else, so there's a uh, Philosophy Friday coming up this Friday. We're actually, it's going to be the first Philosophy Friday uh, where we uh, we have uh, a guest. It's going to be Ryan. Uh, so uh, Ryan and I and Jennifer are actually going to be talking about uh, free will and determinism. Uh, so comes off very directly out of this episode. Um, they, we might do one last debate breakdown before the before the break. I'm not quite sure. Uh, and, um, and I should say also, by the way, during the break, as well as, um, you know, as well as the stuff for patrons, uh, and any live streams that might happen because of unexpected events, uh, you know, we'll, we'll definitely be putting out clips for sure. I mean, we've got a massive backlog of clips, uh, to, yeah. uh, to put out. So yeah, we're going to be putting up a bunch of the debate breakdown, um, clips too, uh, you know, we're going to just cut them into shorter, shorter bits. And I think we're going to have those on the channel pretty much every day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, which, which is actually kind of crazy that we haven't been, cause that's like the most watched thing on the channel. So yeah, <laughs> uh, I don't know why we have a big clip in those. Uh, but, uh, and then uh, it's There's only so many hours in a day. That's why we, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> uh, it's possible that there's going to be there uh, something tomorrow. There aren't usually Tuesday live streams. I might be talking to Jesse Single about his new book, The Quick Fix. Uh, it's a little unclear. He might have to be traveling tomorrow. Uh, but uh, but since it's like the official release date for the book, uh, you know, if, uh, if that works out, we'll do that tomorrow night. Uh, but for sure, on Wednesday, uh, we are uh, – oh, and by the way, somebody asked in the chat if uh, about like – whether Philosophy Fridays will still be regular programming in season two, absolutely. All of the kinds of live streams we do are all going to be regular programming in season yeah. two. The, the changes are going to be the changes are going to be productive changes, not uh, not you know production changes. I guess. <laughs> no, 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 exactly right. So we we have um, you know, like there'll still be the uh, there'll still be. The Sunday debate breakdowns, of course, uh, that's 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 definitely bread and butter, you know, for this channel. Uh, there will still be, you know, philosophy live Friday, uh, and uh, there will most definitely still be the uh, movie discussions on on Wednesday because, uh, I mean, among other reasons, like uh, I, as somebody who feels like pretty much like ninety nine percent of my life is like teaching, writing. Uh, going on podcasts and doing podcasts and live streams. Uh, you know, I think, I think just having something that forces me to watch a movie once a week is, uh, is, is, is like a mental health necessity. So, uh, yeah. And, and just, you know, bullshitting about that is so much like, yeah, it needs to be done rather than just bullshitting about politics all the time. You know what I mean? Like the discourse about movies, like it's really easy to get sucked into something and get really negative about the state of things. And, and kind of to, to forget how many, like, how much, like, art there really is in the world and how, you know, films and, like, you know, f like, fun things to talk about with friends. Like, that needs to be done more than than just, you know, talking about, I mean, both philosophy and politics, like, and, and no, you know, no, for, conversations for, for about sure. our, own, our own powerlessness. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. You you can't it can't be all politics and philosophy. You need to have the uh the bullshitting with friends about movies in there. Uh oh, actually, real quick before I forget though, speaking of philosophy, let's do uh uh Heraclitus Blacken's uh super chat if we still got that. Yeah, he said uh would love for y'all to get more into continental or critical philosophy too. Yeah. Uh, Okay, here we go. I got it. So, uh, yeah, so I would point out that we have done a little bit of that. Uh, so uh, we did um, uh, So we did an episode not that long ago uh, with um, our, uh, you know, all, all unironically say friend. He is very wrong about lots of subjects. Uh, but uh, our friend uh, uh, Thaddeus Russell about uh, postmodernism. Like we spent like an hour of that episode arguing about postmodernism. That devolved. Uh, that devolved pretty fucking fast. <laughs> <laughs> and, there was uh, there was that moment where you asked him about the election that I was like, you know, in the waiting room, like Ben, don't do it. And then, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, because he was talking about like sort of relativism and skepticism more generally, and then he like he sort of dropped this example about skepticism about the election. And it was like it was like one of those things. I've got like the devil and angel on my shoulders, you know. It's yeah. like, ah, uh, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Oh fuck, I'm gonna do this. Okay, Thaddeus, what, what did you just say about the election? Like, let's, let's talk about that. And you can so, see, you can see your, you can see your brain like turn, like the, the the gears in your brain turning, being like, this is gonna be a mistake. This is gonna be a mistake. This is gonna be a mistake. All right, I gotta ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So that's how we ended up spending half an hour about that arguing about absentee ballots and whether Trump really won. Uh, but, um, but yeah, so, uh, but there was also a lot of that that was about, you know, postmodernism and also for the Sunday night debate breakdown, we actually did two uh, that are continental philosophy relevant. We did um, Chomsky versus Foucault uh, and, um, you know, and we also did uh, uh, Slavoj Žižek uh, versus Graham Harman, uh, but yeah, for sure, we'll we'll do more of that, you know, as it goes on. I mean, obviously, the uh, the the kind of of philosophy that you know is like go- is always going to be the main kind you're going to get on this channel is the logic analytic kind because uh, you know that's obviously what I come out of and what I'm you know most interested in. But uh, but for sure, you know, we'll we'll, we'll do more continental philosophy stuff uh, as it goes on. Uh, and also, this was during the uh, this was during the uh, the preview for the Thursday patron episode. But uh, Adore Pry, thank you for the super chat. Just says cheers, Ben and crew. Um, so uh, so yeah, let's. Uh, oh, I when I was rattling off all the stuff that's coming up, what I was building up to, but didn't actually mention is on Wednesday. So the thing on Tuesday, I think, is happening. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Uh, but for sure on Wednesday, uh, we are doing the last season one uh, Wednesday movie live stream, uh, which is going to be about uh, The Shining. Uh, so Kale, Kale is very excited for that. Um, <laughs> Kale is extremely excited about it. So he, uh, I, I woke up to like multiple texts from him about like, well, first he texted like uh, all of us and was like, like showed us that, um, that the, 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 he, he's subscribing to that ser- like that uh, streaming service that has the um, moon landing conspiracy 
documentary. But then he also texted me on the side and was like, hey, I have a bunch of graphics that I'm going to have to come up with that I'm going to send you. So I like sent him a folder for them, like a drive folder. But he seemed very excited by the fact that we're going to be talking about The Shining. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. So Kale Brooks, the uh, producer, uh, YouTube producer from Jacobin, uh, is... Um, he said actually a long time ago, I think when we like first started doing the movie live streams on Wednesdays, uh, he told me like, if you ever do the shining, I want to, I want to come and do it. And then like, you know, a month ago or something, I was like, all right, let's do it. You know, when you want to talk about the shining and, um, and then normally of course he has to produce for uh, the Jacobin show uh, on, uh, on Wednesdays. Uh, but, uh, but this, you know, April 7th, was the Wednesday he could get off to, uh, to do this. And, um, and it was, uh, you know, I mean, since, since it's my birthday, I almost like, you know, I almost said, no, I don't want to do that. Right. But, uh, yeah, whatever. I think, I think for, for birthday, especially quarantine birthday, I think, uh, spending a, a couple hours talking to uh, your friends about one of your favorite movies is a acceptable activity. I, I might be, you know, I might be drunker than usual, uh, but um, I had, uh, but I will, um, but yeah, that's going to be really good. Obviously, Kale is, uh, is very up on all the different angles on the, the shining and like the, the moon landing, you know, conspiracy theories and all that. Uh, but also uh, we are going to have uh, uh, David Griscom uh, from uh, Left Reckoning is going to be joining us for that. Uh, uh, Ryan Lake uh, always comes on, you know, is, is regular for the movies, uh, the movie Wednesdays, and also at the end of the stream, she's not going to be able to come on till till towards the end, you know, because of her TYT commitments. But uh, Anna Kasparian, uh, really, uh huh? I, I I didn't know that actually. <laughs> yep, yep. So Anna is going to be joining us uh, at, um, you know, like that's yeah, that's one of the reasons that we switched it from seven to seven thirty because she's not even going to be able to come on until nine, you know? So, uh, yeah. uh, so yeah, she, she will be joining for the last part of that. Uh, it's actually the first time that Anna is, um, that like, like, I don't know when she's watching it, you know, but this will be the first time that Anna has ever actually seen the shining. So we'll be getting really? her, uh, her first reaction to it. That's, uh, that's, that's very, that's very interesting. See, I'm learning this news right on the stream. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, but yeah, look, this has been, you know, this has been really good. Like, uh, I mean, if you want to do, if there's anything that you were itching to, uh, to, to bring up, you know, during our, uh, our, our long session trashing Sam Harris, we can do that real quick. Um, but uh, there was the, there was the the clip of him. Um, I don't. I mean, I don't know if if we really need to listen to that much of it. But there was a clip of him leaving the IDW um, because Dave Rubin wouldn't stop uh, putting up conspiracy theories about Trump winning the election. That he kind of trashes. He trashes the IDW during that. And I thought I kind of wanted to play that. Um, All right. Quickly right, right. Let's, let's hear, it's it's the it's the season finale. We we can indulge you. Let's let's play the clip. All right. Hold on. I gotta find it. Uh, um. All right, I, wait. Just give me a second to find it. But um, it's it's pretty hilarious. Like he he seems to uh, he seems to have a very um, a very hysterical reaction to Trump yeah. in general. Um, like you know what I mean? Like more hysterical than usual. And his reaction to like the existence of Trump as this figure promoting conspiracy theories 
um, seems to fur further unhinge him from just any 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 sense of uh, reality or any sense of uh, like I don't know, just just any no, any. No, I, I, I think it's impressive how Sam Harris managed to combine a lot of the dumbest things about Bush era neoconservatism with a lot of the dumbest things about Trump era resistance liberalism. And and he has David Frum on pretty constantly onto this podcast to talk to to really to really make those two Which makes uh, sense because because Frum is the uh, is the missing is the link you know between those two things. Yeah, exactly. Social problems at the bottom of all this that we have to address, and we won't address any of them by writing off everyone who voted for Trump as racist or otherwise irredeemable. But there are many people in my circle, friends and colleagues and podcast guests, who are making the opposite error. Many of them are almost exclusively focused on the problem of the far left, and this is causing them to significantly discount the harm that Trump has caused and is actively causing to our society. Some of these people are Trump supporters, but many aren't. And they've been taking the Trump team's allegations that the election was stolen through massive voter fraud way too seriously. And they're extending a principle of charity to Trump and to the rest of his team that is frankly delusional. Again, there is a needle to thread here, and many people don't appear to even see it. Insofar as I've noticed what others in the so-called intellectual dark web have been saying, it's generally not something I want to be associated with. I don't want to single anyone out in particular, but allow me to take this moment to turn in my imaginary membership card to this imaginary organization. I mean, the IDW was always tongue-in-cheek from my point of view. It was a funny name for a group of people who were willing to discuss difficult topics in public, mostly on podcasts, but it never made sense for us to be grouped together as though we shared a common worldview. I never saw much downside to it, and I didn't much think about it. But in the aftermath of this election, with some members of this fictional group sounding fairly bonkers, I just want to make it clear that I'm not part of any group. Right? So if you want Yeah, I just, I don't know. It didn't need to go on from there. He talks for like a full five minutes, and I really don't feel like listening to that much Sam Harris. But um, I don't yeah. I, I think it's pretty funny. And And the idea that he hasn't thought that much about it, like, Really? You haven't thought that much about it? You have thought <laughs> incredibly hard about it. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and, and this is also, by the way, a good time to remind people that, um, you know, intellectual dark web is, like, not a term. The idea of putting these people in a group and applying this label to them, this is not something uh, – <laughs> exactly. Uh, this, is, uh, this is not something gotcha. – we can talk about Neanderthal DNA. This was all a big prank. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is not something that like Sam Cedar made up, right? Like this is not something that you know Glenn Greenwald made up to you know accuse them of. This is this is something uh, they made up. This is a branding exercise uh, that they uh, that they they concocted uh, and uh, and that they all participated in. So. Uh, the term was kind of was like what the term was invented by uh, Eric Weinstein, you know, who's 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 a member, uh, and it was popularized uh, by uh, Barry Weiss, who is like the uh, well, 
now she's just on Substack. I was going to, you know, but like I, I'd always thought of as the emptiest shell in uh, mainstream media, uh, like, like just, just a profound, you know, I mean, look, I always, when I think about these guys, I always think about um, when Michael interviewed Cornell West, I was talking about this to somebody else earlier today. Uh, I, I was doing an event for the uh, uh, Northern Kentucky uh, YDSA and we were talking about this, um, that um, like I always think about when Michael interviewed Cornell West, because Cornell West is the most open hearted, compassionate human being ever. Like I, I'm not like I'm not this I'm not the kind of socialist who thinks that if we ever, you know, that if we achieve socialism, that like, you know, that like human beings will be the different or, you know, they'll they will we won't have selfishness anymore or anything. We'll have like new socialist man, you know, like, like I'm pretty much, I'm the kind of socialist who thinks that people are going to hurt each other in all the ways they do. We need, we need institutions that can extend democracy into the economy precisely in order to, um, to, to stop people from being able to, um, you know, to take that stuff out on each other. Uh, but, yeah. you know, exactly, exactly that. Um, yeah. But if I, but if I did, uh, but if I did believe, you know, we we're going to have a new socialist man, you know, I, I would think it would be a lot like Cornell West, you know, like he's, he's like, like sometimes he really strikes me as just a better type of human being than, uh, than, than you know, certainly I am. Uh, and, uh, and as part of that, he always does this thing where he, uh, exactly, somebody in the chat says Barry Weiss actually makes Thomas Friedman look uh, erudite by comparison. That's exactly right. Um, so um, he has... Like as part of that, he does this thing where it's like everybody is like his brother or his sister, you know, like even if it's like Donald Trump, he'll be like, well, brother Donald Trump is, you know, and then he'll, you know, like say whatever he's going to say. Uh, and so I always thought it was hilarious that like the meanest I've ever heard Cornell West be about anybody was when Michael interviewed him and they started talking about the IDW and Cornell West said, well, these aren't the most profound brothers. like that is that's cornell west speak for their fucking idiots right no i mean every there's like the cornell west like brothers like brother bernie and then there's like uh, he i remember he said something about biden and he was like something 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 like and then he was like this brother right here brother biden and like he had the contempt in his voice not in like a not in like a a, a hateful kind of way but just in like a this would be insanely damaging to our society having Biden, but like, but like, it's the two, it's like the, even his most, you know, his harshest criticism is, is kind of mitigated by that. No. Yeah, totally. Um, this, this is, uh, yeah, this is, this is Andy's drawing of that. (laughs) Of that dinner. Yeah, no, I mean, I love, and like, whatever, like Cornell West, like, like he just has the most compelling, like, like, he he has this talent for making whatever he's saying sound incredibly compelling. Like I started, I'd never read anything by Anton Chekhov before. And I started because I listened to the Joe Rogan interview with Cornell West, where he's like, brother Joe, have you ever read the short stories of Anton Chekhov? Don't live <laughs> until you've read Anton Chekhov. I was like, oh shit, I should, I should read some Chekhov. I, um, I remember, um, I don't know. I only got to talk to him for a couple minutes after he did the uh, the. They called you brother Forrest. Right? Yeah, he he called me brother Forrest on the on the podcast and tweeted it, which I really need to get framed. But well, he said brother Forrester in the. But you know what? Now my name is Forrester. Like he he inspired me. <laughs> no, um, fair enough. Right? And, no, and, and but, yes, 
Yeah. Like, yeah. He was talking about the, he was talking about Biden's uh, defense department pick. And like, sure. he was just really hilarious with the way he was like talking about like how, how like we don't, we don't want like, we don't want like a, um, a, like a, like a very diverse crew of people on the, that have the same defense department policy. And he had like a very, like, so I was talking to him about that for a second and I felt like that was the most enlightened I'd ever been. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and yeah, I love, actually my, my all time favorite instance, of this is always the thing when, um, uh, there was some event in South Carolina uh, during the primary, you know, when uh, he's, he's talking about uh, Bernie Sanders as he refers to him as this magnificent vanilla brother, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> and uh, and I, I remember I was listening to that uh, with, uh, with Michael and I told him uh, that like my, my goal in life was just once before I die, I want to be, I want Cornell West to refer to me as this magnificent vanilla brother, Ben Burgess. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah. Uh, oh, by the way, thank you. Um, yes, we do. Uh, thank you, Charles Rentry, uh, for the super chat. Says happy first season. Uh, but yeah. Uh, so this is something that Barry Weiss, who even by the standards of these people, she is, uh, as Cornell West would say, not the most profound sister. Uh, <laughs> like <laughs> she. Uh, like it's not just even the like magnificent hypocrisy of the fact that like she's very concerned about people being you know canceled based on spurious accusations of racism and things like this and like look in some cases I agree but like she also this is like her big thing despite the fact that like going back to when she was a college student at Columbia like she was trying to get uh, professors fired, you know, for being anti-Israel, and, and, and students kicked out. I think, right? Her her whole crusade was just about getting anybody really that was doing um, any kind of of like any kind of anti-Zionist, uh, you know, organizing, trying to get them, you know, social consequences for it. Yeah, exactly. And this is not like okay, it would be one thing if she was doing this in college, but she'd evolved. But like, you know, she still regularly accuses people of anti-Semitism, you know, for Palestine. Uh, advocacy it's it's ridiculous and then uh she she also uh, but it's it's not just that it's also that like every time i'd read one of these new york times columns it's like forget then the you hypocr- cut out for it. i did oh. oh sorry i was gonna say every time i read one of these read one of these new york times columnists when she was uh columns you know when she was still at the times you know she was always uh like forget the politics forget the hypocrisy it's always just like it was just the most like vapid like here are some thoughts you know I'm done right you know yeah. no need to try to assemble these into anything yeah. that, like you know looks like an argument or like interesting examples it's just like they all read like blog posts from 2005 you know somebody just types up and presses post. Uh, and that's it. But in any case, uh, Barry Weiss is the person who really popularized the phrase intellectual dark web. Yeah. And, and clearly as a branding exercise, like, you know, to get more people to, uh, to watch and, and, and listen to them. No, exactly. So, so this is the article it's uh, called meet the, meet the renegades of the intellectual dark web. And you find all these people, you know, IDW or associated, uh, here's, um, you know, here's Brett Weinstein, uh, and oh, who's this? Right, 
put like posing for this absolutely ridiculous publicity shot for this collective branding exercise in the New York Times. In standing some in a bush point. for some reason. Yeah, standing <laughs> in some bushes, you know, <laughs> sort of in the background like this. Oh, that's Sam Harris. Uh, I think that this idea that like, oh, this is just something like, oh, what do you mean he's part of this group of intellectuals, you know, uh, you know, he never signed on to that. What are you talking about? It's like, look, dude, it's fine to have second thoughts, but like, you know, man up here, like admit it. Like, you yeah. know, this, this is something you, it's not that your enemies identify you as a group. You and your co-thinkers identified yourselves as a group. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I have two thoughts on, on, on this uh, in general. And my first one is my thought on Barry Weiss. I think she's every, Barry Weiss is every of the, like every single one of the most hysterical, um, uh, one of the most hysterical components, I guess, or, or tendencies of the PMC, like ramped up to an 11. So like her, you know what I mean? So like both, both using identity politics constantly in, in, you know, to get her, her way as a career move, as um, you know, to get people in trouble that she thinks that they are, are saying things that she, they shouldn't be like anything pro Palestine, like on top of the whole, you know, being worried about cancel culture too, I think in a lot of cases, like a hysterical level, you know what I mean? Like, so Barry Weiss, I feel like is every PMC tendency kind of just ramped up to like, to like, to like a level where you can look at it and be like, you know what? The the this group like this class of people is pretty ridiculous. Just uh, conceptual. No, that's, I, I think I think that's right. I think to to a great extent, uh, Barry Weiss is the spirit animal of the professional managerial class. Like, or she's like a sort of, uh, you know, like 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 she's she's like the ultimate like damning indictment, you know, of it that it produces. You know, produces this. Um, yeah, and and so I guess my second one is that. Um, I, I think that you know the 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 intellectual dark web is clearly a, a bunch of people who felt like they were unfairly maligned, building a media apparatus in which they could go from these shows and and promote themselves in a way that they felt like they would be given um, a, a fair, but in in their minds, fair is obviously fawning and uh, you know like like completely completely sympathetic, completely fawning um, you know these long podcasts because they felt like. In, in mainstream media, their uh, views aren't taken seriously. So anybody who they felt like had a media space that would be, you know, um, overly sympathetic to them, that was the intellectual dark web, I think. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so Dave L., uh, thank you so much uh, for the Super Chat Brothers, says, uh, one, happy birthday, Ben. Thank you. Uh, two, thoughts on Derek Vaughn's pushback on the idea of a PMC. Yeah, so um, I think that, like, uh, so yeah, see Derek Varn, uh, he was on a live stream uh, last year, and actually also, uh, yeah, he was on a live stream in the fall, and then he was also on the um, uh, he was also on a, the bonus episode we did on MMT, uh, and you know, I, I think you know, I don't always agree with him, but I think he's an extremely bright guy, and he's certainly a comrade. Uh, and, and I think it depends what you mean by it, right? Like, I know that's kind of a lame answer, but I mean, like, I think that this is something I grapple with a little bit, both in the uh, first book, uh, Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left, um, in the uh, in the chapter uh, where I talk about, uh, you know, Thomas Frank, uh, and then uh, also uh, in the, uh, the, the new book, uh, which, by the way, this is as good a time as any to uh, plug, 
uh, canceling uh, canceling comedians uh, while the world burns, a uh, critique of the uh, contemporary left, which is out on May first. One of the reasons uh, taking a uh, you know one of the reasons for scheduling our season break when we are uh, is that I have to go into high gear for you know doing the podcast book tour and promoting that thing. Uh, but and I need uh, a couple weeks to read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, honestly, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's a quick read, you know, but, um, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, so in both books, you know, I talk about this issue a little bit and in both books, I kind of say the same thing. Uh, I think a little bit more explicitly in the new one, which is that I'm actually a little bit of two minds about this explanatory framework. Uh, and here's how that, uh, the one hand, I think there is a certain objection. I think this might be where Derek is coming from. I haven't seen the video Dave's referring to, but my guess is that this is where he's coming from. Like some of the conversations I've had with him would suggest this, that there is a kind of old line Marxist objection to the phrase professional managerial class, uh, which I'm, you know, enough of an old line Marxist to share, which is to say, that, well, look, this clearly isn't a class defined by its relationship to the means of production. That, like, if uh, that when we uh, we talk about sort of a certain kind of credentialed uh, middle class professional, we're talking both about like doctors and lawyers who own their own practices, so those are members of the petty bourgeoisie, and also about like, for example, lawyers who work for, you know, a university or corporation or something and are technically part of the working class. They, they, they work for a living and they don't own the place. Um, and so it cuts across those class lines. And so in that sense, it's not a class. Uh, and, and I think that the, that there are even certain contexts in which uh, this isn't just a very dry sort of, uh, historical point that this isn't the way that like Karl Marx would cut up the class categories. Uh, this is also a politically relevant point in certain contexts. Like if you think about like, um, well, the kind of union organizing that I used to do, you know, at, at when I was at Rutgers, you know, which was uh, the, uh, the adjuncts uh, union there that like, if, if people don't want to join a union because they think of themselves as middle-class professionals rather than workers, right. It's actually really important to push back against that and mm -hmm. say, no, like you are a worker, you are going to materially benefit from banding together with other workers, you know, against the boss. Uh, so I think all that is true and I take the point, but the flip side of that is that, and what I say in the book is that, look, if you want to substitute the word cast for class, right? Say, yeah. you know, professional managerial cast, you know, I think that there's a case for that, you know, but like whatever you want to call it. I even uh, think mindset, really mindset. I mean, like, because I, I think that it has I see I think the the idea of calling it a class is that you know there are I think as, as a group maybe class interests for these people in their minds um, for doing what they're doing but they don't necessarily think of themselves that way I think the tendencies the tendencies of what would be critiqued in the PMC um, I, you know I think it's a mindset more than more than anything else yeah yeah um, so, so 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 this is the thing right that I think that. Like you can certainly talk about in a very loose sense, a relationship to power structures uh, being, that's where the managerial part comes in that like that the people, you know, people who are educated, credentialed professionals, you know, that's certainly linked to the group of people that is asked to manage certain things on behalf of capital. 
and and then like I think the thing where it's even more directly true, uh, of course there are plenty of things that we would include in PMC that don't that don't involve any sort of management function. Uh, but um, although, but then like I think the more direct things what you're talking about, you know, is the mindset issue, which is the sort of identifying with management that like yeah. whether or not this is objectively correct about the economic position or not. Um, you know, the vast majority of people that we're talking about uh, don't think of themselves as part of the working class, even though in some cases they they are. They think of themselves as middle-class professionals and they have a view of the world uh, that is, and, and you know, that they, they, there's certainly at least real as a cultural phenomenon, you know, that the, the way they see the world, the way they see politics uh, is all filtered around this certain set of expectations, this culture of credentialed, educated, uh, middle-class uh, professionals. Uh, and I think that you need some term for these people because mm-hmm. uh, for a couple reasons, but I think most obviously because, um, you know, I think that the dominant form of contemporary liberalism is just incomprehensible if you don't understand that this is the subgroup of the population that that liberalism is uh, kind of coming out of and is oriented to, and that this is like that the language that the dominant wing of the Democratic Party, for example, speaks is entirely attuned to this group of people. Yeah, and they've and they've picked out who they want as constituents. They picked out who they want as voters, and you know they're. They've picked out who they believe that is going to lead them to win. But at the same time, I think I think people can even be consider themselves socialists, not maybe within like maybe not in like the, the like the uh, I guess the harsher, like harsher sense of it or the more revolutionary, more revolutionary sense of it. But, you know, even like DSA member style socialists or social Democrats can still be members of like fall into that PMC um, build. Because, you know, it's managing, in, in that case, it's managing that change. You know what I mean? Like, it's their relationship to... Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, so, I mean, I, I think this is something we were talking about with Nanda the other week, you know, that, that that's, like, maybe worth uh, saying again, which is that um, oftentimes, because so many people... <laughs> fair I'd, enough. I'd like to have her on to talk about um, her book. She did a really good interview with... Uh, with Chapo, where they went through like uh, the PMC shopping list that yeah, yeah. never came up with. That was so good. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that um, that it's so so many people are so used, and this this really takes us directly into the new book and what that's about. You know, so many people are so used to thinking about politics through this prism of individualistic moralism that like what we're doing is uh, we're trying to evaluate, you know, individuals and sort them into the good people and the bad people and, you know, yell at the bad people that that's what politics is uh, that they're, they're so accustomed to that, that even when they hear a critique of that, they hear it as just more of the same. Right. Mm -hmm. So they, they think that like, Oh, if you're making a big deal, about uh, about the sort of culture of the you know professional managerial class that must mean that that must be what that must mean is that like what you really want to do is yell at people 
for being members of the PMC or you want to think badly of them. You know, you want to think that like, you know, they're going to hell or something uh, to steal a line from uh, I always love from uh, Michael's um, interview with uh, one of his interviews with, with Adolf Reed, where Reed is talking about left moralism. He says, this is just too, too Protestant an approach to politics for me. You know, it seems to be not trying to decide who's going to heaven and who's going to hell, uh, (laughs) you know, rather than uh, trying to change uh, the world. Uh, And it's, so it's like, no, the point is not like, oh, you're a bad person or you even have bad politics necessarily, right? If you belong to this subset of the population, like, you know, to spell out something that should be extremely obvious, look, I clearly belong to this subset of the population. I mean, for like, you know, I mean, I have a PhD for fuck's sake. There's nothing more PMC than that. You know, like that's uh, I have a PhD in philosophy too. Like, you know, yeah, I know. Right. Like, that's not, you know, like, 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 what do I, what do I do? Right. Like I, well, I have a day job at a college. I, uh, I write articles and I do like podcasts and media stuff. Uh, that this is, this is a, this is a thoroughly, you know, like, like, like I, I, I'm a member of the PMC in good standing, you know, economically precarious. The podcast, the podcast man, managerial class. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, of course, a lot of the PMC has become economically precarious. In fact, this is something that like Daniel Bessner has talked about a lot lately that, um, that a lot of, you know, members of the PMC becoming economically precarious is a lot of where cancel culture comes from, you know, because as there are sort of, you know, fewer ladders to go around, you know, people start clawing at each other a lot more viciously, you know. Over yeah, and they start identifying with management a lot more because, you know, they see that as as keeping their position, uh, you know, keeping those hierarchies is keeping their position solid. So the, the more the more precarious it gets, the more they identify with management, the more they identify with like the HR department. Like, you know what I mean? Like, um, I, I loved when Michael called it HR politics. Like that was like the Elizabeth Warren style of politics. Um, no, totally. Uh, and and, a, and a, I would argue that even a lot of people who, uh, oh yeah, Oliver points out uh, in the chat that this was an incomplete description of what I do. Uh, there's so there's the teaching, there's the writing, there's the media stuff, and there's also fucking with liberals on Twitter. That that's also, you know, that's 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 clearly a big um, a big part of the daily roster of activities. But uh, but no, look, I mean, I uh, yeah, I mean, like, and I would argue that a lot of the uh, socialist left, uh, because uh, for a lot of reasons, this is the only one. Right. But one of the reasons is that so many people who, you know, join DSA, you know, become to identify with socialist politics, maybe think of themselves in a sort of slightly annoying way as, oh, I'm so far to the left of the DSA. Uh, so many of these people are at least, you know, are members of or certainly at least downwardly mobile sons and daughters, you know, of this of this subset of the population. Yeah. And and the problem like the reason where it becomes a problem, that was weird grammatical construction, but let's move on. Uh, <laughs> is that, uh, it's, is that uh, people who are acculturated into this, uh, into this group, whatever you want to call it, um, like have this uh, kind of HR department mindset that they then bring into even the nominally socialist left. Uh, and, and that, you know, I mean, again, spend two days on left Twitter. I think you'll know what I'm talking about pretty quickly. 
Um, you know, that like, there's, there's a lot of calling the manager, you know, there's a lot of like, you know, there's a lot of what, like, there's a certain way of like calling people out that feels like a visit to the HR department, you know, that it's like, yeah, you know, we're going to, we're going to just inform you, you know, I don't want to argue with you about whether you were wrong. I'm just going to inform you that you, you did a problematic take and I'm going to give you a chance to apologize. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and we're going to kind of, uh, re-educate you, but not along, you know, not along class lines, re-educate you along kind of the liberal social values lines. Like the, the, the idea that we need to take people out of public life or the idea that we need to take, like, you know, they can still earn money or earn a living, but we need to take them out of public life as if, you know, a, a public eye is something that we can both give and take away. Um, I think, Oh, you're, you're muted. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, uh, in any case, um, you know, I, I think that the, the point is not to like say that somebody's a bad person or has bad politics, you know, because of, you know, of their, um, you know, their, their class background or current class position, uh, uh, much less their position in this sort of ambiguous, like caste that we're talking about that doesn't exactly map onto classes as defined by relationship to the means of production. Uh, the point is, uh, the point is just that it's, it's an important thing to be aware of uh, because this kind of, of PMC liberal mindset is bad news. And if we want to build the kind of socialist left uh, that is, that is going to be useful in the real world, that's, that's going to have any chance of winning over majority support, you know, being, uh, being of, and not just for, uh, you know, the working class majority of society, uh, then, then you have to like this kind of approach where you treat politics as like calling people into the HR department to be scolded is very bad news. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's something that makes it very hard to build that kind of movement. So the point is not individually judging anybody. The point is just saying that like, this is something to be aware of to, uh, to not do it. Um, and, and I think that there's, I think that there's a question um, that, you know, should be posed to the left and it's who do you want to uh, push us, I guess, through not revolution in the sense of overthrowing capitalism, like, like in the violent revolutionary sense, but if society is going to progress and change, who do you want to lead that? Who do you want to lead us into socialism? Do you want it to be um, technocratic experts that kind of have exact numbers and, and figures about how to, you know, re reconfigure um, wealth re redistribution, which is not going to be like push us through mass politics. So if, if you don't trust the masses, um, I, you know what I mean? Like you can't really call yourself a socialist. Like the, the, the whole idea of like a PMC, I think on the left, is that they don't trust the masses. They don't trust that the working class isn't going to be uh, problematic. They don't trust that the working class is going to be able to figure out, you know, some of these ideas for themselves. So they need somebody between them, like between that as a buffer. Um, in, yeah. in a way, like deeply unhelpful to, to real political change. Yeah, right. I mean, it's like the thing that, you know, Michael Brooks would always point out to me about, you know, it's going to be very hard to do this without naming names, but I'm going to try my best uh, about how, some of the same people who uh, who seem to have these like ultra left views about how um, like a transition to socialism could happen, you know, that like uh, who uh, who think that like 
you know, forget electoralism, you know, forget, you know, maybe even organizing like sort of regular labor unions or whatever, you know, we just like need to have, I don't know, like street riots and, you know, like whatever, like that, that's the, uh, uh, that, that, that's the way forward. Uh, and like somehow, even though they believe we can have like a revolution next week, also seem to somehow believe that we can build that movement while having the narrowest set of like demanding expectations about how everybody has to conform to this certain kind of like ultra woke social mores that it's like, you realize that there's like 5% of the population that'll go along with you there. Right. Like, like how, like it's it's like like, street, street riots. And then somehow like, somehow this perfect Jesus figure of like that, that like is, is both somehow super woke, super liberal in their values. And also, um, you know, incredibly pristine about the way that they treat Marxism will somehow emerge from the fray and be like, all right, society, this is how society is now where it's no longer messy. It's no longer complicated. We've, we've managed society. Thank you for overthrowing the last power dynamic. Here is a, a new power, like the new, the new ultra left power dynamic. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, it, it just seems like you gotta, you've gotta chill on some of that, or you're like not gonna have like the idea that um, you know. I mean, this is like one of the things that uh, that I talk about uh, in the uh, in the book is this um, like. You know, something I often think about, you know, is like 2019 uh, when there was the last, uh, you know, DSA convention uh, when uh, when people were uh, so, you know, Tucker Carlson uh, played these clips of the convention on a show, which is, of course, amazing progress because, uh, you know, Carlson wouldn't have bothered to attack yeah. DSA. You know, a couple yeah. of years earlier, uh, but now we're now we're at least a, an enemy on the radar of Fox. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, <laughs> right. And um, and one of the clips that he shows is of uh, somebody at the beginning of the convention reading off this list of rules that included no clapping because it's possible that out of like six hundred people there, you could have like three people who had some extremely unusual medical condition. You know, with like that sensitive yeah. noise. Uh, and I I don't know. I've always, I've always just not wanted to be part of any space that does the, the, the the beat poet snapping. Yeah. (laughs) If if you're asked to do the snapping or the jazz hands or whatever, you know, then like, I think, uh, I think you, you know, that your time is not being well spent, you know, like, like, go, uh, I also want to say that I'm very happy to be part of a a left, a left space where I can make that statement and not be afraid that people are suddenly going to be like, whoa, shitting on our, our, Our diverse yeah, yeah, yeah. values with the staff because I don't know. I went to New Paltz for college, and like it's very much like that. Like, yeah, nothing, yeah. nothing gets done because of like a, a list of five hundred subsets of <laughs> of, of yeah. people crossing each other. Yeah, exactly. And it's like so that was one of the rules was the no clapping rule. I think one of them was no strong sense and something called the chill out room. Uh, I ha- and and then. Like a, another speaker in his clips comes on to uh, say, "Hey guys, no crosstalk, because uh, even that's bad if you're like having a side conversation." And then somebody in the audience says, "Point of privilege, uh, hey guys, is gendered language," and 
look, it should go without saying, of course, uh, Tucker Carlson is a piece of shit. He's a, uh, a racist reactionary demagogue and he's very dishonest. And of course he's going to select the clips out of all the hours, of the convention that are going to make DSA look bad. That goes without saying, but the thing is, Cherry picking the things that make people look worse is one thing, but the unfortunate thing is he didn't have to make any of it up. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that this all happened, and this wasn't like some Breitbart thing where they were sneaking hidden cameras into the convention. Uh, this is uh, the reason that he had this footage is that DSA was streaming it to the world. Um, yeah. Uh, and like the fact that nobody there seems to have had the thought guys is this the image that we want to put forward uh for our movement like for the world at large for anybody who happens to see it that's like oh come join us this is the kind of movement where nobody is allowed to clap and if you say anything that can be seen from some insanely uncharitable angles being problematic in some way you use the word guys uh you know in, in a uh and uh, and that's, you know, that's gendered language. Somebody's going to be ready to snap and call you out on it. Like, which they could do because it's not clapping. Someone's going to snap. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they can snap, right? They can't clap back, but they can snap. Uh, like this is, this is not like, this is not like an image that you would put forward for yourself. If you were even thinking about how you're going to appeal to a broader group of people, which is what bothers me about it. Most of all, uh, this is the kind of stuff that you do if you're just not if that if the question of how to appeal to a broader subset of the population is not even on your radar if all you're thinking about is how do I like do this one-upsmanship of like uh, showing my own moral credentials you know that like no I'm more committed than these other people are yeah uh, and well I mean and even just you know uh, Tucker Carlson will never bring this up because obviously it's way too uh, in the weeds for you know Fox News to give a fuck about. But the idea that like Adolf Reed would be canceled by a DSA event, like that seems like an insane waste of time and just the ability not to want to you know recognize ideas that that you don't. Uh, no, that, no, you know absolutely. I mean? Like like that. Yeah, I mean that. Uh, I remember when that happened. Uh, Michael Powell wrote that article in New York Times. You know, he talked to. Uh, Cornell West, who has debated uh, Reed in the past about, you know, some of the very issues that people are mad about Reed about. And Cornell West was like, are these people insane? This is one of the most important socialist scholars, you know, alive today. Uh, you're, you know, you're not going to have, you know, you're going to get upset that he's going to speak to DSA. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, it's a, um, like, it's it's a ridiculous thing, and I, and the pitch that I make in the new book, and and I guess this is the last thing I'll say before we just talk a little bit about the end of the season and cut, you know, and and finally cut that we've gone way longer than usual. But what the hell? Yeah, is the, and is I have the, to, I have to, I have to run to the bathroom as It's the uh, season finale, but uh, I drank so much coffee throughout this uh, episode. <laughs> um, but like. There, like I get why nobody wants to say anything in in that context, right? Like, uh, like I get why if you're like one of those hundreds of delegates, lots of people I'm sure thought that was dumb. Lots of people complained about it to each other at the hotel bar, but I get why nobody wants to say anything. 
I hate that. Like that if you, you don't want to be the one to say like, Hey guys, I actually think that this is incredibly fucking stupid and uh, we shouldn't have these rules. And this is, this is a ridiculous thing to do uh, because uh, how with like, you don't become a socialist so you can argue with crazy people in your own meeting, right. Who are basically on your side uh, that, you know, so you can argue with them about nonsense. You become a socialist because you want to take on, you know, capitalism and imperialist wars and police violence. And, you know, yeah. all that's well, Amber Frost put it perfectly to you um, when you guys were talking and she said, you know, I don't join these, you know, I'm not like a crazy person that joins these organizing events to make friends. Like I have friends. I want people to have healthcare. Like I remember, cause I, I, put that line in the back of my head like to like you know what i mean like to bring up later on when, when she said that because it really is true like it, it if if you're just kind of joining these organizations as like a way to like meet new people and like you know like like uh talk to people and like what like it's not the point the point is to meet to join these uh like these groups so you can organize so the world can be better so that people are not so fucked and, it, and if you're spending all your time worrying about who's snapping, who's clapping. Like I sound like an, I sound like an old guy, like kind of like who's snapping yeah. and who's clapping kids today or so. But like, if you're spending your time worrying about that and not about, you know, how can we convince people that we need a better social safety net? How can we convince people that capital shouldn't run their lives, that their bosses shouldn't run their lives, that they should have autonomy in a sense that we do not have now have freedom in a sense that we do not have now. Like if that's, if you're more worried about like, policing who could come into your space or who can speak in your space like you're, you're really missing the point and it's not anything that people are going to want to engage with yeah no totally uh and, and again like i understand the impulse that some people have i mean like for a long time it's basically how i felt about this which is like look a lot of the things that people do on the left are really stupid and annoying but whatever uh it's really unimportant uh you know in a world where you know, police violence and imperialist wars and, you know, uh, all of these things exist. Who cares? Right. Like, like, uh, like I, I just can't be bothered with it, you know, with, with this, it's, it's annoying, but whatever. Uh, and, and I get that response and I think there's something that's very right about that response. And I think that that response goes a long way, uh, especially in certain contexts, right? Like if you're talking about stupid fucking Dave Rubin, uh, you know, say that like he left the left because of this stuff. And yeah, that's a great response. But the problem is two things, right? One, a lot of this is just a bad way to interact with people. It's, it's, it's a, it's, it's bad in yeah, itself. It's, off, it's super off putting. And it deserves to be critiqued in itself. It's like, I always liked uh, that movie uh, Lady Bird from a few years ago uh, where there's, there's a line where the main character is uh, she's dating this guy who's like a, Chomsky reading like post nine 11 kind of leftist. And, um, and she's, when she's breaking up with him, she started to talk about like all the things that are problems with their relationship. And he says, Hey, you know how many people die in Iraq, die in Iraq. And she says, yeah, uh, more than one thing can be bad. Right. So like, I yeah. think that's like a fair response by itself, but also I think that this idea that you shouldn't critique uh, all of the, um, all of the things that are uh, ridiculous and frustrating about the left because there are so many more important issues, I think is exactly wrong for the reason that you were kind of hinting at when you said, you know, we ta talked about how off-putting this is, that the reason to criticize the pathologically counterproductive ways that the left is and the sort of 
face that it presents to the world that's so unappealing, uh, the reason to critique that is that those more important issues exist. It is that imperialist wars and police violence and the capitalist system exist because these are things that stop us from appealing to and winning over uh, the people that we need to appeal to and win over in order to do anything about those larger problems. So precisely because those more important issues exist, we need to stop acting like this. And even in the meantime, I think that the ideal thing is, you know, to convince other leftists not to act like this. Uh, but uh, for, but, for, but even failing that, right. Like just critiquing it from, for the left is important in itself uh, because if you critique it from the left, then that usefully signals uh, to regular people, and I'm not using that as some sort of code for like white male people or something. I just mean like people from any background, uh, any racial identity, any sexual orientation, any anything who aren't steeped in the culture of the left, that it, you usefully signal to those people that you don't have to um, go along with this stuff in order to be a leftist that like you can, you can find all of this stuff incredibly annoying and still be a leftist. That itself is a useful message to send. I just have, I have enough legitimately working class friends that have no interest in politics that, you know, I, I just think in my mind, like how can we convince like friends that I have, let's say that like the world needs to be better and that we can achievably make it better. And when I think about something off-putting like that, I'm like, well, that like that's not going to convince those people that we're a like like a force to take seriously. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so that's kind of my 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 coding on it, I guess. I I think that there's a lot of things that will make people really comfortable in certain spaces, and I think you know it, it's it's important to make people comfortable in those spaces. But I also think that there are things that can just be so easily ridiculed. Um, by people that are not in these spaces that we should be careful about them. And we should be careful to not be off-putting uh, to... No, you know, no, no, exactly, right? Like, like nobody's saying, like, uh, tolerate open expressions of transphobia on the left or anything like that, you know, uh, don't do that. Uh, but uh, but, but, it, but there's, there's so much of a gap between that and spend all of your time policing micro-expressions uh, of, of everything that could be seen in a certain light, uh, because if you actually want to change the world, like you got to cut some of that stuff out. You're so, gonna you're uh, going to have to interact with, and you're going to have to interact with and convince people who are not going to always make you feel the most comfortable. Uh, you know what I mean? Like for for things to change, it's not just going to be leftists that have to change them, and I no. think it's. I think it's important to start to realize that for the world to change, there are going to be times where you're uncomfortable. There's going to be times where you have to convince people and organize around people that make you uncomfortable. And you have to figure out how you have to figure out how to steel yourself against that, convince people that this is not the world you want to live in, but also that what's happening right now is going to lead us off the edge of a cliff. And there, there has, there, there has to be some line in between those two things. Like, Hey, like, you know, the, the people that I know, like the friends that I have, like that are, that are leftists, like, you know, I don't want people to be a dick. I don't want people to be assholes to each other, but at the same time, there are going to be assholes that you have to convince. No, totally. And, and this is the, and this is the thing that like, this is what always gets me uh, when 
Like it, like this is what, uh, you know, this is what bothered me, you know, in a way, you know, when, when there, when so many people were upset about, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders, uh, accepting the endorsement of Joe Rogan, uh, and, you know, it's like, how dare he, uh, accept the support of, uh, the most popular podcaster in the world who's listened to by vast numbers of basically apolitical people. Uh, He'd be stupid. You know? He would have been stupid to reject that endorsement. No, like, it would have been incredibly, incredibly <laughs> stupid to, to reject it. And uh, one of the things that bothers me about it, too, is like, yeah, Joe Rogan has some good positions and some dumb reactionary positions. Guess what? So do your neighbors and coworkers. Go talk to them. And like, clearly, And clearly something about better positions are getting through to him. He talked to Cornell West. He talked to Bernie. You know what I mean? Like, clearly those things are getting through to Joe Rogan. Like, the fact that he's had problematic... Uh, opinions and that he will continue to and reactionary like opinions clearly something about the messaging up to that point was getting through to him he was getting better no exactly and that's something you want to encourage and it's also what bothers me you know when people get like you know we can rattle off the figures but you know like there were there certain left or left adjacent figures that people just get like incredibly angry at and like they decide in their heads that this person is like basically a fascist. This is why I always, I'm always the one who, who wants to do this sort of pedantic thing and be like, okay, tell me exactly which positions they hold that you think are so bad. Yeah. Because even if like you don't like, and maybe I don't like their tone or their choice of, of like which subjects they emphasize or, you know, the sense of humor or anything else, like, if you have somebody who's uh, who agrees with you about like ninety five percent of everything, who you've decided uh, is a fascist because they you know you don't like how much they bring up some cultural issue or you get a little bit of a you know right wing vibe from like certain things about the you know again like talk to your neighbors talk to your coworkers yeah. you know talk to people on the bus. You will be amazed how few of them agree with you about as many subjects as these people who you've decided are basically fascists. But uh, we're going to take pity on uh, Forrest. This is not Amazon. He just uh. Uh, so, um, uh, so yeah, this has been a great, uh, you know, really, uh, you know, really proud of the uh, the first season of uh of give them an argument uh you know that's it's it's we got um like you know just just on a just on a basic level i mean you know we've we've got up to we're we're rounded out in on about thirteen thousand. you know youtube subscribers yeah uh, we're very close we're at like 12 12 thousand nine hundred something yeah um you know got uh even got, with us being shadow bands for talking for too much truth telling. <laughs> yeah. Did you see that? Did you see that video of uh of of, of Nico House um where he was saying that shadow banning is you can't see that you like to tweet or something. Um, like it was just like the the weirdest like definition of like oh I don't see that I like this tweet. How are other people going to see this tweet? I I don't know. I just I had to I had to bring yeah, that. Yeah, Nico House is. Um... Well, I'm just not going to end that sentence. So that's 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 how that's going to go. But uh, <laughs> uh, he's but, he's, uh, he's 
he's gotten into Twitter arguments with me, so I feel comfortable slamming <laughs> him on a on a stream publicly because it's not someone that's ever gonna be my friend or or, or no, you're, I, <laughs> you're never gonna be my friend or collaborator. I, I've um, you can watch my uh, debate with him about Tulsi versus Birdie from like a year or two ago. Uh, you can you can watch the debate I did with him about the election. I'll I'll let those speak for themselves. But uh, in any case, uh, you know it's it's been um, you know it's been a good uh, it's been a good year. Uh, get the uh, uh, yeah we like sort of fluctuate a little at the end of the month, you know. Uh, but uh, but you know we've been between like sort of three hundred forty five, three hundred seventy five patron you know patrons. You know we're we're getting up to about that. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's been, uh, it's been really good. And, uh, and I think, you know, and, and, you know, we've had, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, this, this, this first season, you know, we had Slavoj Zizek on the show. Uh, you know, we've, we've had, um, you know, like we had Tom's It's been an impressive roster. Yeah. So, so I, I feel good about it. And, uh, uh, like I like I said, we're going to do a few more live streams this week, you know, before we uh, before we go on break. But this is the last regular episode. Uh, but it's uh, it's been good. Uh, season two is going to be even better. Um, let's uh, uh, you know take a uh, uh, take a quick moment uh, to uh, you know at the end of season one uh, to uh, to appreciate uh, to appreciate where we've. Uh, where we've come, you know, uh, have a, uh, take a, take a deep, take a deep breath <laughs> and, and uh, your mind and really, and really think about where yeah, and how much <laughs> I try to think of three movies. Uh, yeah. so, uh, three movies that really describe the experience that we've had this first season. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that, that ended up being a really convoluted combination of callbacks and different things, but, uh, <laughs> uh but anyway, uh, this has been good. Season one's been good. Uh, season two is going to be even better. Left is best. <laughs>